Greetings and good afternoon, everyone. This is Cheryl. Hello, greetings. This is Cheryl. And I'm so pleased to be here to welcome you to Tara and Rama's Saturday afternoon program, the true planetary and galactic history, history, and true history, history of Nasara. Forgive me for any background noise. I'm uh, on route here, traveling in the car. So we are going to go ahead and um, begin by going into our heart center and invoking our divine presence to take full and complete command of our being. And one with our I am presence, we invite in every man, woman, and child to partake of all that we do, including all that we would normally call in, all of our family members and loved ones, and everyone across the planet. We begin by working with the violet flame. Begin to see, sense, and feel it. And we participate in this beautiful activity of light. Make sure your arms and legs are uncrossed. Your spine as straight as possible. And if you can, keep your hands resting gently in your lap with your palms facing upward. Take a nice deep breath with me as we invite in the entire company of heaven to assist. And let all of the tension of this day just drop away. Allowing yourself to become completely relaxed. Completely relaxed with each breath that you take. Deep breathe in deeply once again. Exhale. Feeling your God presence take full dominion of all of your being. Allow your mind to be activated, allowing the cobwebs of confusion, doubt, and fear to be swept away. You realize that through the radiance of your God presence, you are enveloped in a force field of invincible protection that prevents anything that is not of the light from distracting you or interfering with the sacred moment. You feel the inner glow of peace and well-being deep within you, feeling a beautiful golden light flowing from within your heart center. And you accept that you are the open door that no one can shut. As we go through this visualization, Focus easily and effortlessly your attention on what I say. As this is all said in the first person, beloved presence of God, God is blazing in my heart. I know and accept that through this invocation, you have taken command of my four lower bodies, my physical, etheric, mental and emotional bodies are now being raised in vibration and they are being integrated with your radiant presence. My awareness is increasing and I begin to perceive clearly your still small voice within. I know that you respond to my every call for assistance 
I am beginning to experience your exquisite vibrations, and my entire being is flooded with light. My consciousness is opening to the influx of your pure spiritual energy. From this level of awareness, I now know as never before, you are in me and I am in thee. I know you are me. Please affirm with me. I am a being of radiant light. I am one with the energy and vibration that is the all-encompassing presence of God. I am one with the divine love that fills the universe with the glory of itself. I am one with the divine plan for planet Earth. I am one with the limitless flow of God's abundance. I am that I am. Take a nice deep breath as a reactivation and initiation into multidimensional awareness is occurring within each one of us. I am lifted up closer in vibration to the very heart of God. The pre-encoded memories that were implanted deep within my cellular patterns eons ago are activated. These patterns reveal my divine plan, my purpose, and reason for being. I am experiencing a great soaring and awakening as I remember my divine heritage. I am stepping through the doorway into multidimensional reality. Here I am empowered with even more rarefied frequencies of divinity. Moment to moment, this radiant light is awakening me with previously untapped levels of wisdom and illumination. I easily grasp each divine thought and idea. As I do, avenues of opportunity unfold before me. I feel a sense of elation as each opportunity presents itself. I joyously seize the divine opportunities, and I feel a greater sense of self-worth and accomplishment than ever before. My life is pulsating with a sense of meaning and warmth. I am now lifted higher into the realms of perfection, and now higher, and now higher. In this realm, I easily release and let go of attachments and behavior patterns that do not support my highest good. I release all patterns that reflect a consciousness less than prosperity. I recognize this is the moment of my new beginning. I now have the absolute ability to create prosperity consciousness, and I do so easily and joyously. And we say, I'm experiencing my true integrity. I am trustworthy and honest. I am an expression of divine truth. I am worthy and deserving of prosperity. And I am able to transform every aspect of my life now. Change is manifesting through divine grace and love. Each aspect of my life that needs changing surfaces before me, and I easily love it free and forgive myself for my perceived transgression. I know I am a child of God, 
and I deserve to be loved and forgiven. As the changes take place, I'm experiencing a sense of inner calm, patience, and silence. Keep blazing that violet flame. I am the, in the divine flow of my true God reality. I am one with the intel, infinite intelligence within me. And I am always able to make correct choices. I love myself unconditionally. And I'm grateful for this opportunity to change, which I accept with deep humility. The divine power to sustain these changes is continually flowing through me. And from this moment forth, I choose to create a life of prosperity and only that which supports my highest good. Once again, I am lifted higher into the realms of perfection and now higher and now higher. I now focus on the sacred essence of my holy breath. I realize that with every in-breath, I extend in consciousness through my eternal journey into infinity to the source of never-ending perfection. With every out-breath, I magnetize the full momentum of that perfection and radiate its full blessing to all life evolving on Earth. My in-breath is the open portal to the pure land of boundless splendor and infinite light. And my out-breath is the source of all divine blessings for humanity and the planet. I understand now that the divine gifts being presented to humanity from the legions of light serving this we earth will be drawn into the world of form on the holy breath. I consecrate and dedicate myself to be the open door for these sacred gifts of light. Lord, make me an instrument of your limitless abundance. I am the flaming hand of God, now made manifest in the physical plane of earth. I am now ready, through every level of my consciousness, to release, let go, and transmute every frequency of vibration, every single electron of precious life energy I have ever released, in any existence or dimension that is expressing a pattern less than God's limitless flow of abundance, prosperity, opulence, and the supply of all good things and financial freedom. I am enveloped in an invincible force field of protection and eternal peace. I am able to review my life as an objective observer. I ask my God self to push to the surface of my conscious mind every experience I've ever had, both known and unknown, that is in any way preventing me from attaining prosperity. As these experiences begin to surface, I breathe in deeply. On the holy breath, I pierce into the gift of the violet light of forgiveness. I absorb the most powerful gift of forgiveness. I absorb the most powerful gift of forgiveness ever manifest in the history of time, and I breathe it in through and around my four lower vehicles and all of the energy surfacing and returning to me to be left free. The sacred violet light from the very heart of God, Goddess, instantly transmutes the negative thoughts, words, 
actions, feelings, beliefs, and memories that are blocking my eternal financial freedom. Every electron of energy is being transformed back into its original perfection. Blaze of violet flame. My God self now expands this activity of light and reaches back into the ages of time to magnetize every electron of energy stamped with my individual electronic pattern into the gift of the violet light of forgiveness. These records and memories surface effortlessly, and I am able to let them go without pain or fear. I feel the buoyant joy of freedom. I continue breathing in as I reach deeper into the sacred gift of the violet light, and I exhale in divine essence to flood the physical plane of earth. I affirm with a deep feeling and a true inner knowing. Say with me now. I am a force of the violet light of forgiveness greater than anything less than prosperity. And again, I am a force of the violet light of forgiveness greater than anything less than prosperity. I am a force of the violet light of forgiveness greater than anything less than prosperity. I now realize I am able to transmute to the power of the sacred gift, the mass consciousness of poverty, all records and memories of humanity's abuse of the substance of money flow into the violet flame of forgiveness under the direction of my God self in the entire company of heaven. Every electron of poverty consciousness that has ever been released by any part of life in any existence or dimension, both known and unknown, is surfacing for transmutation by the violet light of forgiveness. The transformation is taking place as each electron enters the violet light and is instantly transmuted. Cause Corey such record and memory back into the frequencies of prosperity and God's limitless abundance. And we say, I am a force of the violet light of forgiveness greater than anything less than prosperity. I am a force of the violet light of forgiveness greater than anything less than prosperity. I am a force of the violet light of forgiveness greater than anything less than prosperity. I am free. I am free. I am free. I am eternally financially free. It is done. And so it is. I ask to the presence of God, Goddess, pulsating in my heart, that this activity of light be maintained, eternally self-sustained, increased with my every breath daily and hourly, moment to moment, the maximum that cosmic law will allow. Until all life belonging to or serving the earth at this time is wholly ascended and free. Take a nice deep breath. I am now lifted up in consciousness even higher into the realms of perfection. And now higher and now higher. I pass over the highway of light that bridges heaven and earth. 
I now enter into the pure land of boundless wonder and infinite light that radiates in the atmosphere of earth that I know I am one with God. All the light beings evolving on earth are joining me in consciousness in this octave of pure joy. I know I am one with every part of life. As one unified voice, we send forth the clarion call into the universe, invoking our illumined brothers and sisters to come and help us in our moment of transformation. The cosmic tone of our unified voice reverberates through all dimensions, and the response comes from every corner of the cosmos. I see the luminous presence of legions of divine beings descending into the atmosphere of Earth. They take their strategic positions above me and begin forming a tremendous circle as they stand shoulder to shoulder. As one unified consciousness, one holy breath, one heartbeat, one energy and vibration of perfection, They breathe into their heart flames the golden ray of eternal peace and opulence from the very heart of God. This resplendent golden light contains within its holy vibration every frequency of God's abundance. It is the most glorious, scintillating color of gold I have ever seen. As these magnificent beings absorb the essence of opulence into their heart flames, They become blazing golden suns of light. They now, in perfect synchronicity, breathe the golden light into the center of the circle. As the golden rays of light pour forth from their heart centers into the center of the circle, the rays begin to merge, forming a brilliant golden sun. This sun is the matrix within which the cosmic force field of prosperity consciousness will form. The beings of light now magnetize the thought field, the thought, thought form of the force field of prosperity, which is held in the divine mind of God. The blueprint forms within the golden sun. It is a radiant, scintillating golden pyramid of light. And pulsating within its base is a shimmering golden lotus blossom. Within each pulsation of the lotus blossom, concentric circles of divine opulence are projected into the physical plane of Earth to bathe every particle of life evolving here in the glory of God's abundance. Unformed primal light substance is now magnetized into the etheric blueprint. And the golden pyramid of opulence is tangibly manifest. Its resplendent beauty pulsates continually in the atmosphere of Earth to be sustained through the unified efforts of the entire company of heaven until all life evolving here is wholly ascended and free. Now the light beings on earth prepare to be the open portals through which this divine gift of prosperity will manifest into the world of form. The flame of divinity blazing in every human heart begins expanding to envelop the four lower bodies of each awakened light being. I experience a beautiful blue flame blazing in my left brain hemisphere and the left side of my body. This is a masculine polarity of God qualified with divine will and power. I experience a beautiful pink flame 
lacing through my right brain hemisphere in the right side of my body. This is the feminine polarity of God quality, God qualified with divine love. As the masculine feminine polarities of God are balanced within me now, I experience rising up between them, the sunshine yellow flame of God, which is qualified with divine wisdom and illumination. I am now enveloped in the victorious threefold flame, and I am the expression of my true God self. From this consciousness of divinity, I magnetize into my heart center a golden ray of light from the tremendous pyramid of prosperity pulsating above me. As a ray of light merges with the spark of divinity in my heart, a miniature replica of the golden pyramid with the golden lotus blossom is formed. This creates a magnetic force field in my heart that enables me to draw the full momentum of blessings from this sacred pyramid into my everyday life experience. I breathe in deeply, and as I do, I pierce into the golden pyramid of light. I absorb the golden light of opulence pulsating from the lotus blossom. And as I exhale, a cascading fountain of golden light pours through my heart center into the physical plane of Earth. This sacred light of God's abundance floods the planet and flows into the hands of every light being, every activity of light, every conscious person who will in any way, shape, or form use this gift of prosperity to improve the quality of life on Earth. Through this gift, the substance of money becomes tangibly available and flows continually into the hands and use of every life stream organization, or activity that is receiving the ideas from the divine mind of God to restore this planet to her divine heritage, which is heaven on earth. The money flows easily and effortlessly into the tangible use of all on the planet who are operating from a consciousness of reverence for all life. As the golden light of prosperity reaches its furthest destination in the world of form, flooding every particle of life with financial sustenance, it begins its journey back to the source. First, it flows back to my heart flame, which sent it forth. As this sacred life flows back into my heart, it brings with it all the limitless flow of money and the God supply of all good things. And we affirm, my life now reflects the gift of permanent financial freedom. From this moment forth, everything I need to fulfill my divine plan is always available to me. The divine law of ask and you shall receive is instantly manifest. I feel the buoyancy and elation of my newfound freedom, and the entire company of heaven rejoices with me as I reclaim my divine birthright of abundance through prosperity consciousness. And we decree, I am, I am, I am, the eternally sustained manifestation of God's limitless supply of money and every good thing I require to assist me in my service to the light. 
now made manifest and sustained by holy grace. I am, I am, I am. The eternally sustained manifestation of God's limitless supply of money in every good thing I require to assist me in my service to the light, now made manifest and sustained by holy grace. I am, I am, I am the eternally sustained manifestation of God's limitless supply of money and every good thing I require to assist me in my service to the light, now made manifest and sustained by holy grace. It is done, and so it is. Take a nice deep breath as we now deep breathe in deeply and return our consciousness consciousness to the room. I become aware of my physical body and gently move my hands and feet. I am aware that I am a multidimensional being and I abide at once in both the pure land of boundless splendor and infinite light and the physical world of form on earth. With my every breath, I am continually an open portal for the full magnitude of the sacred gifts of prosperity to pour into the everyday lives of all the awakening light beings, all awakening members of humanity, and all activities of light on the planet. I recognize as I focus on this meditation and focus on building my prosperity thought form the sacred gifts of prosperity will build a momentum and effectiveness. Moment by moment, the transformation will occur and the new etheric blueprint of abundance for all life, embraced within the divine understanding of reverence, mutual respect, and a higher consciousness of always seeking the highest good for all concerned, will indeed become the order of the new cosmic day. And so we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We ask the company of heaven to seal this work. We ask Mother, Father, God to magnify, magnify, magnify it 999 billion times, 999 billion times in, order, in, divine, uh, in alignment with divine will and divine law. We ask that this be maintained and sustained, ever-expanding to perfection. And at this new moon, yesterday's new moon, we celebrate our prosperity consciousness and focus only on that which we desire to create, heaven on earth. So I thank you for your divine service here this afternoon. I thank you for being a part of these calls and a part of these meditations as we bring in the energies to truly anchor in the new golden age. And I invite you to further service each and every Sunday and Monday evening for the Ascension Meditation and Activation Calls. We start on Sundays at 8, Sunday and Monday night at 8.45 p.m. Eastern Time, 5.45 p.m. Pacific Time. We have about 25 minutes of greetings, and then we have a brief update from Taran Rama at 
9.30 Eastern, 6.30 Pacific Time. We begin our work in earnest with our different meditations and invocations and visualizations. I just thought today was the new moon. It was a good time to work on our prosperity consciousness. And so I wish you abundant blessings of every kind. Let me get you that phone number, the number that we are using on a regular basis is area code 480-660-2224. Again, it's 480-660-2224. The code is always the same. It's 946-7441-POUND. 946-7441-POUND. I have local numbers. I have international numbers. There is an app and another way to get on through the computer. So if you need that additional information, please contact me at Cheryl Croce, C-H-E-R-Y-L-C-R-O-C-I at AOL.com. I wish you a magnificent rest of the weekend and week ahead. And please plan on joining us Sunday and Monday. We want to thank you once again for your service. As I always thank Greenberg for her divine service and Tarn Rama for their service as well. And may abundance flow into the lives of one and all. Going to pass this abundant talking stick to you, Rainbird, with the violet energy, with the golden energy, that alchemical transformation, as well as the abundance of everything, all the rays, all the flames, all the gifts uh, in, in, that God has created, every blessing imaginable, as well as our fairy energy and our, all of the beings that help us throughout each and every call. So I pass the talking stick to you, Rainbird. Thank you for your patience, everybody. Much love and Thank gratitude. You for your divine service. We're so grateful for you. And you have a glorious afternoon with your family. And we will be doing the housekeeping now, as this is a listener-supported radio program. We count on all (laughs) y'all. So here's how we do it. Well, let me tell you first what we need. We need uh, around $300 a week, but it it varies. And um, we're catching up with the first week of May. We need $23.33 to complete the first week of May. The second week of May, um, we need $258.33. And it's a little less because we got a discount for some technical problems from last week. And for today, we need $289.50. So that totals, we're looking for $547.83 to come in. And so... It's all of us making it happen, so here's what we do. We go into our heart space and see what is ours to give, and then go to bbsradio.com. And there on the homepage, you'll see um, a link for the schedule. Click on that. You want to look for the BBS Radio Station 2 for this program, and you'll find that listing in Central Time at the 3.30 hour. As you find that, you see an icon there. As you click on the icon, it takes you directly to our account. 
uh, and the icons listed with the president, the true history of the fair and archaeological origin with Tara and Lana. <clears throat> so that's what that listen is like. That icon is the ticket, and you click on it, it takes you to our account where you can make a donation at any amount using your bank card. And then our programs on Thursday and Friday are at the 8 o'clock hour central. And you'll find that on the BBS radio station one schedule. And the Thursday show is titled The uh, Night at the Round Table with the Panel. You can click on that icon that takes you to our account there. And then on the Friday night show, the hard news on Friday nights with Tara and Rama. That, that icon will also takes you to our account. So there you go. Three different places to go. <laughs> And uh, lots of gratitude for your contributions to these programs in this way. And lots of gratitude to BBS Radio and to Tara and Rama for making it all happen here. We're so grateful we get to gather this way each week. And we're grateful for all of you for showing up in all the ways that you show up. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for taking that action and paying it forward like that. So, lots of gratitude. And we're also assisting Tara and Rama with their needs. <clears throat> in that, and they had one outstanding bill that was due last week, so it's overdue now and needs to be paid. That's $150.31 for the electric. And they also have outstanding uh, labor bill for their car. It's for labor and parts, and it's $1,400.96 for the spare tire. And uh, so as you can contribute for that bill, it would be real important to get their mechanic paid so that uh, he can go on with his life (laughs) in a good way. So here's how I make a donation to Tyron Lama. You want to go to the web address, which is rainbowroundtable.net. And there on the home page, click on the menu grid. And you'll see near the bottom of the list that drops down a donate link. Click on that. That takes you to Rama's PayPal account. Or the Rainbow Roundtable PayPal account. That's the commercial account where you can make a donation in any amount. And as you look on that page for donating, uh, to the Rainbow Roundtable, you can see the friends option is, um, there's a little heart there. So you click on that heart and it'll ask you to put in the email address of your friend and that friend being Rama and it, that address is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 9999 at hotmail.com. And then Either way is perfect. We're grateful for all your contributions. So as you're sending something, please let Rama know uh, what you said when you sent it. And that email for that message is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 99939 at comcast.net. And, um, so, so let them know what you said when you sent it, and also as you need it, the mailing address is as follows: 
Ram, R-A-M-D, Berkowitz, B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z, Post Office Box 280-280. And that is in Santa Cruz, New Mexico. The zip code there, 87567. And I'll say it again. Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567 is the zip. So thank you. 13 thank yous and honey in the heart. So much gratitude. Uh, and then I really have no other announcement. I know there's a GoFundMe account forthcoming. I don't have any information on it yet. <clears throat> but uh, we'll be looking for that because they'll also be looking for a new car. So let's pass this talking stick. You heard it best from Cheryl. It's got the violet flame and the golden flame and all the rays and, and gems and all kinds of angelic presence and lots of fairies are with it. And they're all working towards our abundance and prosperity. So they're hanging out on the stick and ready to roll for the evening. So greetings, Tara and Lama. Here comes his talking stick. Greetings. Greetings. All you commanders, eagles and angels. And thank you, Cheryl. Thank you, Cheryl. And thank you, Caroline. Ray, 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 Rainbird. <laughs> thank you, Rainbird. Happy New Moon in Taurus. Yes, and we had some magical blessings. Um, Rama was able to pay BBS Radio while you were talking, baby Esther, because we got something we didn't know was there till right. We were busy getting ready. Getting ready and cussing and discussing uh, <laughs> how loud our voices were, and so, um, so the first week has been paid as of during you talking, Rainbird. <laughs> thank you, thank, thank you. you so much, so much, and then, um, and so, what will be required? Wired because there was leftovers too. There was eighty six dollars and eighty nine cents left in there, so we subtracted it from the two hundred and thirty four fifty for last week because we got half off on Saturday. There was all kinds of stuff going on that day. So for last Sunday, we have a remainder past due May fourteenth. Last Sunday of of one hundred and forty seven dollars and sixty one cents, and then this Sunday tomorrow we will owe we will owe another two hundred and eighty nine dollars because that's the end of the third week. Bless us all. Inshallah. Major abundance and uh, what's the what's the website NFT. Dot NFTRewards dot biz dot biz forward slash Quran nine nine nine. There we go. Yeah. Write that down again. NFTRewards dot biz b i z forward slash Quran nine nine nine. And please check it out. 
You can sign up for free and then read the directions, what it out. And I believe we had a, we had a lovely gathering, uh, yesterday for an hour. And Micah went into detail and in explaining things. I don't know because we didn't look yet. Oh, but. I have the Zoom uh, replay. Okay, so then it's up there for everybody. Uh, I don't know, but I might I might have to send it out, and I'll send it to Penny. Okay, you can do that while this afternoon, yeah. right? Yes. Okay, so Rama will send the Zoom call we had yesterday. It's about an hour. For anybody that didn't know what was happening or wants to learn uh, a little more thoroughly how this thing works. And it is amazing because we're in the new dispensation right now. And yes, everybody gets to have enough of love, time, money, and air to breathe. No more of this other stuff. And uh, everybody gets paid every day. And it's very wonderful because it's the foundation of the new economy in the fifth dimensional consciousness. The way it works is that way. And cooperative, cooperatives. Um, yeah, I gotta go print out a the, the way that, uh, companies will be working is in cooperatives where everybody owns the company collectively. Everybody. Down. And you rotate jobs. I said this a long time ago. I used to say, no, somebody has to clean up after everything is the day is over. And you rotate like once a month, you know, somebody else is going to do that part. And then there's somebody that's working the cash register. Well, once a month you rotate that and somebody does that part different. Uh, and on there we go. And somebody does the books once a month and then somebody else does the books the next time. Every single person in the cooperative that has any kind of job whatsoever rotates their jobs and equally owns collectively the cooperative. This is the new age of Aquarius way of being. All right, what else? Rama didn't get a single thing, not a word. No, but the solar flares are the X-class kind, and there have been shortwave radio blackouts and regular radio blackouts, and I've tried to call people, and all circuits are busy now. Please try your call again later. <laughs> uh, six times I heard that. That was a message enough to tell me, leave it alone. And... I went and saw the horse today out by the farms, and five deer came to see me and the horse. So that was my exciting That's day. That's a first, isn't it? It's a first, yeah. Where the deers got to stay, be in the same corral with the horse, and the, or not corral, the, the, the... It was a field with a fence. A field with a fence. Yeah. And the horse was friendly and they were friendly and everybody was having a good time. Yeah. This is very significant change. Yes. It is. And the other thing is that starting Monday, Congress has four working days left to reach an agreement so we don't crash 
the debt ceiling. We don't crash the economy, which crashes the whole world's economy because everything's based on the dollar. And I did get a text message from Tom and Sweet Angelique, and they said Helios Investa, the solar logos are sending yellow, kind of sunshine yellow golden rays into Earth's atmosphere with all kinds of vitamins and minerals to help us with the ascension frequencies and... Did that just happen while Rainbird was talking to? It happened in the last four hours. I got that text. You just didn't see it. I just didn't see it till a little while ago. That's what happened while Rainbird was talking. Yeah. All right. But, you know, Helios and Vesta are the godparents of our son, so to speak. (laughs) Well, they're a, a twin flame couple. And they, um, they are the solar logos, the sun behind the sun, and which is between our sun Saul and our great central sun located in the Pleiades called El Sion. These are is, beings that don't have bodies, but they are just glowing spheres of light, like our sun. They, yeah, but El Sion is Mother Sekhmet's consort. Yeah, she, he is. Yes. That's a very, very amazing thing. And our Earth is a mother. Yes. Uh, uh, yes. And uh, the sky is the father. Father sky, mother Earth. And we learned that from the Native American tradition. Oh, and if there was a news, I could say, on the alternative kind today on a show called Count your opinion. Um, they were talking with the Palestinian reporter from Al Jazeera, and what this Palestinian reporter was talking about is how Israel is moving so far to the right. It's kind of paralleling what's going on over here with the mega characters and the GOP. And it's this woman was saying it's not a good thing. There are 65 laws on the books in Israel that discriminate against Palestinian people as their existence. You know, they would like to just put a big red X and say goodbye. Just kill them all. Yeah. Send the IDF out and go shoot them. Yeah, extermination. They did an extermination. Whatever you want to call it. They did an extermination in Iran today. There were three young men, and they had them jailed, and they just went in there uh, without any vote or any kind of they just exterminated them. They went into their jail cells and shot a bullet into their heads. And this is Mother's Turf. Yes, it is. And I passed the talking stick to her. Oh, my goodness. And uh, just in case people didn't hear this today, McCarthy does not have the votes within his own Republican Party to even default on the debt ceiling. 
He does not have the backing to do that. No, and the hologram, Joe Biden is going to use the 14th Amendment to pay our debt. I heard that numbers of times today. Say that again. The hologram, Joe Biden is going to use the 14th Amendment to pay the debt. Where it says the U.S. public debt shall not be questioned. Yeah. Oh, good. Mm. There we go. All right. Everything looking like a clear sailing, you know. All right. So let's start. What are you going to start with? This is Aurora Ray came out about an hour ago about the fifth dimension. Uh, The 5D new world has arrived. Expand your consciousness. And I can't say any more than that. (laughs) <laughs> the 5D New world has arrived uh, okay. Expand your consciousness You know As Yoda would say Feel with the force And it will talk to you Here we go Okay, how many minutes, honey? Uh, five minutes Oh, Almost six Okay, here we go you enter into 5D. Dear ones, when you wake up in the morning, take a moment to acknowledge that you are on your way to a new reality. You have been moving into this new reality for some time now. It's a reality that is emerging from the high frequency waves of light that are flooding the earth. These waves are dissolving the old matrix and creating something completely new, a vibrant, harmonious, joyful life for everyone. Why would you want to escape from this wonderful reality? It's simply about making a conscious choice to move into this new frequency of light, to move into the fifth dimension, to live in happiness, freedom, and harmony. The easiest way to move into a 5D reality is to focus on the positive changes that have occurred within you recently. These changes might be subtle, or they might be enormous, but they are all signs of a higher frequency emerging. Tune into these positive changes, and as you do so, you will naturally begin to attract more experiences that reflect this higher frequency. It's important not to look for this experience externally. If you do, It can create a sense of separation from what's unfolding inside of you. Instead, whenever possible, focus your attention on your heart. Focus on the fact that these positive changes have occurred within you, and they are a sign that a higher frequency is emerging in your life. There are many ways to embrace the new 5D reality. You can use your heart, your intuition, and your love, for example. Or you can tune into the higher vibration of music, Music is an expression of the soul, so it can help you connect with your own soul and feel more at home in the universe. The new world, the fifth dimension of consciousness and spirituality, has already and is already here. It has arrived on this planet. You are a part of it. The light that is being sent from the stars, the light that is being sent from the sun, is changing your DNA. It allows you to evolve into a higher level of spirituality and consciousness. You will wake up one morning and say, there is something different about me. And that 
will be the day you have arrived in the fifth dimension. You are a part of a new reality, a reality where you can create anything you want for yourself by thought alone, a reality where God and goddess are one. A reality where there is no separation between yourself and God, or between yourself and another person. A reality where all beings work together as one for the good of all concerned and for the good of planet Earth itself. A new reality is now available to you. I see the following two major changes taking place in this new reality. 1. The old world is no longer relevant to us and we do not need to be part of it anymore. It's going to stay there for a while, but we are no longer connected to it. Whether we want to or not, we are now moving into a new reality. It's the world that is inside our hearts and minds. Two, there will be many changes in our external reality as our inner reality begins manifesting externally. As you begin experiencing the energies of the new 5D frequency, a shift in consciousness will take place. For the first time, you'll be able to see and feel what's possible. You'll find yourself asking, why didn't I know this before? Actually, you have always known that it was possible to create a life filled with ease, love, and fulfillment. But now, because of the increased energy frequencies available to you, you can actually experience your own power as a creator. Let me share with you some of the ways life can be easier for you in the new 5D reality. You can now access, at any time, your deepest knowledge about how to create whatever it is that you desire or need. This means that no matter what happens in your outer world, there will be an inner sense of security, peace, and well-being available to you at all times. You don't have to be concerned about how or when this will happen. It will just happen as soon as you allow it to happen. You no longer need to feel anxious or unsure about anything. Instead, you can trust yourself completely. The key to this new reality is that you can begin to live in it now. You no longer have to wait for others to create the life of your dreams and desires. You can envision it, create it, and bring it into reality by living in this new frequency of consciousness and allowing it to flow through you and create miracles for you. Miracles that you never thought possible. As you do so, what occurs is that your life becomes a magical adventure and you become a magical being who has the ability to manifest all of your dreams onto the earth plane. We love you dearly. We are here with you. We are your family of light. Aho. This is a message to humanity from Aurora Ray, Ambassador of the Galactic Federation. It's raining again. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so let's see, Rama. Where is that thing? Richard Wolf. Yeah, oh, there it is. Okay. Just for the record, we're going to play Richard Wolf, and then we're going to do the next thing, and you'll all notice it, but here goes. This is uh, from last Tuesday. 
Oh, just a second here. Huh. Also, to the other parts of what has come to be called the global south. Wait a second. We're just going to work on something different. Not that one. Mm. Um, yeah, we're going to do this one here. friends to another edition of Economic Update, the weekly program devoted to the economic dimensions of our lives and those of our children. I'm your host, Richard Wolf. Today's program has a particular style to it. I want to talk with you about the emerging new world economic order. I do that because enough of the outlines of that new order Enough of the profiles of the key players are now clear that we can take a step back from the daily and weekly events we normally analyze to look at the uh, the larger picture for a moment. I almost said darker picture. It isn't all dark, but it is larger. It's an overview, if you like, of what's happening in the world, and I mean it to inform our understanding of all the details that we'll be talking about in the future programs uh, that we will be developing. And the way I'm going to do this today is organize it around four major developments that are happening at the same time, interacting with one another, but together give us a clear sense of where this new world economic order is coming. Okay, we begin. Over the last 30, 40, 50 years, depending on how you count, we have been involved in what is called neoliberal capitalism, or if you like, global capitalism. And here's really all that that meant. That coming out of the Great Depression and World War II, private-led capitalism had a new chance to rebuild after the war, to try to recoup after the Great Depression, and to have another growth spurt, which it did. Uh, By the 1970s, that growth spurt was beginning to have a problem keeping going. Not unusual in the history of capitalism as a system. It is growth spurt driven. But after the 1970s, the growth spurt took an unusual form, where before capitalism had spurted from New England to the Midwest, from the Midwest to the Far West, from all of those areas to the American South, now after the 1960s and 70s, capitalism's next growth spurt was out of the country, to Asia above all else, but also to the other parts of what has come to be called the Global South. More money was to be made there. Wages were much cheaper there. Environmental protection less there. And governments everywhere eager to provide jobs for their people and American corporations, just like European and Japanese corporations, eager to have access to cheaper labor, eager 
to have access to huge Asian markets. And so neoliberal globalization took hold. Huge numbers of jobs moved from the old centers of capitalism, Western Europe, North America, Japan, to the new dynamic centers, China, India, Brazil, and so on. A remarkable process of explosive growth. And in this situation, we find ourselves living with the results of that process. The first result, a hollowing out of the old working class in the old centers of capitalism. What do I mean? I mean that jobs left. The jobs that left first, say from the United States, were the highest paid. The unionized jobs, the factory jobs, where workers' struggles had built up decent livelihoods for people. That's where there was the most gain in profit if you could move that production to the cheap labor in other parts of the world. And so we lost our steel factories, our auto factories, our aluminum production, all of the basic industry of the country. Why? Because it was profitable for capitalists to move. And move they did. And the middle class fell apart. The jobs disappeared. From being a high-paid industrial worker, you became a low-paid greeter at Walmart, etc., etc. Inequality grew because the 10% who own all the shares made all the big profits, and the mass of the working class took a real hit because those in America had to compete with the cheaper labor in China, India, and we all know the result. And it had one more effect. It created capitalist powers outside of the United States, Europe, and Japan, who hadn't seen that before. China, above all, but also India, Brazil, and others emerging. So that the Western capitalist old centers had a dynamic new center competing with them. These were very new developments. One of the things provoked by it, an upsurge of militant labor movements. No surprise, they were reacting to the hard times working classes are facing, one after the other all over the world, even in China and India, because of the sudden transformation of agrarian people into industrial working classes, that always shapes people's lives, that always creates tension. And in the West, the disappearing job, the disappearing middle class, the disappearing standards of living, the disappearing opportunities for children. Capitalism in the West was under strain. Let me assure you that the rising militancy of the labor movement here in this country, led by service workers among the lowest paid, should be no surprise. The fact that the, France as a whole country is shut down by the demand of its working classes not to have the problems of your French capitalism taken out on them by taking away the pensions they've already paid for. 
or the Germans who last a month shut down the transportation system in their country as a protest against the inflation attacking the working class. And I'll come back to that. We had a shift from globalized neoliberal expansion to its opposite, retraction, countries fighting against one another, the United States shutting down, hobbling interactions with China. Economic nationalism replaced neoliberal globalization. Europe is caught between trying to figure out what to do. Should it still stay with the United States, doing a lot of its dirty work politically, as in Ukraine? Or is the future of Europe better with the news centers? That issue is being fought out in Europe, even if the media in this country pretend otherwise. And then there's the isolation of the United States. This is important to understand and brings us as a transition to another of the four factors besides the shift from neoliberal globalization to economic nationalism. We're also seeing the end of a century in which we were told and many of us believed that the great struggle was between the state as an owner-operator of enterprises and the private sector as the owner-operator of the enterprises that produce goods and services. We were told this was the struggle between capitalism and socialism. And we've learned that that was a terrible mistake. Capitalism has a private form and a state form. Just like slavery did. Just like feudalism did. Let me drive the point home. During slaveries around the world, were there private slavers? Masters who were private individuals running a business with slaves? Yes. Were there governments who had and operated slave enterprises? Yes. Nobody thinks that it wasn't slavery because the state was doing it alongside the private sector. Same in feudalism. We had state feudal, state lords with serfs, and private lords with serfs. And guess what? There's a pattern here. You start off typically with only the private, but the private gets itself into trouble and calls in the state. And so you get state slavery alongside private. Same thing, you get state feudalism alongside private. And guess what? When private capitalism gets into trouble, it calls in the state. That's why Mr. Trump had to wage uh, tariff wars and trade wars. And Mr. Biden is doing basically the same. You call in the state and the state then becomes a bigger and bigger factor. We're seeing the end of the big story of private versus state. Because, in fact, all the societies are combinations, mixtures of those. The United States has a bigger and bigger role for the state. The Republicans complain about it. The Democrats push it. But they all accept it, and they all understand it has to be done, even if they give speeches 
to the contrary on the 4th of July. The greatest example of the hybrid, the combination of private and state capitalist enterprises is the People's Republic of China. By capitalist, I mean the relationship between the employer and the employee. That's the issue. Socialism wants to change that relationship, make it more collective, make it more democratic, make it more a relation of equals, not a relation of hierarchical dominant subordinate. That's not what capitalism allows, neither in its private form nor in its state form. What China has showed is that you can get a more rapid rate of growth with the hybrid understanding its peculiarities than you can if it's all state, like Russia, Soviet Russia, or all private, more like the United States and the United Kingdom. So they've become the model. And the United States denounces China as it becomes more of a hybrid itself. If you can't beat them, you end up joining them. I think that's an important thing for us to understand. That in the new world order, we have economic nationalisms and a hybrid of state and private employer-employee capitalism. Whatever names they give themselves, whatever their ultimate goals may be, these are the realities that we face. And that means we also have to face the reality that an immense global working class is emerging. Shrinking and suffering in the West, explosively growing in the East and in the global South. And that's going to change everything as the capitalists in the West hunker down, worrying about how long they can survive, the emerging power of the capitalism of the East, the nationalism gripping them, and the state-private hybrid that is their way of coping with the time ahead. We've come to the end of the first half. In the second half of this program, I'm going to be talking about the two other key factors, the decline of the American empire and the big question, what comes next? Welcome back, friends, to the second half of today's economic update. We're talking about the emergence of a new world economy, a new order in the world economy. And in the first half, we spoke about the end of neoliberal globalization and the turn to economic nationalism. And we also spoke about the end of the stale old debate between private and state as if that were the issue. Now that we have a world composed of hybrids of mixtures of state and private that are all capitalist in the sense of that same old relationship between employer and employee. The next two out of these four defining qualities of the new world economy has to do with the American empire. 
And here the issue has to be faced squarely, although I understand and appreciate that that is difficult. The reality is that the American empire has peaked and is now declining. The data for this are overwhelming, as is the urgent tendency to deny it among people who find it frightening, which I understand. But I'm going to give you some of the signs to make sure we all understand it. I'll start with a small one and get larger as we go. The tiny Central American country of Honduras recently decided to end its diplomatic relationships with the island of Taiwan and recognize as China the mainland. There are about 170, 80 countries in the world, only a dozen of which still recognize Taiwan as a separate sovereign entity. A dozen of which the United States is one. A dozen. Even Honduras. Think a minute what this suggests. Then there was the announcement a very few weeks ago made by a smiling Chinese foreign minister that a reconciliation of sorts had been achieved between two traditional enemies in the Middle East, Iran on the one hand and Saudi Arabia on the other. Countries virtually at war, although by proxy often wrapped up in the Sunni versus Shiite struggles within Islam. They were going to establish embassies in each other's capitals. They were going to lay down the weapons of war and try to work together for a broader peace in the war-riven Middle East. The United States was absent. It has been trying to build peace in the Middle East, at least that's what we've been told, and couldn't do it. The Chinese, an emerging new power in the world, did it. The importance and the symbolism are only deniable if it's too hard to face what's going on. And then there are the mistakes in the Ukraine war. Let me count several of them for you. Mistake number one, that you can keep pushing the boundaries of NATO, an alliance of the West, traditionally opposed to the Soviet Union, you can push them more and more up against and even into Russia. Well, you can't. You're going to have pushback. It's not going to be what you thought it would be. You made a mistake. The second mistake was to imagine that this would be a war 
between Ukraine, aided by the collective West, and Russia alone. Let me remind you all, Russia is a country whose GDP is about one and a half trillion dollars. The United States and Western Europe, allied against Russia with Ukraine, have a combined GDP of about 32 trillion dollars. One and a half versus 32. Mistake. This is going to be easy. Russia will be crushed. Uh Uh-uh. Didn't happen. Isn't going to happen. Require way more involvement by the West than was ever understood. Now in the neighborhood of 100 to 150 billion dollars and counting. Escalation after escalation without the promised result. Turns out Russia has very powerful friends helping Russia be a much more important folk. These are too many mistakes that come out of a mentality that doesn't want to face that the world has changed. The vast majority of countries in the world, particularly those in the global south, are not particularly moved by the West's complaints about Russia. They're not taking sides in that conflict beyond an obligatory vote and an obligatory statement that peace would be better than war. The United States has been unable to marshal anything like a global consensus around its position. These are all signs of empire decline. If I had more time, I'd go into other signs. The challenges to the U.S. dollar as global currency. The fact that Iran and Saudi Arabia will provide the energy needs of China in the indefinite future on an extraordinary scale, shifting the balance of fossil fuel power for sure. The fourth and the final question about the new economic order is different because it's not a fact about what's happening. It's a question. What happens next? And these are the questions that are going to be the questions that we try to answer and how we try. By we, I mean the human race. How we try to answer these questions will shape the future we live in. Number one, will the declining American empire be replaced by a rising Chinese empire? That's the question. Just like the question at the end of the Roman or Greek or Persian or Ottoman or British empire was what empire comes next? Or another question. Will the question be that we create instead of another empire, that the human race grows up and says, we don't need and we don't want sequential empires. What we need and want is a multinational, multi 
polar world. We really need a world in which lots of different countries, larger, smaller, individual group, work out a livable arrangement for all on this planet with its limitations. That's a big question. The ecological movements are struggling from their end to answer it around nature and environment. But the political forces, the national forces, the economic realities are just as important in changing and shaping the questions and the answers. The economic growth of China in the last 40 years, that other part of neoliberal globalization that wasn't just about Western capitalists making a lot of money in the East, but what it would mean for the people of the East and by extension of the global South, we are now realizing the enormous economic power of the Chinese and the Indians and indeed all of those countries we label BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. A powerful new pole in world development. And the last question, and the, in the end, the most important one, that we will be answering and that will shape the future we see in the new world economy. And that question is, will the kinds of friction and change and difficulty of this phase of capitalist development, this moving of its own centers and the creation of new centers, will it have the effect of agitating, mobilizing, and educating a global working class. I end with that because I think it's the most important thing to leave with you. We have had 40 years of a traumatic change in the global capitalist system. That's what this program today has summarized or tried to. But along the way, we have really put the working classes of the world through the winger. In China, we took hundreds of millions of rural people and put them into urban coastal cities, transforming everything about their lives. Of course, there's going to be trauma and upset and reconfiguring ways of living and being. The working class of China is going through a transformation in decades that took Europeans centuries. Yeah, that will agitate your working class. But look also at the United States and Western Europe. For the last 40 years, the middle class wrecked. The inequality made much worse. Tiny group, two, four, six percent of super wealthy people and a mass of people having a harder and harder time. And then on top of it, an economic crash in 2020, a global pandemic that was horrid in its effects, and then an inflation, 
and now rising interest rates. All of that crammed into a historical short period of time. Of course, the French people are in the streets. They're always among the first to go there. And the German workers and the women in Iran and fill in the blank. There are many more. And the militancy of the labor movement rediscovered in this country. The question is, will this working class turmoil congeal into its own notion of where the future lies? Because if they do, they will be able not only to reshape the world economy as it emerges, but they might be able to finally realize their dream of an economic system that didn't position a tiny number of people at the top, making all the decisions, gathering the wealth, and shaping the world economy to their desire. It might finally mean a world economy shaped in the desire of what most of the people living in it would prefer. That, too, is on the horizon as a possibility. Thank you for your attention. And as always, I look forward to speaking with you again next week. Did you know another way you can support me? Okay. So now we're just going to jump in here. I just want to read real quick. Uh, Rama brought here the uh, Tanya Gabrielle's Astro Numerology Insights. And this is a bird burger. It is. Oh, my goodness. I think it was about a month or a month and a half ago we had three things in zero degrees. This is four. Mm. Oh, my God. We have reached a stunning, miraculous moment of zero-point energy where timelessness gifts us with transcendence, everything is nothing, Past and future fall away, and you are one with all. Today, Mars moved into zero degrees Leo, joining Jupiter at zero degrees Taurus, and Pluto at zero degrees Aquarius, and tomorrow the sun enters zero degrees Gemini. This is a glorious moment, an unprecedented and unprecedented as it involves the sun, our divine light, Jupiter, joy and blessings, Mars, energy and confidence, and Pluto, empowerment and transformation. So here Richard expound on this today, but let's get started now. What's this called, Rama? Hybrids in the Human Spirit with Kayla and Ethan Fox. Okay, this is two hours and eight minutes. All right, let's do this now. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Channel Revelations. We'll be together for the next couple of hours uh, discussing some interesting topics with the guides. I'm Ethan Fox, and I'm here with Michaela Sheldon. Mikhail is a trance channel, so she'll be in a trance state throughout this whole um, episode we're doing today. 
And um, but I don't discuss any of the questions with her beforehand, just because I like to make sure that her conscious mind doesn't in any way filter the information or uh, interfere with it in any way. Um, so uh, so let's just get started. I want to be ready. Okay, so um, I'd like to start with the Council of Light and anybody else who needs to be here, but um, because I want to touch on some topics we discussed last time. Um, and there were some interesting subjects that we talked about. For example, we talked about the, the, um, the whole Mars agenda and the different things connected to that. And there were a lot of things that, the, that you guys, that you shared that I didn't that I didn't even know personally. Uh, for example, you mentioned the the various cities around the world, like the Line City in the UAE, uh, which is uh, being developed to house millions of people in a very narrow line that stretches for I don't remember how many miles. But um, and you mentioned that these different things, these different projects like that, were preparing humanity to, to move off planet and to. Uh, so that the uh, the elites or the uh, human hybrids um, could have the planet to themselves, have Earth to themselves, meanwhile moving people to Mars in a much harsher environment. Um, what I found interesting was I actually looked up the website for the line and I found that uh, that they have several videos there and they have multiple cities that they're planning. And there actually is video, uh, you know, actual um, CGI and actual footage video they made as a commercial advertising each place where they actually showed a military Mars rover type of vehicle. And the other interesting thing is the cities, uh, this particular line is set in the middle of the desert, which is very much looks like a Mars environment. So it actually does look like they are preparing humanity to to get used to living in a confined space and in a harsh environment on all the other cities that they had planned were all in harsh remote environments that looked very much like they were set in the middle of Mars uh, with a very desolate environment. And so, so I was really fascinated to find that actual validation. And now from that context, all of these other projects like uh, Elon Musk's various projects like the Hyperloop and the brain chips and, uh, and the SpaceX program all kind of makes sense and fit in together. And even the the various ESG programs perhaps may be linked to that. So so I guess my question to start out with is, um, do you have any more to add to that that we might have missed last time that would help us to put these things in perspective? Well, it is important to note, and, and we know we've made this point in, in previous transmissions, is that it is not just a reflection of one activity and one timeline that you are experiencing because there have been times throughout your history as well as on the history of other planets where similar types of activities have taken place. So those that are carrying out these various roles, they are often, we know, motivated by various um, ego-driven um, intentions, uh, while at the same time, 
playing out roles that we believe are very important in the evolution of consciousness. So while we know it is uh, comforting to look at these scenarios from the ground level, uh, we always like to add in that they are a part of the combined story of the human collective's divine plan. In, in many respects, you are all orchestrating a part of this story. It does not necessarily mean that the story has the same ending. So that is what is most important to keep in mind. These human hybrids, I assume they're hybrid reptilian or is it some other hybrid? In many cases, yes. And, and if we go back to the history that we have explained in our past transmission, uh, we were very focused on a cataclysmic event that took place that brought reptilians to planet Earth. But they are not the only malevolent group of beings that have influence in the way of what you're experiencing. And and we want to always caveat this by saying we don't see the reptilian race as a malevolent force. And in fact, very much like humanity, uh, there are a spectrum of, of beings and varying consciousness and, and intentions. Uh, many reptilians still exist in harmony on other planets. Uh, but the ones who are here have taken on a certain likeness and characteristic to human bodies and those you would recognize as no different than yourselves. Yet at the same time, there are aspects of what you're asking us that are hard to clarify in, in a one answer um, response because we see influence from many other malevolent forces beyond the earth as well. And it is not to say it is only one. When we refer to reptilians, what we most want to explain is that the inability to feel empathy or emotion around decisions that are unnatural to the human spirit uh, becomes the forefront in, in terms of these genetic changes, meaning uh, those that are playing out these roles are, are doing so in a very mind-driven way where the manifestations that they are attempting to um, create are, are not coming from any resonant connection to other human beings uh, nor do they have the capability to allow the mind to work in concert with an entire sensory suite of, of other components of their structure. So, so our simple answer is yes, we see this as the majority of the influence, but there are other influences as well. Okay, so these individuals that are human-reptilian hybrid or whatever other collective you're referring to earlier are they are the ones that that are at the forefront let's say bill gates or klaus schwab or bill clinton or one of those individuals are they conscious of their hybrid nature or are they just they just carry on as if they're regular human beings the interesting thing to consider is that they are conscious of their reptilian nature, but are not defining it in the same way that you are. In, in other words, it is like a, a level of stature uh, or a specific lineage 
that has been present on planet Earth for a very long time that is powerful and to be revered uh, as opposed to something that is oriented to destruction or or causing harm uh, on the planet today. So so the the awareness varies in, in different humans at different levels of activity. And, and you've named a few people that will comment on as an example. Those that you've brought to our attention have come up in families where at a very young age, they have been taught certain things about themselves to hold a specific egoic stance, meaning what they are here to do is a continuation of what others have done before them and must be continued out through the entirety of their incarnation. And they look at this as a a mission uh, with great reverence, we should add. Uh, So it isn't the same mindset in those that are perhaps involved in very unconscious ways. And there are many on planet Earth today uh, who would revere their government just as much as those in government revere their families and these various lineages. It does not mean that they have a malevolent intent or even understand that they're participating to uh, with something this detrimental, we'll say, uh, to the entire planet. So to have a group of beings with this much power and influence, uh, it, it actually is uh, facilitated by many others at varying levels of consciousness and awareness that they are becoming more like them in choosing to be their support system. In more ancient times, um, there was a movement called Stoicism, and it was popularized by uh, a lot of people in ancient Rome uh, and, uh, and so on. And today, I find that a lot of these world leaders are very um, uh, promotional of the idea. In fact, um, it's a book that they, they've all read books in this topic. And Stoicism really has to do with, or at least in principle, it seems like the absence of emotion, although they tend to teach it more like um, managing your emotions. Um, is Stoicism part of that reptilian um, consciousness that is absent of emotion? It is a reflection of it, certainly. So if we look at this one teaching, what we are seeing is navigating an entire collective away from a part of them that would override reptilian influence. Because in order to feel, uh, you are going to have a reaction to that feeling and then attempt to somehow use it as an agent of creation. So if we have a great number of of souls who are focused only through the mind and not through the heart or through the emotional body, they are going to want uh, others to receive them in that way as well. Because in that way, they're building an army of or a network uh, of those who would be in, in servitude to them. This is how ultimately all of those that are doing things so massively uh, on planet Earth uh, are able to uh, continue, continue on because uh, there has to be not only um, acceptance of what is happening, but also uh, a feeling of support or contribution 
by those who are not involved at all. And, and this has gone on for decades. So, so we certainly see this as a teaching and a program used in multiple ways. How you're explaining it and how you're seeing it um, playing out on planet Earth today, we think is more of a program to, to manipulate humanity. But those who use it um, exclusively on an internal basis, uh, those that are perhaps we could say in the know, are strengthening uh, a genetic predisposition or potential to create through the mind, which is a very powerful part of, of your creative potential. So, so we want to um, add some detail here that we think is very important about how uh, reptilians uh, actually create and how that's so different from how humans were designed. So if we go back to the, the very beginning in the origins of Earth, um, Gaia as a consciousness was was calling out to other star systems and beings to support her in her desires and in her endeavors to have a race of beings that she could call her own. And many, many came, not only reptilians, but, but those of all races throughout the cosmos to seed a multidimensional genetic within this new race. So you contain, each of you uh, as a human being, contain uh, a part of that reptilian DNA and left to its own to evolve and become something stronger than it was meant to. It would focus you only in the mind because reptilians by their, their very design are shapeshifters. They have the visionary potential without any connection to empathy or emotion to create in very efficient ways. And, and they've evolved in this direction. Yet today, what we notice is there is a movement to activate that part of humans and to take humanity out of its original divine blueprint using all parts of itself. And even teachings, we might say, spiritually and otherwise, that are focusing humans on thought. Now, this isn't necessarily wrong, so, so we want to make sure we're very clear here. The mind is a powerful part of your entire structure. But left to its own and put in a higher place than the rest of your creative uh, capabilities, uh, it can become very destructive. And, and that's what you're seeing here is a part of your genetic, uh, a reptilian genetic predisposition uh, being strengthened to the degree that it becomes dominant. And that was never meant to be the case. So in those who know they are doing it, they are using it to their advantage. For those who are unaware, they are weakened by the result of those efforts and become less able to discern, uh, we believe, but especially lose an innate part of their soul's essence. Because if you are not running thought through emotion, you'll never know how to use your intuition as a guide. Uh, we see emotion as a very valuable frequency in how you're here to create. And if it's led astray from reality, meaning you are asked to not feel uh, about what's happening in front of you in each moment and only focus on what's possible in the future. You've truly lost touch of where creation takes place. And, and further, 
uh, we could explain that this is this is somewhat um, moving humans out of out of a quantum reality. Uh, and when we speak of quantum, we're talking about um, the the present moment in which all possibilities exist. Because the second you step out of that quantum space, you are now working with conditions. And those conditions will weaken your creative potential. With all the power and resources and money that these individuals have, and if they have a reptilian hybrid genetic, why is it with all their efforts, at least to my awareness, and I could be wrong, at least in the public um, information that we have, they don't seem to live any lifespans that are significantly longer than regular human beings. I mean, some of them do manage to push into the hundreds or early hundreds or late um, uh, centenarians, but uh, but they don't tend to live that much longer, which is not substantially more than regular humans. Why is that the case? Ultimately, we believe this is because they are running energy in very destructive and wasteful ways. Because if you are focused only on self and the accumulation of resources for the self, and you're running that energy prim- primarily through the mind and, and even focused on, on activities like ceremony um, and sacred circles that, that require a soul to raise its energy for a specific outcome, uh, it's a very wasteful type of, of living on a planet where constant rejuvenation is possible. So it's not to say that some of these individuals are not privy to um, some of the more advanced uh, technologies and uh, opportunities that have come to the planet to rejuvenate themselves. But but even in using these, there's still a weakened vibrational manifestation of a human. When we use the term hybrid we want to explain um, there are two different types of hybrids that uh, we notice. Uh, the true hybrid within you is a pure manifestation of your DNA. And this is possible for, for every human being today. If you were seated in the likeness of all races, then you are a genetic melting pot of all cosmic souls. And the possibility for you to rise to the occasion of that genetic truly exists. But to come here and only focus on a small subset of that DNA or uh, a very limited part of your genetic predisposition is always going to end up in a hybrid being who, who cannot realize their true power. And otherwise you can hybridize towards a more expansive manifestation of who you are able to become, or you could hybridize away from your power place and, and from where you're able to create. And and we might say we see that hybridizing away taking place across the board because many of you realize you have been taught that there are only three strands of DNA and the rest is junk. This is a reflection of what's actually going on deep within you because the more that you believe you are not free to explore all of the cosmic aspects of yourself, the less you will be working in the more energetic and powerful areas of your structure. Uh, so this is why we believe you're noticing what you do. 
to to utilize that very narrow scope of creative potential is going to drain a great deal of energy. You mentioned ceremonies and uh, other kinds of practices that they're doing that are draining their energy. Now, are you referring to what we discussed in a previous conversation about these um, secret Kabbalistic teachings that they're using? We are. Yes, that is one version uh, of what we are speaking of. Absolutely. Uh, but more so, it, it is not the ceremony necessarily. The ceremony is perhaps... Um, uh, something that's been cultivated around the flow of energy. Uh, I, I want to give you a very grounded example uh, before we explain it in a more um, collective state. Uh, many of you have been taught to focus on something that you want or need. And in raising your energy and focusing on that thing, you are attempting to manifest it into being. And while it can certainly happen this way because you do have the ability to focus on something energetically and receive it. It isn't the most um, conducive way to run energy. You have the potential within you to activate all that you are meant to receive from source. And this takes a more expansive uh, type of focus or viewpoint uh, than that one Thing that you need, whether it's a relationship or a car uh, or money. Um, we see many humans on planet Earth today using techniques to receive these things. But if you are all connected and one is running energy in a certain direction of their needs, there is going to somehow end up being an imbalance somewhere else in the collective or in the universe. And this isn't often taught. It's not because you're ultimately taking away the the um, inheritance uh, of another soul, but you're creating hierarchical vibrations when you are doing this, unbeknownst to yourself. So when we see a collective in a ceremony, uh, for example, focused on an intent that is malevolent, what's actually going on is an imbalance is beginning to take fashion and shape within them. And that's why these souls aren't actually living the easy lives that you believe. We know looking from afar, it may seem they have the, the money and the power and the glamour of lives that, that many of you would desire. But it is not easy to hold up that much energy and intention and constantly focus on it as a member of a collective that is moving the earth in the wrong direction. Because ultimately what you're going to find is something within yourself is going to become imbalanced. It's as if you were to imagine your soul moving from earth into the heavens and you might believe in sin. And as you receive the um, um, welcome of many angels have to account for that sin in some way and, and ask for forgiveness of a God. And that isn't necessarily the process. Um, the universe is always rebalancing energy. It takes place within us, it takes place within collectives, it takes place upon the earth, and it takes place within every dimension. So justice is not something that, that anyone is able to place upon someone else. We know this is a an idea that may be difficult for some to accept because you believe 
humans are doing wrong. And when they do wrong, they should be brought to justice. But justice is uh, an organic state of every human being as they move through the cosmos. So if something is being done to siphon resources from others or attention and energy is going out on on a malevolent focus, something within the life of that human being or within the the group uh, is going to come out of balance. And that is how justice actually takes place. So, so we do see some suffering going on within these individuals, which we know would surprise many today because as an outsider looking in, it would seem this is not the case. And what is the significance of children being involved in this? Because especially in recent years, we've been hearing a lot about young children being involved in these things. And nowadays there is a lot of um, uh, sexual types of information being brought into schools for young children and so on. It seems very inappropriate for children that age. So there appears to be something there. Is this part of those secret Kabbalistic teachings? Well, unfortunately, much of this goes back to ancient times when there were sacrifices of of animals or even children of those in prominent positions to certain gods. Uh, These themes continue to play out and have been a part of the teachings that we have spoken about. Um, It is as if this offering is going to bring a sense of power or more resource or support from from realms beyond the earth. But this sexuality piece is also coming, we'd say, from these beliefs that energy is power because sexual energy, while we know it is um, prioritized in, in physical bodies and on the physical earth is actually not the premise of creation. It is life force that is rising throughout the chakras that brings this orgasmic and blissful state, allowing you to manifest. But much of this life force rising has been changed and degraded in order to move it in a certain direction in an accelerated fashion. So so those who believe that life force is sexual energy in a very deliberate fashion are carrying out these deviant acts and perhaps making them very commonplace because it has an element of giving up your power. So When sexuality is channeled in the lower chakras, which we've spoken of in a previous transmission, it's very wasted. But energy always goes somewhere. So if a human soul isn't using that energy in a positive or or, um, impactful way, uh, it will be claimed by someone else. So when you're using tantric practice, for example, in in a sacred coupling situation, that energy is maintained within the combined auric field of the two who are agreeing to to raise it. And in so doing, um, the divine plans of both of those individuals become raised in their potential. And this is very well known. This um, can be seen in so many of your ancient cultures on Earth and even beyond in various star systems. But if you take that 
uh, premise of Tantra, uh, and you make it something physical, you lose the connection between the soul that is doing it and the one that they are doing it with. And that energy can be uh, siphoned and, and claimed. It is hard for us to explain how this happens, but, but imagine a ceremony um, being somewhat like a magnet, even creating a portal. This is what many of those who are involved in these ceremonies believe is that through sacrifice or through sexual activity, uh, energy is being created that is going to become a siphon or a draw as much as a focus for what is desired. Because those that are using these tools understand that if they put into the collective ideas or beliefs about sexuality not being sacred uh, or revered or important, uh, that energy will become so tangible that they will be able to use it as an agent and tool of, of their um, success, while at the same time weakening physical bodies, uh, weakening uh, the potential of every soul's divine plan, um, and truly um, changing the genetic potential as well, because your crystalline DNA, it relies upon these very sentient and telepathic unions, we believe, um, which have been degraded by these human hybrids you're speaking of. You mentioned numerous times that these um, reptilian hybrid beings uh originally came to Earth because they destroyed their own planet. It, it seems to me that what they're basically destroy, destroying the Earth as well. So they're doing the same thing they did on their own planet. So even if they manage to get human beings off of Earth and onto Mars and keep Earth to themselves, meanwhile, they're destroying Earth anyway. So they're going to end up right where they started. Well, what you must keep in mind is that a reptilian does not live well in the same environment that humans do. And we want to introduce the concept of density, which we know is a word that is defined in, in spiritual circles very differently. Uh, and it should be because there are different manifestations of density for different purpose. Uh, to us, density does not have to be negative, even though it can be. Density is a slower speed of vibration in which material focus becomes the norm. So the more that we are working in a dense environment, uh, the more we are apt to be focused in material and a slower speed of vibration, but especially to use the mind as a construct of creation, because there is no reason to utilize intuition or plasma uh, or have some type of channeled connection if all you are focused on is material. And many of the reptilians who have came, who have come from their various star systems uh, are used to working in denser environments. These are not necessarily negative environments, but they're conducive to the way that they create. So even though reptilians shapeshift uh, and they create through the mind, they are apt to use a more dense energy and vibration to do this in an accelerated fashion. 
which we know seems illogical, uh, but we want you to remember that on uh, a reptilian star system, there's been a great deal of evolution and change and energies have shifted. And, and this is why we believe you're seeing some of the activities play out. You, you believe that many of these beings are destroying the earth, but what they're attempting to create is a level of density such that uh, their ability to create becomes um, more enhanced, in other words, and yours becomes less enhanced. It's not to say that humans aren't meant to have a material experience, but it doesn't have to be masked by density. So so sometimes um, it's important to experience the vibrational understanding of density versus the material one. And, and many of you are aware of what we are speaking. Uh, you can step out of body uh, and you can sense the energies in a particular room or um, within another human. And you can tell right away uh, if those energies are vibrating similar to you, if they feel heavy or dense. Uh, and this is one of the ways that density manifests as well. It can be held in the energy field. Reptilians don't hold density in their energy fields. They like to exist in environments where density accelerates their creative process. So if you carry a great deal of density as humans and you're existing in denser environments, it's going to um, weaken your creative potential and spirit while accelerating that of another. And we want to also um, explain that sometimes what evolved races have learned is that the best way to upgrade a reality is to somehow self-destruct what it was before. Not that this is the right decision for every race and every collective in every circumstance, but if you are a master manifester uh, and you know you have the ability to change realities very quickly, um, it would be easier for you to destroy what exists in the now, especially if it's a material existence, and change it from that now into what you believe it should be. So we think that's part of the process as well. It isn't that these people um, will necessarily have a difficult time because they have more resources and, and knowledge at their disposal. Uh, in fact, they are using very insightful um, uh, grid keepers and Akashic record readers to navigate the changes on the earth. Um, ancient tribes, for example, uh, always had their oracle or the the gatekeeper and grid worker that understood the relationship of what was changing within the earth and could help them to nomadically move between one location and another for the benefit of the whole. Uh, and we see this as a part of perhaps the, the orchestration of what's going on. Uh, that is why the entire earth is not being focused on at once, but key areas perhaps are being focused on one at a time. So are you saying that, um, for example, genetically modified foods and the chemtrails they're spraying, the various frequencies like 5G uh, and, and so on, all the toxins in our environment through so many different avenues, 
are all of these, uh, obviously there are many different things going on. The companies are making money and maybe there, uh, there's an agenda also to harm the health of humanity and to reduce our, as you mentioned, our ability to function optimally. But are all of these also being done to create a denser environment so that the reptilians can thrive? Meanwhile, humans are suppressed. They are all done a bit differently and for a different purpose. So the one very important manifestation we want to speak to is geoengineering, because certainly this is a parallel to what we are speaking to in terms of a dense environment. Uh, you may believe that toxins are being sprayed in the air simply to uh, erode human health. And and there are some who have that intention or agenda, but but from a very high level um, influence. What's happening is creating a field. Uh, and that field is a dense vibration of energy. So it has dual effect. Uh, it is going to lower consciousness, but it is also going to make it easier for those who are quote unquote in power or, or wanting to change the earth in the direction of their desires, uh, access to things that humans have no idea um, they are are actually taking advantage of. Uh, but if we look at the food, for example, we have um, alluded to the idea that you are in the midst of a genetic war. And that genetic warfare is coming back from experiences that you've had both on Earth as well as in other star systems. While certainly the toxins in food are a density, and, and will create density in the body, they're not necessarily having the same effect on the planet unless you look at the physicality of the soil. And we believe physicality is a part of this conversation because if the physical earth and physical bodies are brought into a, a more dense and lower vibration, uh, the energy that's used to create is far less available not because it's not there, but because it isn't humans' first um, choice of of how to change what's happening to them in opposition of their desires. We see so many today who struggle, for example, with physical pain or disease. And while the energy field could have a huge impact on that reality, uh, there are steps taken that are matching the physical nature of the disease or, or of the pain. And we think that is um, um, a huge part of what's taking place here is somewhat keeping humans in a vicious cycle of physicality and only focused on physicality, while those that are using these various ceremonies and techniques strengthen their non-physical and vibrational power. Uh, it is the same with the water. But these beings, many of them, uh, we're speaking of the reptilian human hybrids, they also have a different detoxification potential than you do. And it's not to say that it's working on all of them. So, so keep in mind, there's a belief about uh, status and a certain lineage that puts them above and beyond human beings. Uh -huh. But what many of them do not realize is that whether they like it or not, they are becoming more human and you are becoming more reptilian. So 
both parties are genetically changing each other due to close proximity. And that means that there are very mm, highly plasmic detoxification protocols that uh, their ancient ancestors and elders could tap into aren't necessarily working as well as they believe they are on planet Earth. And, and we think some of them are coming to this realization, which is why there's been an acceleration of this timeline. In other words, if they aren't able to sustain and maintain their more, quote unquote, believed to be enlightened state of being, uh, things must move in the direction of their desires quicker to sustain their life on planet Earth. Is this the 2030 various agendas like Build Back Better or the World Economic Forum's plan, or is it a much longer time frame? No, this is exactly what we're referring to. And, and we believe that many of you are noticing this. It's, it's becoming very accelerated. And that acceleration is due to a perhaps sense of we, we we loosely use the term defeat, uh, not to say they believe that they are not creating what they desire, but they're feeling within themselves that the clock is ticking because what they are doing is, to answer your question, inevitably going to have an effect on their bodies, despite who they believe themselves to be. So at 2030, they've assessed that they have to draw the line because afterwards, these um, adverse things like geoengineering are, are affecting them beyond what they can control. Well, there are many considerations, and certainly that is one. Uh, keep in mind that these these groups of human hybrids are are working with oracles, for example, uh, astrologers, for example those that have the ability to reach out into the future and predict certain models. And and that's what the timing of many of these events has been based upon. But also there is a, a constant uh, observation of how much energy humans are tapping into and, and how much of their creative power they have accessed and how much sovereignty is actually coming to the surface. And, and that is also uh, putting them on a timeline trajectory where they believe that they're going to have to do something in a much more accelerated fashion uh, than what they first imagined. Because uh, inevitably, uh, the more that humanity awakens and begins to feel uh, through their emotional bodies, um, the sadness uh, and, and the anger uh, of all that has taken place that they have not realized, uh, the less they will be willing to agree. And that agreement is needed. Uh, that agreement is needed energetically. It's needed physically. And if it is not received, then those that are here will not be able to transition. Now, from my perspective, and I could be incorrect in this assumption, we've discussed this topic before, and that based on the cycles, I think after 2030, 2033, things should start to improve a little bit. Um, but as we discussed before, just because the cycles don't support certain containers of experience doesn't mean that the people in the world who are trying to do those things will stop doing it. They may pull back a little bit because they can't succeed as much. But, uh, obviously if they're using oracles and uh, channels and astrologers, just like we are, they must also see that potential. Um, so why bother 
pushing so hard if there's a pretty good chance they're going to fail? Because they have seen these potentials before and they have changed the way in which they do things. So what you are asking us is something we agree with, meaning there can still be activities that continue on if there is a knowing that the astrological influences are going to shift as long as you also shift the way the activities are being manifested. Uh, in, in many respects, we have seen this in so many different timelines where humans have assumed that it is a more enlightened period, but deep beneath the surface, things were happening in preparation for a turn of events. Now, we don't say this to dishearten humans who are listening to this broadcast today because you are far different beings than you were in so many of these past experiences. Historically, uh, what we have noticed is when these periods of turbulence and chaos take place, uh, great rises in consciousness are possible. But that doesn't always mean that consciousness is going to override the influence of those who understand where it is heading. So humans need to understand that personal choice and how they live their lives at the ground level is going to be just as important, if not more, than working the energetic or spiritual considerations of what they now perceive. Because ultimately what you are going for is a balance of both. The density that has been created here is a very thick film. Energetically, it is, and physically, it is manifested in different belief systems and activities and body types. Uh, and, and defaulting to things even in your DNA, karmically and otherwise, that, that need not repeated, need not be repeated. But we have hope because what we see is many have stopped in their tracks to observe what is happening through a higher perspective and are calculating living completely different lives than what they have done before. And we're talking about very massive and radical shifts in lifestyle. And this is, if this is being calculated and, and considered and, and talked about, then you must imagine all of the potential timelines that have already become a potential reality uh, based on that energy. Um, so we don't concern necessarily about activities going on during periods of enlightenment unless the enlightenment itself hasn't happened. And we know your next question might be, where is it in terms of that threshold? We are very hopeful because we see so much emotion and, and we know that emotion on planet Earth is not being channeled extremely constructively or consciously. But what it's telling us is a connection between the mind and the emotional body is very possible and coming back into being. And that is going to put humans in a very beneficial position to do the things that we are speaking of. Do we think it's possible to totally rid the planet of any karmic influence or darkness? Not necessarily, but how that darkness or karma presents itself is what you have control over, meaning you will always be challenged by something. Uh, history is going to come back around because 
you are here to work with that energy and alchemize it into something far better and, and new. But it doesn't mean that reptilian human hybrids have to be causing a great deal of suffering on planet Earth. Uh, what you must do is go inward and decide what it is each one of you wants for the future of humanity and live that future right now. And in so doing, when the past comes back around, it's going to meet such a completely different vibration that it will be very hard for it to to hold on. So the darkness then becomes simple contrast. Uh, it becomes something to play with. It becomes a choice between what I prefer and, and what I do not prefer as opposed to suffering, violence, and darkness. You've mentioned on many occasions that this started in an ancient apocalyptic period. In the last conversation we had, we talked about an apocalyptic period that happened about 10,000 to 12,000 years ago in our linear time. You're referring to a different apocalyptic period, much older, right? We are. However, it is actually very similar in scope, but directed in a much compact and smaller area. So this was a radiant energy disruption that took place in the reptilian star system that caused a great genetic decline and and dismantling of the union of those beings. And many of them um, took up residence or or home in, in other locations, but came to Earth because they knew of the um, precious resource that human DNA was, uh, the the codes of their own history and lineage had been seeded within human beings. So to attempt to strengthen themselves on a planet that is not suited well for their survival, they began to tap into human DNA and attempt to use it as a tool or an agent of their survival. Is it even possible to quantify it? a time when that would have occurred linearly or is it was it a completely different dimensional experience we are actually speaking of the origins of earth so we are going back to the very beginning in which the the earth herself um, was present but had no life upon her this is the time in which the seeding actually took place so in the midst of that seeding there were several different events that led reptilians to the planet and, and orchestrated a great change in the timeline. But this was not only the arrival of reptilians and the cataclysm and their intention. Uh, what you have to consider is that their presence in mass on planet Earth became somewhat of a genetic change by its very nature because the close proximity of any race to another is going to end up in a, the idea is to end up in an improved situation, but unfortunately in this case, uh, a more weakened genetic. Um, It's not to say that there were not reptilians already uh, on planet earth and even beyond that time period, uh, carrying out um, missions of teaching uh, and healing, for example. Uh, And you will see evidence of these beings in, in very, um, Um, ancient uh, renderings, for example, uh, where they were enlightened uh, and revered. But the ones who are 
or were causing the most problem um, took up resonance in the inner earth. And, and many of them are still there. Now, some of them have become more oriented to the surface uh, and have hybridized and have reflected themselves in different families and lineages. Uh, but there are some who are not involved in any of this, who are still weakened in their genetic and struggling very much. So so it is across the board, we would say, and, and certainly it is hard for us to make a, a numerical estimation as to the number of years because we're working with a more uh, multidimensional and vibrational sense of time uh, than you are. And even before the origins of Earth, many of you were uh, together on similar planets in alternate universes and already planning some of the events that are taking place in the here and now. So so we we hesitate to actually um, estimate that. And we also know you're moving in and out of states of linear time, which means um, there have been periods where Earth has been in a completely different dimension where time did not exist. And you want to count those as years when, in fact, um, that time, while very important to history and all that has been created, uh, wasn't necessarily existing in the same form of time that you calculate today. You're referring to some ancient reptilians that were more enlightened. Is this a reference to, I know there are many um, civilizations around the world, some ancient, some that still exist to this day, that refer to having had reptilian gods that they worshipped. Um, and also there's a Naga in India that have been written about and uh, and many sculptures built of them were these enlightened beings or were they the more malevolent kind? Yes, certainly the more enlightened ones who were revered teachers of various techniques of breath and, and kundalini and healing, for example. Um, and, and they were here at the very beginning of time and still remain. So, you are witnessing right now how reptilians have become uh, more human in their manifestation. Uh, the enlightened teachers that you encounter on your planet today, uh, many of them have a connection and a strong lineage with those who were more enlightened uh, and vice versa uh, in terms of those you have identified as causing so many harmful issues uh, on planet Earth. So it is certainly across the board. However, we do want to mention that those who came, the, the, the reptilians who came um, with a sense of love and peace in their hearts uh, were truly part of an ordained collective that focused on Earth because it was a new planet and, and would um, be home to a new race. And there was a strong intention to teach all of the things that had been learned in these various star systems and locations, which are many, um, simply because the structure that humans were offered was so um, uh, such a, a, a an awestruck uh, observation uh, by those off planet, meaning. It was new and it was something that was hybridizing on its own in a way of uh, power and strength beyond what many of you realize today. 
And these life teachers came not to change it or to teach humans how to be, but to observe how it was working so beneficially and offer things that could enhance it. Uh, and that's important to note because many would believe that teachings were passed down in very rigid ways that had to be followed in order to ascend or to achieve certain things. When in fact, many of these more benevolent and loving reptilians were in such awe and, and wonder over the, the beauty and the power of the human collective that they wanted to understand it better. And they wanted to lend their own perspectives as to how to enhance it beyond because they had done this themselves um, in reptilian star systems across the cosmos. Uh, many of these enlightened beings have been focused on achieving the, the highest vibrational and uh, highest genetic potential state that was possible. And that was done through many of the techniques of, of breath and meditation uh, and yoga, for example, that are being brought to light today. You've mentioned that the reptilians are becoming more human-like and that they're a human hybrid. The Naga are depicted in ancient sculptures as being more like a snake. Was was that original enlightened race of reptilians more like a snake and the humanoid aspect was just the hybrid element that came into play? It was, but, but keep in mind that this isn't necessarily the way that they appear elsewhere because any time that uh, a being that exists in another dimension decides to come to a planet that is different, uh, they will go through a complete and total transformation. It is alchemy on all levels. So light begins to alchemize into form to match the vibrations of the planet that they are choosing and the race that they will work with. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it is going to match uh, the way that race appears. If we look at the vision of the snake, ultimately what we are seeing is the manifestation of life force. And this is why uh, the snake has been used in uh, many ancient cultures to represent the, the Kundalini rising, which is the power of life force moving through the central channel to the top of the crown and, and an enlightened soul uh, expressing it in a very conscious way. Uh, these beings were masters of kundalini and creating using life force. But remember, we do say that they have a focus on the mind that doesn't necessarily make them ill compassionate to uh, other humans. The enlightened mind or the higher mind is a more compassionate type of expression. Uh, it does not uh, hold any semblance of separation or ego. Um, but what we are saying is the snake image and those beings, while certainly there are still snakes on planet Earth today, has morphed and, and somewhat changed. And we see humanoid uh, reptilian hybrids who are a, a manifestation of these, these enlightened teachers. They're, they're simply coming back in a new way. Uh, we've used this analogy before and we will, we will use it again. Um, when a, when a seed is planted in the soil, it will become what it was always meant to be. It may not look exactly like the seeds within its lineage, but it will produce similar fruit. 
And this is what happens on any planet or any star, regardless of the beings who are there. Uh, in close proximity, you will harmonize with each other and your genetics will blend and you will become uh, both the, the strongest parts and the weakest parts uh, of all of the, that combined energy. And this happens with every other being who has ever come to this planet uh, and beyond. Uh, so when we say this, keep in mind that we are speaking of those who are more human in their presentation. We know you understand that there are, are non-physical entities of light that exist in mass on planet Earth. And many uh, today have the ability to see those and recognize uh, who they are and, and others do not. Um, so in many ancient societies, um, such as even Atlantis or Egypt, the serpent symbology is used. Um, many of the pharaohs, for example, like uh, Akhenaten, who we've spoken about in previous conversations, had a snake symbology on their headdress. Uh, Nefertiti, same thing. Um, is this a some sort of a connection or a reflection because uh, Akhenaten in particular was uh, focused very much on the one true God, as we've discussed before. What's the connection there? Are they somehow connected to this reptilian race that was more enlightened or, uh, or what was that? Not necessarily. And, and we want to point out that while the original reptilians, those who were light teachers, took the image of the snake, it is not exclusive uh, to this race, meaning there were others that appeared also in this form or in a semi-form. But when we see the image of the snake, we must always refer to the, the common thread amongst these teachers and beings, which was a focus on life force rising or kundalini. And the one true God is an expression of or experience of that state of orgasmic bliss. If we want to connect to the God within us, we must have the ability to work with all of the energy we have been offered. And that was one of the beliefs of Akhenaten and many others in that time. It was creation using all of the senses and all of the energy distributed throughout the body as opposed to the focus on something else outside or, or the mind having to put to effort uh, some activity. So when you see the, the Kundalini today in the image of the snake, it, it has been expressed for many different purposes and has been taken out of context uh, as well. Uh, we know, of course, even in medicine and healing practices today, uh, you can see the image of the snake. And if we take this back to its its origins, we are looking at the power of the energy to overcome and heal any physical bodily restriction. But it is taken today to seem something quite different. Uh, and we could go on and on, uh, of course, because throughout history, there are so many examples uh, of how this symbol has been representative of these things or a degradation of them, we believe, as well. And a lot of the ancient gods and goddesses and so on, um, 
There's also, and even in Egyptian pharaohs, for example, and even in the modern-day United States, there's the use of the eagle or some sort of a, a bird-like figure. And, uh, and even in ancient Indian teachings, there were gods who apparently were more bird-like and were very uh, aggressive and warlike uh, individuals. And there are some stories of this uh, Garuda or bird type of god that was constantly warring with a serpent uh, god or a group of people. Um, what is the story there? Was there was one malevolent and the other benevolent, or what was the dynamic behind that relationship? Well, remember, this has changed greatly, dependent upon the timeline uh, that you are in. So to say it is representative of one story in every account uh, wouldn't take into consideration that these images have been taken and used for completely different things. However, when you are referring to the bird beings, we relate to the Anunnaki and, and again, have to... Um, caveat that the Anunnaki as a race are not all malevolent. In fact, very enlightened and benevolent Anunnaki existed on the earth in various forms. However, the war between the two has a great deal to do with a, a timeline that the Anunnaki are well known for which is focused on physical resource and coming to planet earth to harvest that resource and, and to use it for their own benefit. Because if human souls, uh, those who were not hybrids, who were not revered as such, were to learn how to raise the Kundalini, they would not have been available to such physical tasks, uh, nor separation or manipulation in the way that many of these Anunnaki desired. Um, and there were uh, various religions actually formed around these different viewpoints having to do with praying perhaps to the land or to the muscle or, or to the body as opposed to what exists within and all around it. Uh, this even goes beyond the time period of, of Anunnaki for, or uh, uh, Akhenaten, for example. Um, so keep in mind that the war between the two is always representing a, a common thread of division between physical and non-physical, between body and spirit, uh, between a focus of work versus a, a focus of connection, um, unification versus singularity or hierarchy. Um, and it wasn't necessarily meant to appear this way because remember some of the Anunnaki were very revered ancient masters and light teachers. So for those Anunnaki to come and attempt to fool, uh, humans into doing something for them as opposed to the greater good, uh, they had to also appear themselves as if they were these benevolent gods. Okay, so just to clarify, so Garuda, as in the ancient Indian myths, was referencing an Anunnaki being then? Correct. Okay, and the serpents they were fighting against, 
were they the reptilian, more enlightened race or just some other group? Or is it just an illustration, as you said, purely just a an illustration of those two forces? It is an illustration of those two forces, but it's certainly there were differences of opinion expressing uniquely in different timelines between these two belief systems and and focus of being. Um, in other words, the more enlightened reptilians and those who were focused on Kundalini uh, believed in the evolution of spirit and the ascension of the one true God within each soul, where the other was determined to somehow um, diminish that or hide it uh, because it would motivate those who could tap into it to also become gods themselves. So what does it mean when we see, such as in the case of King Tutankhamun's headdress, where he's got both the eagle or the bird and the serpent at the same time? What we are seeing here is a desire for unity and the, um, we'll say, um, resolution uh, of all of that energy. And this is what he often stood for, because it is important for those who are in power to hold no judgment or to see the good within the bad, meaning everything has God existent within it. And if we are able to tap into the energy of that God and direct it towards the um, highest and most um, reverent possibilities, uh, we will all benefit to have the images of all of those is to assume that you are um, not necessarily above how they manifest, but open to speaking with unifying and using all of the various aspects of it positively. Um, in other words, this was somewhat of a peace position or uh, a way of um, extending peace among all civilizations for a ruler who ultimately wanted to achieve that in his lifetime. Well, there are a lot of um, symbolism in various seals that are used by world nations, including uh, the United States, as an example, that have the symbology embedded in them. And for example, even in South America, there are depictions of eagle or Garuda type bird beings from ancient times um, that have um, a snake in its mouth or in its claws. In the United States dollar, for example, we use the eagle and there's a ribbon that is going through its claws, which is sort of a stylized version of the serpent that you see in many other symbology that's a bit more literal. And America means um, feathered serpent. So was there an intentional reason behind the naming and these illustrations, even in modern times in our the United States, for example, but also applies to many other countries? Or what was the reasoning behind that? So, so several different reasons here. And, and keep in mind that any ancient symbology is, is a powerful um, uh, symbol on its own, meaning all of the history of it exists within its vision. So if we are using something like this, we may be attempting to uh, activate it as, as, a, as a sigil or um, uh, encode it with an intention. 
that can actually uh, distract the original intention that it was actually for. Um, that leans into many of the ceremonies that we have been speaking of previously, um, using certain symbols and words and, and ceremonies from the past and calling in these assumed to be very powerful gods, either degrading their energy such that those who would tap into it could use it for benefit or heightening it in, in some very obvious way. Now, keep in mind that the the very creation of a physical dollar has its foothold in this reptilian consciousness. So if we are looking back at the very beginning of time, you would see a certain level of exchange of goods and services, and especially those in, in various tribes taking on their original soul's destiny to contribute in a very unique and powerful way. But to put something material in its place is to take away a soul's sovereignty. Because if the currency doesn't exist within us, if the energy isn't as valuable as something tangible in the physical world, um, then all of a sudden we become lost. And the symbology that you see in the, many of these occasions, it, it, it is telling the story of that. Uh, to have an, a bird-like image carrying a snake within its claws is to show the dominance and, and even the destruction of a, a thought school that was so powerful in early days that those in power know would take away their um, ability to harness this power and this energy. Uh, the physical dollar is a true manifestation of that. So across the board throughout history, what you're seeing is a reminder of and even the vibration of uh, the combined understanding of those who are using it and putting it in a certain format that matches their intentions. Okay, let me just string a few ideas together that we discussed so I can make sure that I'm on the right track. So the the bird beings that we see, that we see even modern times as an eagle, are representing the Anunnaki, and certainly there's a lot of symbology from ancient times of the Anunnaki being depicted that way. So... Um, and it appears, and even in our previous conversation, the Anunnaki are from uh, Nibiru, and they are a very advanced race, 12th dimensional, but they seem to have uh, very advanced technology, but they seem to have a warring sort of tendency. And, and even this uh, god Garuda that's spoken of in ancient Indian myths um, was a very warring type of being. Uh, so is it fair to say that, for example, the United States using the eagle is sort of representing or carrying forward that idea of being a more aggressive, warlike nation? Certainly we agree with what you're saying, but, but also consider that war is the ultimate form of separation. So if we are separating the masses through war, 
what we are doing is we are eroding the the godlike power of unification or a sense of love, which was the foundation upon which many of those representing the snake were uh, used to or or using on a daily basis. So so we agree with what you're saying, but but what we're um, suggesting is that at its very core, it is a symbol of separation, separation through violence, perhaps, or separation through war. Uh, but we also want to bring back the um, explanation of the Anunnaki timeline uh, that we spoke of, where humans were being used to provide a certain level of resource to those in power. Um, and we know many of you associate that timeline with gold, which is one of the very uh, important elements that came to be harvested on planet Earth. When you look at the physical dollar today, there is an illusion, perhaps, that it is meant to be backed by gold. And, and at times it was. Uh, but the whole mentality of this dates back to that timeline, because in order for something to be backed by gold, the gold has to come from somewhere. And often what you are seeing is it is the whole of humanity that is either providing that gold to those that are holding it or are somehow made slaves in order to produce it. So so you're seeing here the blending of many themes uh, coming through one image. So you're so you're saying that's an interesting concept. I never really considered that before. That the gold backing of the U.S. dollar originally until 1971 was an illusion or a an illustration carrying back to ancient times of how the Anunnaki used humans to mine for gold. Correct. And so I have some understanding of what they were mining the gold for. And certainly there are some spiritual implications for gold. But what was their purpose behind it? Mainly what we have observed in, in Anunnaki beings is that gold is not necessarily of material value so much as it is to support life force. So, so those in many, um, ancient star systems have used gold and the property of gold in, in many different forms. It has manifested as a part of their own beingness. It is manifested as a part of a planet or a star system, and it has been the the um, alchemized energy utilized to create other things. Uh, in other words, it has been of great value because it is able to restore and um, amplify the energy field. Uh, it is able to be utilized to actually accelerate vibration and time travel. It has been used as a agent and modality for um, teleconnecting and accessing the Akashic records uh, and also understanding how to work with the resonance of heart because uh, gold itself is a contributor to uh, connection and resonance. And of course, this resonance and connection, it can be a powerful thing to maneuver if you know what you're doing. Uh, gold itself, though, on planet Earth has become something quite different uh, than it was used for in those times. 
Now, the author, Zechariah Sitchin, wrote a lot of books about the Anunnaki, and he interpreted um, his translations to suggest that the Anunnaki had destroyed their atmosphere, and so they were coming here to use gold as a means of dispersing in their atmospheres. Is that true, or was that just a misinterpretation? We agree with what he's saying, but we want you to think about your own Earth's atmosphere and how every living thing is a part of it. So so the prana of nature, uh, the inhale and the exhale of every human is contributing to a field that you are all working within. And if a planet is no longer able to hold or carry its its energy field, uh, what better way to heal or assimilate it than to first strengthen the beings upon it so such that the field itself can be generated from those beings. So so what we observe um, as this history is is perhaps a bit different. Uh, it may seem to be a technological um, or an advanced technological type of element, but it is a, a natural basis of raising life force and connecting those who are in separation. So if we use it in this way, what we will find is we will enhance uh, anything that we come in contact with, and we can even stabilize an entire planet. Now, for human beings to use gold today, in what form is it optimal? Just um, regular gold or colloidal gold, or or does it have to be in an uh, like an ormus state gold, uh, like white powder gold? We prefer the powder state, and and this is why. Uh, the powder state is more resonant with what those in ancient times used, and it is more able to be utilized efficiently by the body than other forms that have been perhaps uh, processed. And there are many different benefits today. Yet what we do want, yet what we do want you to remember is you're in an environment that has caused a great deal of destruction. So. Using gold on a regular basis is is first going to support your body's ability to move into a higher dimension. And this has many benefits. We're speaking about the vibration, meaning you have just accelerated your vibration to such a degree that you are stepping into a new dimension and and also uh, has the ability to change the resonance of heart, uh, which of and by itself is a huge benefit as well connecting you to other beings who are very similar in nature to yourself. But in a higher dimension, in a higher vibration, your body begins to work completely differently. So anything that is of a lower vibration now has to be removed or somehow is displaced. And that's what we love about gold is many of you are going to great lengths to detoxify. And we see you using herbal remedies, for example, in various processes. And we agree that these are working well in, in many cases. But what gold does is it brings in a, a vibration that easily displaces um, what is lower than it. And, and this can be like a magnet that is clearing your field of things that have um, not even been recognized yet by humanity that are causing a great deal of disturbance. But the power of of powder gold is actually in the connection between the heart and the mind, meaning you may begin to have very astral experiences, seeing on a higher plane of reality, and bringing um, all of those visions and and all of that information 
with you into your physical reality, being able to integrate it easily and change it in a very calm, we'll say, and peaceful way. It does have this advantage as well. And, and this is why many revered it in very difficult experiences, like a cataclysm that perhaps the Anunnaki would have experienced. Uh, there would be a lot of stress and a great deal of fear, and that would contribute to the timeline because we know that when we are in fear, we are enhancing any timeline of fear simply because we are a vibrational match to it. Uh, but using a powder gold and alchemy and alchemized uh, powder gold, for example, um, works on the mind and the heart in such a way that it brings in compassion. Uh, it brings in a sense of stability where we do not have to um, default to our emotions and allow them to override um, what we now know is possible, in other words. So so ultimately, it's a shift in consciousness. And and again, we'll use um, an example that we brought into the, the previous transmission. Um, a bandwidth of consciousness is essentially um, a measurement of available information. So we are going for the most expansive bandwidth of consciousness that we are able to achieve in the form that we've chosen, because when we achieve it, we have insights to things that others do not, or we're able to access information that others do not. Well, white powder gold being an alchemical substance being prepared by somebody who's performing the actual task to prepare it It is often made from sea salt, for example, and other substances and doesn't necessarily use gold itself. But is that still producing the same gold that you're referring to? When you're looking at gold, what you're actually looking at is, is a, is a combined vibration of the elemental properties that have formed it. And when you are looking at the Ormus that you are speaking of that is made from sea salt, for example, and various elements, uh, it is very similar in nature. Through the intention of the alchemist, there is a merging of valuable energies that are going to become something of greater use. And so this is why we equate it to the value of gold, for example. And certainly it is not um, to say that taking a form of liquid gold that is colloidal is negative in nature. What we do concern about, however, is a, a heating process or electromagnetic fields that often weaken its potency. So in an, in an alchemy situation, you often have someone enlightened enough to know that those things should never come in contact with the result. And, and as such, it is a more pure manifestation of what the body requires. Well, you mentioned the intention of the alchemist, uh, considering if you were to purchase uh, white powder gold from an alchemist who we don't know, doesn't the intention or state of being of the alchemist influence? Because rather than dealing with colloidal gold, we're dealing with an alchemical product, which is absorbing the spiritual potential and intention of the individual and the environment that it's made in, right? Certainly it will. The, the alchemist is of utmost importance because who they are, uh, what their process is, what their intentions are, are going to become a part of that 
manifestation. Um, and, and we know that seems fearful to some because why would you want to include any vibration of the one who is creating something if it is not the highest possible? And this is why we think many of you notice such huge variations in experiences when you move between one brand of uh, powder gold to another, because what you're actually experiencing and tapping into is that that difference in individuals. But also keep in mind that a colloidal gold, it goes through a manufacturing process oftentimes, and there are many hands that touch the bottle. So it is no different, actually, other than the fact that those who are involved in the process may not be as intentional, uh, but their energy nonetheless is a part of it. And, and we could expand this out to everything that you come in contact with. Um, the ancient alchemists went through such a lengthy process of preparation themselves before they would ever uh, create something through their alchemy that there was no concern of any distortion. Uh, but we know today on planet Earth, that is a quite different reality. So how do you know what to choose if you're going to obtain white pot or gold from somebody? Um, and how do you know if it's actually producing a positive result versus any harm? Is it even possible for it to produce harm? Well, there are many ways to discern. Um, and, and of course, there are considerations of harm, but we don't see them as extremely negligent. In other words, with everything that you are considering on planet Earth today, like GMO foods and uh, toxified air and water, um, if we look at the realm of alchemy and powder gold, we see very little malevolence there uh, compared to all the things you're interfacing on with on a daily basis. Uh, yet, we know each of you are individuals. And so um, discerning is going to require you to not only use whatever is uniquely attuned to your own intuition, uh, but also a keen eye and some um, um, observation of the alchemists themselves. Uh, how is it that they present themselves as a part of the product? Uh, what is their lineage and, and training in this? And especially um, who has used it before and, and how long have they been doing this? Because we think the more experienced alchemists are actually being changed by the alchemy itself, meaning those who are doing the process uh, receive the benefit of becoming more enlightened, even though they might not be physically ingesting the product. Um, and, and this we see across the board in many different situations. So we don't concern that you would be ultimately harmed, although we can say that if you are a very enlightened soul and the alchemist you choose has a lesser level of enlightenment, um, it may not be um, such a perfect match or um, the potency of the product may not do its good work in a way that you expect. And does quantity matter? Um, picking more produces a better result? This is an individual decision, um, not in every situation, because if the powder gold is going to enhance our telepathy uh, and our consciousness, for example, uh, depending on where that is at before we begin ingesting it, there may be periods of transition or integration that we have to go through. Uh, remember, anything that is shifting consciousness is apt to change our reality just as quickly. 
And it can be uncomfortable, we know, at times to go through these processes. So it will be important for each individual to to judge their experiences and to um, stay in the present moment with how they are feeling and to uh, time appropriately their doses to what they are attempting to achieve. And for us, we believe it's always important when you make these choices to ingest anything uh, to have a clear intention on what you are attempting to achieve because it can take you in many directions. So whatever your intention is, is something that you're able to measure against on a daily basis and then decide as to how much more, how much little uh, or less you should be ingesting. So going back to earlier conversation, were the Anunnaki using white powdered gold then? Were they harvesting white powdered gold or were they harvesting real gold? This was more a material manifestation of the element gold and the property which is existent within your earth. And so their goal wasn't for enlightenment. They were using it for other reasons. Not necessarily for enlightenment, but to create a field. Okay. Now, in many um, uh, people who have researched the subject area and in ancient mythology, the various Greek gods, uh, Roman gods, such as Zeus and Thor and so on, Zeus, let's say, as an example, is represented by the eagle. And... Um, so is are the Greek gods more related to the Anunnaki? Are they referencing the Anunnaki race? Some of them are because these gods, while they seem very mystical uh, and unearthly, are actually hybrids as well. And some of them existed in a more human and physical form and, and others were uh, experienced on ships. For example, so so we do see some Anunnaki lineage uh, referring to what you are speaking to, but not in every circumstance. In other words, um, this time period represents so many different cosmic orientations. It was a period in, of time in which the veil was very thin and those on Earth were communicating with beings beyond who would come to the earth for a period of time or would exist in the astral, but yet appear to those who were still on earth and take certain characteristics. And uh, there's also some stories about the sea peoples who conquered Egypt and other parts of the world and some suggestions of the sea peoples who apparently used a snake symbolism, were coming from an Atlantean civilization. Is that true? This is true. Uh, the Atlanteans, many of them, uh, especially near and around the fall, uh, took a journey to pilgrimage to other areas of the earth and, and along the way transformed themselves. But we want to go into the period uh, just before and during the fall of Atlantis that many speak of because decisions were made at this time for souls to go in multiple directions and reincarnate in different forms. In today's world, you speak of a soul walk-in. 
sometimes a human believes that they are completely renewed because an aspect of their soul or a completely different soul uh, piece has walked in and taken over their psyche and their their physicality and their spirit. And while this is possible in varying degrees, um, what happened in Atlantis was an immediate desire for those who are there to reincarnate and come back as something else. And and some of them decided to become what you're calling the the, the C hybrids. Um, many of them still exist today. We often refer to the dolphin matrix as the Atlantean hybrids, for example. So, so certainly the image of the snake is showing the relationship to a more enlightened civilization where similar principles were practiced, uh, raising the Kundalini, understanding its power and the connection to prime creator. Um, these images were utilized to rec- to uh, recognize each other uh, as well, meaning Anunnaki, or, sorry, uh, meaning uh, Atlanteans had taken so many different forms uh, that to recognize each other in the new locations and timelines that they have they had chosen uh, would use this symbology. So this was around the time of the fall of Atlantis, around twelve thousand years ago, ten to twelve thousand years ago. There's some, there's not a lot of information about the origins of Atlantis, but some theories state that it was a 50,000 year old civilization that collapsed about 10 to 12,000 years ago. Um, some go into the hundreds of thousands of years. Um, how, if you can, and I know it's a different dimension that we're dealing with that in the height of Atlantis, but Is there any way to quantify that or was it a different timeline that we can't really quite comprehend? The origins of Atlantis began in Sirius. So many of the Syrians uh, of the time had left that star system and were called to come to Earth to create a model of it on a new planet. There had been so much advancement and, and there was so much excitement about the varying practices and technologies and and what was being created that it was meant to be shared, um, not only here on Earth, but but also on other star systems. So so the Atlantean concepts and Atlantean civilization that many of you study today did not only exist on Earth. Uh, It has existed in different forms throughout the cosmos. So if we date back that 50,000 linear years, for example, we're not necessarily seeing uh, a physical civilization that was completely formed on Earth just yet. Uh, What we're seeing more is a movement towards the Earth with all of these techniques and teachings from a, a, a group of enlightened Syrians who were very excited to become earthly. And so that's why we see a lot of the Syrian symbology around the world. For example, the pyramids in Egypt are uh, apparently lined up uh, as the stars of Sirius. Um, and uh, so in the very beginnings of Atlantis on Earth, and this is, there's not a lot of information, but um, there are some writings of a 
a very enlightened group of people who were leading Atlantis um, and who went by the name of Nikal, at least that's the information we have. Did these beings actually exist? And were they at the beginning of Atlantis? Syrian elders, yes, who had come to not oversee in a governmental fashion necessarily, but to guide and to mentor those who would not only come from Sirius, but come from different directions on the earth to be a part of something uh, so miraculous and exciting. Now, these beings were ageless and timeless. So many of them um, existed from the very beginning of that civilization and remained uh, throughout its time all the way up until the fall, which uh, we know is something very um, foreign to those on planet Earth today who understand that birth and death happen within a certain age range. Uh, but these souls had been um, focused for such a long period of time on losing resistance to the body or to any manifestation of it that they had become, um, we'll say, in a, in a self-generating way, renewed uh, through their breath. And this was one of the teachings uh, of the early civilization Atlantis was to use the breath as an agent of rejuvenation such that the body could become the most heightened technology possible. Um, many of these beings uh, after the fall continued into civilizations like Egypt, for example, and are recognized as some of the leaders and teachers there. So Nicole, were from, from Sirius. And, and so I assume that's an entirely different group than the Naga we discussed earlier, who were an enlightened race of reptilian beings. Yes, correct. Okay. So if the sea peoples were descendants of Atlantis and they use the snake symbology, where does that all mix in if they're using a symbology that represents this reptilian race? Those that were present at the time were not yet necessarily in contact with the reptilians who were teaching these practices of Kundalini, but because of their telepathic abilities and nature, were tuning in to that energy. And it's it's hard to imagine we know that you could be taught something from beyond the veil, because so many of you today are taking classes and studying from teachers, and there is a direct relationship uh, between what you learn in a book and what you apply in your physical lives. But in many of these civilizations, that was not necessarily the case. These beings were highly advanced and able to tune in not only to information in the Akashic records, but things that were happening elsewhere. So conversations were had, uh, information was shared, practices were shared, and there was a certain reverence and honoring of those in other dimensions and civilizations that were carrying out similar practices to the Syrians uh, because the Syrians are um, a very uh, loving collective. They accept every race for their differences and cherish those differences. So, so what they want is not necessarily a division between teachings or religions, 
what they want is to blend them all and to show thanks and appreciation for those who are sharing things that are slightly different than their own and finding some commonality uh, between them all to the benefit of those they are guiding. And a lot of um, discoveries of remains of ancient peoples now, um, not as far back as we're talking right now, but but many of them are shown to be Caucasian with blue eyes, red hair, for example. What do the Syrians have a physical form we'd recognize today or, or more humanoid or was it different? Some of the original ones were far more humanoid, although the blue tint of the eye is a common characteristic. And, and this is why. There's somewhat of a crystalline vibration that many of these original elders uh, carried. And it was something that was achieved over many, many lifetimes of, of working not only with the breath, but with the DNA. And the eye itself, the, the iris and the retina of the eye was completely different than the one that you're working with today. And, and that's why we can officially call these beings seers. Uh, they were not exclusively using the third eye or the inner eye to see and understand energy, but they were able to translate it very deliberately and directly uh, through uh, a manifestation of a very advanced type of eyesight. Uh, but certainly the, the white skin and the color of hair is a lineage that dates back to Sirius, but not exclusively. Um, we do even see some Anunnaki, for example, holding those certain characteristics. So there are dominant genetics that um, will manifest on planet Earth in a lighter and brighter skin. And it has nothing to do with the hue or the physicality of, of the skin itself. It is more a translation of energy. And, and this is not to assume that uh, skin of a darker color is a lower vibration. Uh, it was just the way that many of these hybrids um, uh, uh, transitioned and alchemized uh, onto a planet that even at this time was quite different than the one that you're standing on today. Um, and, and of course, um, even back in these days, uh, there were beings coming in from planets beyond Sirius, such as Lyra, for example, and, and even um, Andromeda. And the different vibrations that they brought uh, would bring different colors of hair and skin into being. So um, we agree that there is a Syrian connection here. Uh, we're simply allowing for uh, the deviation from that in others, which is certainly the case. Well, today we have a lot of different uh, races on, on Earth, different skin colors and eye colors and so on. Um, so did that exist in the original seeding of Earth or did those the same races we see today? Um, in addition to these other ones that you're mentioning, or was it a Caucasian race originally? So the intention of seeding a human DNA genetic in multiple races is to manifest and, and hybridize a race of diversity. And, and that's ultimately what you are seeing today. So, so we speak so much about the degradation of the DNA, but this is where we want to acknowledge its beauty because 
in, in every occasion of difference in skin color or eye color or hair, uh, what you are seeing is a representation of your cosmic families uh, in real time. But if we go back to the very beginning of time and the entry of these hybrids, um, we do see a dominant propensity towards that in almost um, elusive, transparent color of the skin. Um, keep in mind that some of the original humans were still hybrids. So what you call human today is very different from what was human at the beginning of time. Uh, these beginning, um, uh, these original hybrids uh, that were moving into a more human form took on the likeness and the characteristics uh, dominantly of the beings who were there. And eventually that began to change. And even the hybrids who came to the planet changed themselves. So um, it's, it's easy to think that um, a Pleiadian comes to planet Earth and moves through a portal and manifests in a specific form slightly different than humans and stays in that form throughout its, its period of time on the Earth. But that isn't necessarily the case because these are multidimensional beings who hold that multidimensionality on a physical planet, meaning they have a greater propensity to change and to shapeshift uh, be, beyond what humans do in a very quick fashion. So where did all of the racist uh, philosophies and ideas that have that seem to be in many ways ancestral, they have repeated throughout history and probably ancient history, I'm not sure, but still perpetuate to this day. It seems to switch from race to race to race, but at the moment, the racism is against Caucasian people, but at other times it has been uh, different groups of people. So what's the origin of that idea? Well, you believe there is an origins in history that will make sense. And what we actually see is in every occasion, this has been seeded. So if we go back to our discussion about the physical dollar and how its very premise is to create a hierarchy and a separation and a weakening of a collective race, many other um, um, timelines and and um, intentions exist to keep this level of separation and what you called war uh, alive. And so it isn't one being that we can blame. However, we do see that in some civilizations, um, certain colors of beings were revered and represented hybrids or cosmic families. So to have a specific color skin, for example, was to associate with a Syrian or to have a specific color hair or eyes was to associate with uh, an Andromedan. And in and of itself, uh, a human being is working with a certain amount of, of ego and sense of judgment. And unfortunately, uh, this has been suppressed within humans, this idea of, of ego, which is not an outer reflection of who you are. It's meant to be an extension of the love that you are able to find within the self. So everything here on planet Earth, unfortunately, has been taken out of context of the norm and what it was meant to be. And today, what you're experiencing is is simply another iteration of these timelines returning again 
and causing humans great suffering to somehow point fingers and create war and, and separation, which is ultimately weakening all of you. Let me put in context um, our discussion from a previous time when we talked about the fallen angels and how um, they were uh, in very ancient times. And today we lump them all together as Satan or Satanism. And what, if it's even possible to explain, where in the timeline does, does that event occur? Because we just talked about Atlanteans and, and, um, uh, Syrians and all of these people going back to tens of thousands of years and beyond. Did the fallen angels happen at the very beginning of the Earth's creation or was it in one of these other storylines? Well, you are assuming that there is only one time period in which fallen angels were present, but we have seen fallen angels as a part of your history across the board, meaning from the origins to where you stand today. But essentially, these fallen angels are intergalactic souls who are here to cause trouble or have an agenda that is supporting something about the Earth's experience that isn't taking it in the most uh, beneficial direction. But perhaps what you're asking us is when was the first organization of all of these beings as one uh, focused upon to harness its energy. And while we want to give you a date, um, we do see several different um, ancient timelines and experiences where this took place in a slightly different way. Uh, you've asked us about Akhenaten, for example, and especially in this time, what we have noticed is intergalactic beings, ETs, that had a specific show of power uh, were prayed to and focused on for those on planet Earth who were suffering and wanting to achieve things. Um, and this was taken advantage of and, and became sort of a twisted religion in which those were um, those who were um, weakened in their power were, were giving it away. Uh, readily and easily through ceremony and, and sacred words um, to to those who were glad to take it. Uh, and this has gone on uh, in, in many different iterations and generations. And in fact, even today, uh, we think it still exists. What, what you call Satanism is a conglomeration of many people who actually believe that they are the gods that you should be praying to and and as such are putting themselves in those positions. So so it isn't just the actual fallen angels that are important to acknowledge as a part of this Satanist collective, but the humans who have actually become an extension of them in their own physical way uh, and are somehow siphoning the power of that to benefit themselves. So the fallen angels weren't Anunnaki or Syrian or any of the races we've discussed so far. They're well, there are many who refer to the Anunnaki as fallen angels, certainly. So if we are going back in time, uh, we agree that this is a very prominent one of, of focus uh, because there are periods uh, where the Anunnaki came and had a certain agenda in mind that caused destruction to the planet and, and to humans. Um, but beyond that, uh, we want to make the point that this theme, this common theme, uh, it still exists today. It is just um, 
perhaps evolved into something completely different. When you say it exists today and there are many instances where fallen angels occurred, so you're saying there was only not one group of fallen angels, it's just happened throughout time and it and there are still fallen angels coming today? Malevolent beings are teaching others in the way of siphoning energy, whether it's coming from the Kabbalah, as we have mentioned previously, or there are channeled encounters with those who are deemed powerful that are actually dark and teaching ceremonies and other techniques to to harness that energy. Certainly, uh, that still goes on today. And how do we counteract those those efforts or so that we can live more in alignment and not be affected by those efforts? Well, anything that you believe is more powerful than you is robbing you of power. So the only solution is to not give your power away to things that you know are causing problems for yourself or for humanity. There is a, a phrase that many of you use on planet Earth today about taking back your power. But in and of itself, this phrase is often leading people down the path of giving it away because it is a forceful type of representation in the world where boundaries are set and there is separation and there is a reclaimed ego. Uh, but that is not at all the way. Um, the more that you are able to unify and live in a state of self-love, uh, the less you will have to worry about what's going on beyond that, because you are supporting everything that takes place in a collective way, meaning you are either giving your energy away to something that will take it and use it to your detriment, or you are replenishing and channeling it towards something very good in your life. So we might say that the foundation of any change uh, on a global scale when it comes to Satanism or fallen angels is to utilize all of your energy and power to create a life that brings yourself and others joy. And when you do, they uh, they are not receiving your power and are no longer powerful uh, in the sense that they have always been. Well, the idea of creating a life that brings joy, I think everybody has a different concept of what that is, right? And, and we discussed before when an individual is in alignment with their soul's um, intention for being here, whatever resources they need are provided. So whether it's money or people or other things so that they can live that fulfilling life. But a lot of people I think in society today are following a path that may not be in proper alignment. Last time we talked about the three, six, nine and utilizing that as a means of getting back into alignment. So how does somebody, let's say right now, especially in the world today and in this decade ahead, it's probably going to be a little bit difficult people who are struggling and uh, in various different ways, I'm sure financially to a great extent, how do they get into a state of joy in their life, especially if they feel like the resources aren't available for them to create that? To, to truly manifest your soul's highest joy and to be in alignment with a plan that is curated to do this, you must understand uh, and see clearly all of the things that are standing in its way. Uh, and most of these things have been put in the way by choice, not consciously, but unconsciously. So you're asking us about the 369 
uh, equation or geometry or pattern. And, and to us, from a, a purely technological standpoint, the 369 creates an unbroken channel of energy to the universe, a, a higher connection through which consciousness must expand. And if that is true and you're using any type of, of meditative practice, uh, what you're going to begin to experience is an expansion of that consciousness. And the first thing that a, a soul experiences when their consciousness expands uh, are all of the things that are unnaturally accepted by them, yet diminishes their power. So it can be defeating at first, we know, to have this experience of awakened consciousness, but you must um, take note and, and be mindful that you are only at the very beginning stages of walking into a new perspective of what brings you joy and how to achieve it than you have had your entire life. But let's talk to the, to speak to the 369 for a moment since you've injected it in the conversation, because essentially what you are seeing in these numbers is a sacred geometric organization. It's symmetry and it is also synchronicity. So any form of breath work um, or we'll say visualization of geometries with this pattern uh, is going to bring more of that into your life, meaning what you do and what you um, into it are going to have logical connections, which we know is not typically the case on planet Earth today. Um, souls have a spiritual side and they have a physical side and they're very separate of each other. Uh, there are meditations being had and information being garnered and brought in. And then a soul is going into another timeline and living its life in a completely opposite way. So that fusion of the two is possible when geometries come into symmetry. Uh, everything in our life tends to fit together and we make an effort to see where it connects. But in addition to this, um, the synchronicity of life, which is the ultimate manifestation of higher consciousness, comes into being. And this is where many who are striving for messages from their guides, for example, will fall to their knees in grace because they will begin to see that the guidance exists all around them. And, and ultimately, this is for the highest uh, and best potentials to ground into your experience. They don't come automatically with a 369 environment uh, or connection. They must be chosen by you and, and followed through by you. But life becomes easier because what you seeded within your divine plan and what exists within your soul essence truly must be met by everything in the outer world to create it as such. Uh, it is just that many of you are not seeing the availability of those options in front of you, uh, nor have the reminder of how important they are within you. So we hope that answers your question. Yes, I'd like to conclude by just sort of clarifying the actual mathematics, if it's even relevant, and or numerology of the structure of the 369, because it, it seems um, a little bit intangible. I mean, is it enough for us to put a flower of life on the wall uh, in our house, or 
when we're talking about 369, the actual mathematics of it, are we talking about the 369 uh, magic square that's sort of a checkerboard shape with all the numbers in every row and column and diagonals adding up to uh, 369, 3 plus 6 plus 9, for example, which ends up being equaling 9. Um, or rather, um, 6 plus 3 is 9, plus 9 is 18, which is 9, right? So all the so you can create a magic square where every row, column, and diagonal is ends up being nine. Is 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 that the mechanical element of it? Is do we use that, or do we just simply use an artistic representation like the Flower of Life? Well, making it so mechanical and mind-driven is not the point. Even though we know throughout history there have been those that have translated these numbers into to various formats to use in their own practices. Having the flower of life image in your home, for example, we believe is very beneficial because what you do not see is that that pattern moves through your space to infinity. So it is a very powerful pattern that, that by and of itself will begin to generate energy differently within your space. And because of that, it must affect you. Um, but interaction with it deliberately actually strengthens that potential. So gazing upon it, for example, uh, begins to have an impact on your own energy field and the, the, the inner connection that you're making to the outer. It is not of and by itself going to change your reality because keep in mind, um, you're living in a very dense period of time where, where physical steps are, are always going to be required. But deep within you, that 369 pattern exists. It is evidenced in, evidenced in a pyramid, for example, and those that would step into the pyramid would find uh, complete alignment and resonance with the universe and walk out a changed person. You have the ability to do the same within yourself. If you are practicing uh, a, a tantric breath, for example, raising the kundalini from the, the powerhouse centers in the sacral and root and channeling that upward, uh, what you will find is you will resonate in this pattern yourself. Um, so we don't think it's necessarily difficult. And we think there's also some room and space for you to create your own um, practice around it. Because if we look at the enlightened masters of, of ancient periods, uh, they were using that 369 pattern in their own divination or in their own way uh, to create something. Uh, so we say become creative uh, with it. But Quite simply, to experience its power, uh, you must start within and and utilize the breath to channel that energy upward. And, and as a, a sacred geometric being at heart, you will also find that harmony. Okay, I don't want to get into the subject too far, but just to touch on it, and we'll continue this conversation in the future, but uh, you mentioned being inside of a pyramid has the same frequency as 369. In ancient times, uh, especially in India, they used a form of architecture that's referred to as Vastu Shastra. Was this architectural form to create that 369 frequency in a home environment? This is one of the manifestations we are speaking of that we believe is coming back to your planet again in the future. 
we're taking these calculations or these these universal mathematic configurations uh, and putting them into a, a very creative outlet of some kind can have immediate and incredible benefits. Okay. Well, that's good for today. We've gone low for a couple of hours, so thank you. Thank you, Michaela. And thank you all for joining us again for another Channel Revelations. And we will be back in another week with a podcast and then Channel Revelations every other two weeks. So we'll stick with that schedule for a little while. And we'll see you next time. Amazing. Perfect timing and time to take a little break. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Michaela. Thank you, uh, Ethan. Mm. And we're going to see them again. I think they planned this whole thing at this time. They were seeing what the astrology is all about. What an amazing... All right. Amazing. Well, I just wanted to say what uh, in uh, a few seconds, I serve alongside many reptilian officers on the New Jerusalem with, you know, they all come with energy of love and compassion. And like she talked about, not all the Anunnaki fell. Yeah, and not all the humans fell. No, and not all the Elohai fell. No. <laughs> what a story. That, what this is, there's only one of us here, so let's get that one straight. Yep. <laughs> Until we uh, come back, everybody, we'll see you in maybe 10 or 15 minutes, and we'll take a look at the stars, and we'll play some music, and uh, see you then. Just for a little while, we'll be taking this break. Namaste. That's the talking stick to you, Richard. Oh, I hope Uncle Doggy, did you unmute Richard? <laughs> Hello. There you are. I wanted to tell you, Richard, you've got um about forty-eight minutes of uh, uh stuff that we are going to play between Kate Pacha and Tanya. So that means you've got about ten minutes. <clears throat> ten minutes, yeah. Okay. All right. All right. All right. We're looking at the chart for 9 o'clock Eastern. Okay. In the U.S. All right. If, have you noticed the energies have been a little weird this week? Yes. Yeah, we had that. Yeah, we had that. Yeah, we had that new moon. Yep. And Capacha talked about the T-square. And tonight it's very, very exact. You got Pluto at one Aquarius opposite Mars at one Leo. And Jupiter is at one Taurus. Wow. Yeah. 
So, uh, and the Earth is in be- the Earth is in between Pluto and Mars. So you know, all the planets are still on one half of the circle. Right. And Mars is going to break that as it moves into Leo. Uh-huh. So Ju- yeah. So Jupiter square Pluto and Jupiter square Mars. Uh, fussing and feuding is that configuration. Yeah, well, there's plenty of that going on in the politics these days. What's going on in politics in many countries? Yep, that's true. Yeah. Now, Mercury has gone direct. Mercury is at 8 Taurus. North Node's at 4. Uranus has moved all the way up to 20 degrees. And the sun is in the last degree of Taurus. So the sun is trine Pluto and sextile Mars. Because it's 30 degrees. Uh, tomorrow it'll be at 1, Gemini. So it's 30 degrees ahead of Jupiter. So that's an interlocking. There's an interlock here between Mars, Sun, Jupiter, and Pluto. Oh, and and Neptune. Now, see, Neptune's at 28 Pisces, which means it's trying to Mars and sextile to Pluto. So you've got half of a hexagon that goes Pluto to Neptune, to the Sun, and to Mars. Right? Sun to Mars is 60. Sun to Neptune is uh, 62. And Neptune to Pluto is uh, 28. So you got half, half of the hexagon with a T-square overlapping that and along with all of that mess uh, Saturn's at 7 and Venus is at 15 Cancer alright and then that's it Sun is square Sun is getting ready to square Saturn it's beginning to kick in there right now it's uh it's not exact it's about seven seven degrees from exact so in about the end of the week next week we're going to have sun square saturn to go along with the other so it's all messy 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 chiron's at 19 aries okay i said mercury's at eight taurus um the moon is at 17 Gemini tonight, so it's a good it's a good night for talkers. <laughs> so let's listen to our favorite astro talker, Mister Kaipacha. Okay, here we go.
Kalimera. This is Kaipacha with the weekly Pele report for Wednesday, May 17th of the great year 2023. There is so much going on right now. I'm here in Athens, the city of the gods. It's amazing. We've got the moon just going into Taurus today. I'm up here on the mountain of the muses. Maybe if you've been here, you will recognize this little monument here built a long time ago. Taurus is the ground, the earth that holds within it our great history, all of our past. It's not just our bodies and money and survival, but history is also part of that Taurus legacy. Jupiter is entering Taurus. Yes. And, you know, coming into a square with Pluto today. And Mars is going into Leo on Saturday to square Jupiter and oppose Pluto. And Jupiter is coming up to the north node of the moon. It's going to be exact on June 1st. So we've got this whole time of, you know, uh, the end of May, beginning of June, where we've got this Jupiter square Pluto, Pluto square the moon's nodes, and now it's all getting triggered with Mars in the fire sign of Leo. And that's what is the mantra is about today. I'm going to talk about that a little bit more. But in addition to that, if that's not, not enough, right, you know, uh, it, the sun is going into Gemini. On Sunday. So we've got this new moon happening at the very end of Taurus. Two cobblers. I'm going to talk to you about that. The two cobblers as we come to the Parthenon. Yeah, favorite. Look at, look at. I should zoom in on there. So anyway, um, where was I? Yeah, the sun going into Gemini, the moon also going into Gemini after we have the new moon. 28, 25 Taurus. Then on Friday, she goes into Gemini, goes on through until Sunday, she moves into Cancer. Jupiter and Mars are exactly square on Monday. And Mars is exactly opposite Pluto on Saturday. What a powerful, powerful weekend. So let me talk to you, look at the camera, and explain a little bit more about what that means. All right, everybody. So much to do, so little time, so much to say, short little video sitting on the cliff here <laughs> with uh, tourists coming by. I'm going to try to focus as much as positive because it's uh, there is so much to say. There's so much happening, and we want to really look at the duality. The sun is going into Gemini, the twins. Castor and Pollux, a heavenly and an earthly. The Pluto, which is the soul, and the soul is the force of evolution. And that force of evolution grows through 
dual coexisting desires the desire to separate from the source that created us and the desire to return to the source that created us Pluto is at zero degrees of Aquarius which is co-ruled by both Saturn third dimensional material physical time space reality where polarity is very powerful and very strong and Uranus the great enlightener the great awakener the ruler of the third eye the single eye let thine eye be single and then we have this opposition <laughs> between Pluto and Mars and Mars is the lower octave of Pluto it rules the desires that emanate from the soul we know we have a soul because we have desires these desires emanate from the soul and then we have okay you know the sabian symbol for this new moon let me read it to you uh and, you know this is it's a, i'm going to elaborate on this but it is two cobblers working at a table the twofold character of our mature understanding in symbolism the feet are the symbol of understanding understanding differs from mere knowledge because it implies at least some degree of identification in depth with what is being understood you have to go deep into it babe moreover it is impossible fully to understand anything except when its opposite is taken into consideration the mental process of understanding and therefore appreciation implies confrontation between two points of view thus the mind gains a sense of perspective the way to dispel a shadow is to have the object illumined by two sources of light true understanding dissipates any intellectual shadow the two cobblers symbolize two contrasting ways of approaching the understanding of an experience especially a new experience and they provide concrete forms which may clothe and protect the understanding so here we have and this is what i you know how do i put this you know i mean we're we're talking about you know this age of aquarius pluto moving into aquarius you know from now until november of 2024 then it's going to be fully in there for the next 20 years okay until 44 and we have a whole situation evolving with technology with materialism with transhumanism with people seeking immortality through robotics and computers and artificial intelligence so really seeking to make like this heaven on earth or or like you know our greatest achievement will be okay you know you know to last forever in this third dimensional realm 
and transfer our consciousness to a machine. And this is just like, you know, like making, uh, this is devoid of spirit. We are in a time period. We could say, you know, and anthroposophy would say, Rudolf Steiner would say, the dark forces. Yeah. You know, the dark forces of Araman, there's also the Azuras. These are very powerful. Okay, we could say the dark or, and this is where we learn through good and evil, through light and dark, through positive and negative, through heaven and hell. I mean, we incarnate into this third dimensional realm to evolve our understanding through counterpoint awareness counterpoint awareness is where there is the possibility of objectivity it's through the telescope or through the microscope or through a relationship with somebody else something outside of ourselves a contrasting point of view that gives us this potential for understanding ourselves, understanding spirit, understanding life, understanding, you know, I mean, what is the, well, there's life and there's death. Let's look at the contrast. The opposing force of life is death. So, you know, and we could say that evil would be, okay, a, you know, a conscious entity or spiritual being or group of spiritual beings that are anti-life, that are, you know, wanting to take us away from spirit, rob us of a soul experience and rob our soul of a spiritual experience. And cutting us off so we can have spirit and matter. Spirit and matter, right? They can either complement, merge, unite. In so many ways, I think that, you know, a lot of evolution and a lot of our purpose and intention, yeah, you know, with, uh, with humanity is the redemption of matter, the spiritualization of form of matter, of structure. And this begins with what? Our body. Sun, new moon in Taurus with Jupiter and the north node of the moon. The spiritualization of our body is penetrating our deepest root chakra, which is ruled by Pluto. And after that, the second chakra is Mars, And we have this polarity happening now. Mars going into Leo, the fiery lion of passion, of intense desire, the pride, the conqueror, the cat. Wow. (laughs) That like wants to just like, I mean, we all have, okay, Leo somewhere in our charts. We all have the sun. We all have passion. And that's what the mantra is about today, is working with our passion. When Mars comes into this opposition with Pluto, okay, we're going to feel, okay, our passion. 
our desire, our power. I'm going to read to you the Sabian symbol for the first degree of Leo, which is this Mars coming in. And this Mars is going to be squaring this Jupiter on the north node. Pluto Mars and Mars is going to come up to square the moon's nodes next week. And so what is this, you know, what is this all saying? It's saying that there is the potential possibility of being overwhelmed, of being swept away by our overwhelming desires. So, you know, the Jupiter square Pluto is we can feel so powerful, like we can move mountains. And then you put Mars in the mix. Mars, Jupiter, Pluto is like... I am Tarzan, I am Alexander the Great, I am, you know, Godzilla. I mean, this is super powerful. Root chakra, kundalini, sexual red chi energy rising up like Paley out of the volcano. I mean, it's just like... And we have to like really... So this is almost... It's like an initiation. It's like a test. It's like, okay. And that's what the mantra is about today. It's not getting taken away. Okay. And this is where the computers and the AI and the technology and advertising and persuasion. You know, it's like, you know, the the AI now is like, uh, you know, being designed, okay, to like persuade you, okay, into buying into being a consumer, okay, you know, into, you know, just like going along and, you know, uh, following your animal instincts and desires for more pleasure and more alcohol and more food and more, you know, more of, you know, more substances, more products, right, you know, more pharmaceuticals, more, uh, you know, it's just like, you know, we're going to like, feed ourselves and we're going to satisfy ourselves and we're going to gain fulfillment right here through matter through this physical world but guess what it's impossible it's not going to happen because true satisfaction and true fulfillment is love and it has to do with the heart space And it has to do with our soul space. And it has to do with the unity consciousness. The Neptunian, Piscean oneness of all creation. So this, this physical world lives in separation. It lives in duality. And that separation will never bring us the sense of belonging and the sense of peace And harmony, that unity and love consciousness is going to provide. So this is why we have these forces of, we couldn't say evil, that are trying to strip us, okay, and distract us into thinking or believing or feeling that, you know, it's all here and it's all physical. And when we die, nothing else happens. And so you got to go for it, you know, right now in all of the, you know, and it's just like, 
doing this whole workshop here in Athens, you know, and it's it's coming home to our innermost self. It's this coming into, okay, this heart space, this coming into our soul's spiritual nature. Very important for us right now during this time of initiation. This is a time of testing. We are being tested and we need to really hold on and not just hold on. You know, we need to be beacons of light, that spirit is real, that spirit is valuable, that the inner soul experience is profound and deep and powerful, more powerful than the distractions and all of this third dimensional materialism that is happening right now. So we have, you know, it's very important. Jupiter moving into Taurus here is this, you know, bringing truth. Okay, it's going to be there for a year now, right? Till next May, we've got this Jupiter moving through Taurus. And now this north node of the moon in Taurus. Very powerful about exploring the truth around our material existence, around our physical, sexual nature. So we're also going to have Mars moving into this Leo, squaring this Jupiter, opposing Pluto. And that first degree of Leo is very, very powerful. Yeah. And it has to do with what? It is the blood rushes to a man's head as his vital energies are mobilized under the spur of ambition. An eruption of biopsychic energies into the ego-controlled field of consciousness. It's like a volcano. It's like our animal. It's like the the cat is out of the bag. The biopsychic energies, okay, our sexual desires, our emotional needs, you know, for connection and belonging and owning and possessing and conquering and penetrating and merging. And you, I mean, it's just like all of this very powerful, fundamental, primal energy, Pluto, in opposition to Mars. And you just want to make that to the power of 10 when it squares <laughs> Jupiter. So on the world stage, God knows what's going to happen. We're talking like major power grab is possible here. Yeah. And of course, what is our, you know, what is our, what is our thing? And this is what the mantra is about today. You know, it's managing it with consciousness instead of being carried away by the unconscious or the automatic or the habitual or the animalistic. And the primal energies, it's like, no, we are conscious soul spiritual beings. And our task is to like, you know, be stagecoach drivers and take that team of wild horses and, you know, like manage our biopsychic energies. <laughs> so, you know, it's just like the key symbol for Leo depicts a rising of energy from the heart to the head. A mentalization process 
The sun can destroy as well as vivify. Without its symbolical mate, water, it produces deserts on earth. The realization of Atman, the spiritual self, the existence of a formed and steady ego, provided the ego can become a lens of pure crystal focusing, the all-pervasive cosmic light of the Brahman, without introducing the shadows of pride, possessiveness, and showmanship. But this provided raises a very large question. The transmutation of life into mind is a difficult process. It's up to us, and this is, you know, this is our task, right? This is our, we incarnate out of these vast, etheric, subtle, spiritual realms into this dense material, you know, bodies and planets and everything to, you know, to like spiritualize and take that vital core energy, purify it, purge it, give it intention, give it purpose, give it direction. This is our this is our task as spirit beings. Yeah, not to be, you know, not to like the horses, you know, or even this Jupiterian Sagittarius, half man, half horse, not to yeah, not to let the horse run away with us and take our stagecoats hither and yon, but to like with mindfulness direct and control those vital vital energies. So we've got the mantra for this week, if you can do it, yeah, is I need to create an outlet. When I woke up this morning and said, and with this mantra, it was like, first it was, I have to find an outlet. And and, and I, I laid there for a little bit and I thought about it and it's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, 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 no. You know, it's not about finding an outlet, it's about creating an outlet. This is where we take our potential and we take our thoughtfulness and we take our experience and we take our genius and we create an outlet for my passion-filled desire. As I can warm up the house or burn it down. If I don't control my fire. So this energy of Mars is Mars is going to be in Leo here, you know, through June into July, I think till July 10th or something. Right. So we've got fire planet and a fire sign. All right. And Venus is going to be joining. Okay, you know, uh, by June 10th, I think. Venus is going to be going into Leo. I said this is going to be the summer of love in my last newsletter. <laughs> yeah, baby. Oh my god. So it's it's wild. It's it's going to be it you know, this can be a lot of romance, this can be a lot of passion, this can be a lot of connection and it can be joyful and it can be creative. 
And we can give birth to all kinds of new potentials and possibilities. And we can really like take and mold and shape our lives and our destinies and our relationships. And this is just like, I mean, it's like, you know, the, the, the rocket is on the launch pad here, man. And it's, and the fire is going to, it's like the countdown, you know, it's like, so like, you know, we can take off. And, you know, and, and as stagecoach drivers, we can, you know, we can like, woof. it's time to go. So we don't want to be taken. We want to lead. Yeah. You know, we, you know, we don't want to be overwhelmed. Okay. You know, or just kind of uh, lost. So we have to stay like very awake. Like you see, I got to stay really on it. And take full maximum, you know, advantage of this opportunity to like make something outrageous that has like never been made, seen, or done before. Woo! We don't want to waste this time just, you know, indulging, indulging, and just, you know, passing, and, you know, just, yeah, let's not lose ourselves incarnate ourselves yeah one more time then right right i need to create an outlet for my passion filled desire as i can warm up as i can warm up the house or burn it down i gotta get the beat right here as i can warm up the house or burn it down (laughs) if i don't control my fire Obviously, the, the the song for this, uh, you know, for this week is Come on, baby, light my fire. Try to set the night on fire. You know that I would be untrue. You know that I would be a liar if I didn't say to you, girl, we couldn't get much higher. Let's get higher. Let's get higher. We want to feed the fire. And we, and we want to enjoy the fire, the heat, the passion. We want to direct it. We want to create with it and not get carried away with it. <laughs> May you not get carried away, but have a beautiful day. <laughs> Namaste. Aloha. So much love, baby. Ow.
talking stick to you, Richard. All right. Thank you, sir. All right. I'm looking at next Saturday's chart. And the uh, the Mars, Pluto, Jupiter, T-square will still be operating. The moon will be going into Virgo uh, Friday, and so the moon will be opposite Saturn Friday, and it'll be first quarter moon, so we have a T-square, so we'll have two T-squares next Friday and Saturday. The one that's operating now and the one that's going to come in for a day on Friday, which will be uh, moon square sun and opposite Saturn. And that'll be, uh, that's mutable, the mutable T-square, and so it'll be unsettling. And uh, Pluto will, the sun will trine Pluto late next week. The sun will square Saturn, yeah. And Jupiter square Mars, that's still operating. Mercury is going to get away from squaring Mars because Mercury is moving pretty slow right now due to its position in its orbit. It's, uh, yeah, it's moving real slow. How slow is it, he asked. How slow is it? <laughs> Click there and you find that Mercury is moving less than a degree a day by next week, this week is moving like a, a, a half a degree a day, and next week is going to be working 53 minutes per day. Mars is moving 14 minutes per day. No, that's Jupiter, 14 minutes per day. Anyway, so uh, no relief in sight this week. And I'm not even sorry because I can't do a thing about it. <laughs> All right, let's listen to Tanya. See if she can cheer me up. Oh, okay. Oh, she's very upbeat in this one. Oh, okay. There we go. Wealth Astrumorologist, welcome to Star Codes. This is the podcast where we look at an upcoming event in the stars and numbers, the astrology and numerology, so that we are enlightened and prepared for the coming energetic shift. And in this case, it's a big shift. It's the Taurus new moon happening on May 19th. And that number in itself 
19 contains the one and the nine, the first single digit and the final single digit, which indicates a major shift. 19 is the Prince of Heaven number in numerology, which is the sun, the light of the sun shining on what is in front of us so we can actually really pay attention to it in a way that enlightens and delights and also broadens our perspective because we're seeing the big view. And since Jupiter, the planet of seeing the big view, is very much activated during this new moon, there's going to be a lot that comes to light. So let's start, first of all, with the time of this new moon. It happens May 19th at 4.53 p.m. Universal Time in London, and that is 11.53 a.m. New York and 8.53 a.m. Pacific Time. And this new moon just carries just a lovely energy of joyful anticipation and intense passion as well. There is a sense of things coming to a head while also starting again. And the starting again is, of course, the new moon, which is always a new beginning. It's the May 19th date. One plus nine equals 10. 10 reduces to one. New beginning. The 28th degree of the sun and moon. Two plus eight equals 10. One plus zero equals one. So we have the 10 activated twice. And 10 is also instant manifestation, love and light. And certainly the instant manifestation is of new beginnings. So there's this incredible forward momentum energy that's here. And at the same time, we're being asked to really take stock of our what is coming up for us emotionally. Not that it's a full moon, which is more emotional, but there is a T-square. And the T-square is between Pluto, a deeply passionate planet, ruler of Scorpio, which is the sign opposite Taurus, and opposite Mars. Pluto is opposite Mars, and they're exact at zero degrees. Mars has just moved into Leo, and Pluto's at zero degrees in Aquarius, retrograding right now. So they're opposite each other, which is really going to set up some internal passionate fireworks. Mars is the planet of new beginnings. It rules Aries. So again, we have this tremendous sense of I can move forward now. I can move through whatever it is that has been blocking me or giving me pause for thought or keeping me in a place where I really need to check in and get come to terms with something, this energy is really going to be addressed in a beautiful way. And I say beautiful because Jupiter is the planet that creates the T-square. Jupiter is currently in Taurus. Jupiter will have just moved into Taurus on May 16th, 17th, depending on where you live. Zero degrees Taurus. So they're all at zero degrees, which again is a sign of new beginnings. Because zero degrees in any horoscope sign is the first degree. So you can see we have this incredible potential to let go, see the big view, become enlightened, and hopefully delighted about the potential for what is now possible for us. While 
purging the past in order to be able to move into that potential because we have to make room for it, right? In order to progress forward, there has to be something that is released, some baggage that has to be let go. So when we move forward without expectations and with pure delight and joy, we are not in a state of comparison. Now, I want to look too at all the planets in Taurus because Taurus is a very grounding sign and it is helping us to earth and to put our two feet on the ground and take its breath and appreciate nature. And there are five planets in Taurus. Aside from the sun and moon, we have Mercury, which is stationed direct on May 14. We have Jupiter, of course, and we have Uranus, which has been in Taurus for quite a while, right? So all of those planets are in Taurus and we have the North Node at three degrees Taurus. And it soon will be moving into Aries. We'll get to that in another video. Currently, the North Node joins these five planets in Taurus. And that means two of the planets, Mercury and Jupiter, are conjunct the North Node, which is our future. Again, the focus on what's ahead as opposed to looking back. So there couldn't be a greater meaning between the numerology code and the astrology lineup here for focusing on, we're looking at Taurus themes now, abundance, what truly makes you happy and fulfilled, what do you value most in your life, what brings you pleasure, what helps you connect to Mother Nature, Maybe you're complicating your life with conflict and indecision and even addiction could be being addicted to any substance, but also the online addiction. That's a pretty real thing as well. You can now turn to what sustains you. What actually sustains you? What nurtures you? What helps you feel contentment and pleasure and comfort? That is what Taurus represents. And this is why Taurus is aligned with financial flow with abundance and security, having your two feet on the ground, being realistic, being dependable, providing for yourself the needs that we obviously require, being incarnated into physical bodies. We have needs, right? And so Taurus really makes sure that we address that. And when we add to that the 10, 10, 10 activation, the numerology code, the triple 10 the May 19th, which reduces to 10, and the 28 degrees with sun and moon, which reduces to 10, we have an opportunity here to bring in a lot of really powerful God-centered energy. This is the God number. The straight line and the zero represents the feminine and masculine energy that come together, love and light, instant manifestation, which is pure creation. So we have a triple 10 and anything in threes is creation itself. The number three is the number of creation, mother, father, child. So you want to look at what can you make real in your life? What is real in your life? Look at what is actually reality. Are you being real? Are you being a chameleon who is constantly changing colors depending on what you feel is needed to go through life and so you're not being 
steady and in integrity and taking your power back by being real? These are questions to ask because how many things that you're doing are grounded and actually rooted in inspiration? I'm going to go back now, speaking of inspiration, to the Jupiter conjunction of the North Node. So Jupiter, it just moved into Taurus. And so it just has made contact with that North Node. And that means that hope and spirituality and inspiration, which Jupiter is truly aligned to, is going to be really, really big. Those qualities of looking forward, Jupiter is a very forward-moving planet. Jupiter loves embracing opportunity. And Jupiter trusts. Jupiter has hope. So what are you aligning with where you're actually trusting, where you're inspired, where you're filled with joy, all Jupiter qualities. North Node is the future. North Node is our relationships and what our destiny is, what we're destined to do. So what is coming from your heart without all the external distraction taking you away from that threat to the divine? And how many things are you willing to learn to help you stay grounded, to help you stay in that place of truly being connected to the divine, but also being grounded to the earth at the same time, where the thread goes up and down and it is pure and centered? Are you using your hands, for example, not on the keyboard, but are you doing things like cooking, cutting vegetables, knitting, crocheting, tending to the garden, washing, um, touching, playing a keyboard, playing an instrument. There's so many ways to engage with the tactileness which Taurus represents. That is giving you pleasure. All of those are activating your brain in a very different creative way than being on a keyboard in front of your laptop or on your phone. So this is really how you'll be sustained, is being in nature, getting your feet on the ground, and, you know, connecting to the natural world. Really, that's what Taurus represents. And this Taurus new moon is saying, well, start now, right? This is a new day, a new life for you that's being born with this, astrology numerology code and you have this major advantage now of taking charge of your greatest resource which is your intimate connection to your physical body listening to the prompts listening to what am i feeling right now in my tummy in my arms in my throat in my feet why is there tingling here you know, this is all physical. This is nature. This is natural. This is who you are. And this is where we need to get our prompts. So your sensual nature is very, very much enhanced during Taurus in general. Now, the sun and moon are trying to Pluto. Pluto has this opposition to Mars and this T-square to Jupiter. But the sun and moon are trying. And the, even though it's out of sign, the trine, meaning the sun and moon are, the, are at the very end of Taurus and not quite in Gemini, 
and Pluto is at the very, very beginning of Aquarius, it still is a very close trine. And it gives you really deep emotional insights and assertion. You have this sense of confidence and Pluto governs power and empowerment or disempowerment, right? Control or taking control over others. Now, on the positive expression of Pluto, we can really step up. We can really be engaged in a way that is filled with courage. And remember, Pluto's opposite Mars, the planet of confidence, the planet of initiative. And so there's a balance that is being struck within you to take note of that resource you have, your inner confidence, which is the confidence that is the connection, the trust with creator, with mother, father, God. So your heart is very much engaged. You're leading from passion, from love. And this trine also helps you to take accountability. There's a sense of determination, achievement, and a profound sense of just positivity. Like you can take that resource that Pluto gives you of seeing the truth and being really conscious of things that you weren't conscious of before because Pluto brings up secrets and the unknown and the unseen and take that and surrender and let go. Don't judge it. Right. And then the sun and moon are obviously sextile Mars. So they're creating a triangle, very positive one to this T square with Mars and Pluto. They're actually alleviating a lot of the tension by creating this trine and sextile and the one to Mars really activates your instincts. And that's why I was mentioning your body, like really listen to your body. And, you know, Mars fills you with fire. Mars can be impulsive. So because of the T-square, you want to guard against overreacting. You definitely want to stay neutral emotionally. It doesn't mean you can't stand up for yourself and be clear on how you feel. But the taking sides reactionary emotion is the one we really, really want to watch. So take a time out if you really are pulled in that direction, because this is more about becoming independent from all of that. Mars is very much independent and very enterprising. And this energy that is generated also because Mercury just went direct and Jupiter just entered Taurus. There's this real sense of acting on what, means a lot to you and having the energy to do it and the forward momentum as long as you're not impulsive impatient you want to move quickly but you also want to breathe so there's both the tours you know make sure that you are centered energy and then there's the mars okay but we got to get going now because this is our window of time you know to take advantage of so finally i want to just mention the zero degrees activation in this T-square between Pluto, zero degrees Aquarius, Mars, zero degrees Leo, and Jupiter, zero degrees Taurus. These are fixed signs. This is very powerful energy because fixed signs are not going to be as flexible. They're really going to stick with it. So there's a challenging aspect to being fixed, which is you can't move, you're immovable and inflexible, but then there's also this sense of I'm going to finish this project and nothing's going to keep me from doing it. But this zero degrees part of it is the zero point, the everything and nothing. It is timelessness. 
macrocosm and microcosm are one. There is no separation. So you will feel when you are grounded and you are centered and staying neutral and truly listening, you are going to feel this God-centered, this surrender to the divine intelligence within you, maybe more than you ever have. And this awakening is powerful because Pluto is in Aquarius. Remember, we're entering the Aquarian age and we'll really feel that Aquarian age once Pluto finally moves into Aquarius without retrograding back into Capricorn. And that will be in November 2024. That's when it really starts taking off. But we are in the midst of entering the Aquarian age. And the Aquarian age will take us to that inspirational place that Uranus, the ruler of Aquarius, loves to go, that inventiveness, that liberation from fear, and that forward momentum into the future, which Aquarius rules. So we are being given this opportunity while Jupiter is in the grounding sign of Taurus and Mars is in the royal sign of Leo, the sign of pleasure and really taking things to a childlike, enthusiastic place of creativity. We have this opportunity now to truly tune in to our soul and our destiny as a light being, a being of light that is here to create something, to uplift others, to help ourselves while helping others. This is the energy of the Aquarian Age, where we release our need to be somehow taken care of or dependent on others, right? We are leaving that dependency. We're moving into independence. And this is the biggest thing because it will help all our relationships, the interdependence in relationship. That is going to change everything. We are being set free to be the unique beings that we all are, where nothing is cookie cutter anymore. So this is where it's all heading, and this new moon in Taurus is a major step in that direction. And now it's time for you to discover your own code, because it is really being activated. Your destiny, your purpose, which are revealed from your birthday, your birth certificate name, your astrology chart, reveal who you are, what you're here to do. And you can discover your own star code at starcodeclass.com. It's a free masterclass I created for you that will help you understand why you're here, what gifts you bring, how you're here to uplift others and uplift yourself, and also to have compassion for others because you can get to know their codes as well. So enjoy that free masterclass. It includes a handout showing you how everything is calculated. And after you watch this masterclass, you're going to feel such a connection to who you are at soul level. I really hope you enjoy it at starcodeclass.com. And I wish you the most beautiful Taurus new moon. May your journey be blessed. Lots of love.
Doug, did you unmute Richard? Yes, yes. There you are. Pass this talking stick back to you, Richard. All right. Wow. Uh, the, uh, there's a place called Quest Books. And at Quest Books, I believe you will find the books by Annie Besant and Charles Ledbetter. So uh, I haven't been there, but on the, see, this week I finished reading his uh, Ledbetter's book on clairvoyance. Very interesting little book. It's about 220 pages. It talks about all the different kinds of clairvoyance, which means clear vision. And it's a very interesting, all the different ways that uh, he, he talks about the different kinds of clairvoyance. Right. So I finished that. And then yesterday, actually this morning, I finished another little book. This one is by Annie and uh, Charles together, and it's called Thought Forms. And it turns out that that, that Annie and Charlie there were both um, very clairvoyant. All right. Yeah. So that they they took this this little project together and they went and investigated thought forms and he make i i can't tell who who's the actual wrote it i think uh ledbetter did most of the writing here just because it's in the same style you know and you know he writes rather conversationally okay but this book on thought forms has got color plates. It's got lots of color plates where they had a couple of artists working with them to uh, try and and put uh, in two dimensions uh, what they were what they were seeing and you know and with a pair of with a pair of clairvoyance you can confirm each other right right so uh, all the different all the different kinds of uh crap that people generate with their emotions and their thinking i mean you know and it's it's very interesting with this here there's a, here's a here's a list of illustrations on on some of these um uh pictures that they they tried to uh, put in the book here as they talked about various things the uh you've got affection devotion intellect anger sympathy fear greed various emotions 
forms seen in those meditating. Helpful thoughts and forms built by music. So you've got uh, all kinds of interesting things. Uh, uh, vague pure affection, vague selfless affection, definite affection, radiating affection, peace and protection, grasping animal affection, vague religious feeling, <coughs> the response to devotion, vague intellectual pleasure, vague sympathy. These vague vague things are like clouds of different colors. You know, they're, they're generally oval, I guess, or spherical. You know, high ambition, selfish ambition, murderous rage, and sustained anger. Heavenly days. Murderous rage. Um, this, in this case, they were uh, they were viewing a uh, a drunk in London. All right. Oh. Explosive anger, uh, watchful and anger, jealousy, fright, greed, greed for drink. Oh, at a shipwreck. They 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 uh, got like three three thought forms from three different uh, folks at the at the uh, scene of a shipwreck. Gamblers at a street accident. They got a couple of couple of different thought forms from bystanders there. Uh, thought forms at a funeral on meeting a friend. Sympathy and love for all, an aspiration to enfold all, these are meditations, in the six directions, an intellectual conception of cosmic order, the logos as manifested in man, the logos pervading all, intellectual aspirations, and then... At the end, he got uh, in a church on an on a big church organ. They did a, a Mendelssohn piece, a Grunod piece, and a Wagner piece. And the the thought form from this from the the uh, the organ player in the church is very interesting. Because, yeah, because one of them, the first one, <laughs> was kind of a quiet piece, and they were outside looking at the church, all right, uh -huh. and these were all done in the same church, and the one piece, the, the form over the, over the church was like 100 feet tall. The church tower was about 100 feet tall, and the top form above... Above the uh, above 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 the church was about a hundred feet tall. But the next one, this thought form, 
expanded up over the church, and it was like 300 feet in diameter. And then the Wagner police, you know about Mr. Wagner, he's a very, very famous German composer, right? This right. this thing is like 600 feet uh, tall and about 600 feet wide, and it's got uh, it's got a blue band at the bottom, a red band after that, and they're curved, the kind of curve and snaky like. It's got a green section, and then it's got a it's got a red spike in the middle of it, surrounded by green and yellow, and then it's got purple, and it's got a uh, a golden globe on one side, and it's got a lot of purple in it. You know, it's huge thing. And that was the overture to the Meistersingers. It's the Wagner piece. And the second piece is uh, the Soldier's Chorus from Faust. And the Mendelssohn piece was number nine of his Songs Without Words. Anyway, so you can go to go to uh, go to Quest Books if you if you're interested in in, in thought forms. And the, they did an experiment with a with a sender and a receiver, and uh, that was part of their part of their experimenting and investigation of various kinds of thought forms to share with all of us. So. That's that for now. Very nice. Thank you, Richard. Until we meet again. See you next Saturday. Yes, we will, right? Same time, same place. Same station. BBS radio number two. BBS radio number two. And best radio there is with all of us hanging out. Namaste. (laughs) Namaste. Namaste. Okay, Rama, we need the conference call number. Uh, 720-716-7301. And the PIN code is 353-863-POUND. All right, we'll see everyone there. And then we'll be right back here at BBS Radio at the top of the next hour. Best radio there is. Okay. All right, Satnam. See you there, everyone. Namaste. Okay, well, I will leave. I will getting there then, Rama. Yeah, things are jumping around. Okay. Um, These are Mm -hmm. two pieces. They kind of go together. And it's the... uh, the host is Regina Meredith, then Freddie Silva, Silva and Paola Harris are the guests. And I'm just, this is going to be, I think this is going to be wonderful. So the first, um, the first piece is entitled Evidence of Giants in Sardinia. Is there an ancient connection between Atlantis, 
Giants, and the History of a Small Island in Italy. Paola Harris and Freddie Silva join Regina Meredith in this first segment of a special three-part investigation filmed on location to explore the remnants of an ancient advanced civilization that once occupied the little-known island of Sardinia, Italy. All across the island, we find thousands of stone structures constructed hundreds of thousands of years ago by a civilization lost to history, yet remembered by local myths myths and legends. We explore ancient ruins, too large for humans. Examine the bones of the giants found on the island and explore the forbidden history of the lost giants of Atlantis who may have settled here after the great deluge. All right, this sounds wonderful. Mm. And this is 42 minutes and Rama found it. Mm. Let's go. We're ready. season on Open Minds, I've teamed up with Freddie Silva, author and world-renowned expert on sacred sites, Paula Harris, investigative journalist and author in the field of extraterrestrial-related phenomena, local Sardinia guide Rosella Lodo, and Luigi Muscas, a leading researcher on giant bones in Sardinia, who has discovered evidence pointing to the connection between the island of Sardinia and the ancient culture of Atlantis. Their elaborate stone sites, roughly 7,000 of them, are sprinkled all over the island, revealing tombs, bones, and highly sophisticated architecture. It's speculated that people from Atlantis, including a giant race of people, emigrated to Sardinia with their great knowledge, leaving their tombs and temples, called Naragi, behind. With help from a team of remote viewers, led by Angela Thompson, local Sardinia legends, and the writings of Edgar Cayce and Ruth Montgomery, we uncover a deeper understanding of these giants, their naragi, and the mystery surrounding their incredible history on this island. We're taking little breadcrumbs and trying to make a wonderful loaf of bread out of it. The message that there may have been highly sophisticated cultures before our current time begs many questions that we've been grappling with. Why did they disappear? And how many more are there buried under the sands of time? Welcome. You 
are in for an adventure. I'm here in Sardinia with Paula Harris and Freddie Silva. And even though we're in this lovely little apartment in Cagliari, Sardinia, we have spent the last three days out in the field. And we've been examining some mysteries that none of us have ever seen before. I can't wait to get started on this because one of the subjects that we covered is that of giants. It's a subject that has a big giggle factor around it right now, but we're going to take the giggle factor out of it by going out into the field to the tombs of the giants. And we're going to do this part of the story with Paula Harris. And Paula, for you, it's the third time here. For the rest of it, it us, it was our first time here. So first of all, let's launch into Sardinia itself and the nature of the people. And when you first started coming here, what, how you how you experience Sardinia? Well, Sardinia is a little known island because everybody goes to Sicily or Corsica, and Sardinia is right next to Sicily. But I was invited to speak about UFOs. That's how I came to Sardinia. Rosella, whom you'll meet, uh, she she invited me to speak on the UFO phenomenon in these very, very uh, small villages. So when they hear an American comes, what happens next is everybody comes out of the woodwork uh, they'll either come to me about sightings that they've had over military bases. But this particular gentleman came forward and he said, come to my farm. He said, because I want to tell you about the giants. Of course, this isn't my area of study, but I went anyway with uh, uh, some friends and with Rosella. He had artifacts and then he brings out his father and his uncle and they tell me their stories. And this happened about 10 years ago. I find this fascinating because... You know, something like this, first of all, it would be hard to dig up that story because people are so afraid of being made fun of. It's not that Luigi hasn't had his share of trouble and ridicule over the subject, but it's something you really don't even talk about in most of the Western world. The subject of giants is verboten. And we're going to get into it and talk about, even in his journey, what happened after discovering the bones of giants and such in his youth. But this particular topic is... I don't know. It's, it's as bad, if not worse, than the subject of UFOs in terms of any kind of disclosure. I mean, here we're in Sardinia, where it has the tombs of giants, Tumba di Giganti, right? All over the island. And you can go to them. There's no guardrails. There's nothing. They're just sitting out in nature alone. And the people actually don't seem to embrace the notion that there were giants there. Talk about your own understanding of that through the years what the common person has come to believe, like all of us, with a lot of conditioning from the media and churches and everything else about this topic. The, the way of telling a country's history is not by reading the authoritative books of anthropologists. It's by talking to the people in the villages, because most history, especially in islands like Sardinia and other places that are not really, uh, you know, tourist places, is that this goes through family from generation to generation. The real history goes through families. So Luigi's family knew about the giants. I mean, knew about the giants because there were bones all over. They were discovering them on his property, in caves, everywhere. When he was a child, he saw them. He saw the, uh, what he calls the authorities, come and take these bones away. Huge skulls. This is what we call witness testimony, which is the only kind of work I ever do. It's it's a witnesses, the regular people of the village, but of course, they're not allowed to talk. Their life is made miserable. They're told by formal archaeology, do not talk about this. And of course, they can ruin your life. I mean, so Luigi's taken a risk. He said he's got had a lot of, lost a lot of friends. 
because he wants to talk, because he thinks that this is such an important aspect of the history of this island. And I mean, in that way, it's akin to Roswell. After Roswell occurred, then the governmental agencies, military came around and said, you won't be talking about this. And it really frightened the local people. And they pretty much kept their mouths shut for many, many years. They're afraid. In this case, this is uh, anthropology. This is organized uh, an institution where this doesn't fit in. Now, right. where are you going to fit giants into the history of the Mediterranean? Right. It does fit into mythology, right. though, and it does fit into oral tradition. So if you're going to take everything into consideration and not take the institution's point of view only, and you talk to the townspeople, you'll get the real truth. And that's what you do. And that's what I do. Right. And now you mentioned a little bit ago, you did have the opportunity quite a few years ago now um, to meet with Luigi when his father and his uncle were still alive. Now, in his book, he also has the testimony of other locals, neighbors and such, talking about their experiences with the giant bones when they were kids and such. Unfortunately, all these lovely people that we see in the book have passed away. So we need to stop teasing everybody and go out into the field. We'll go out and first we're going to meet with Luigi, okay? And we're going to get a little bit of his life story because as you alluded to earlier, for Luigi, the whole thing with the Giants personally started when he was a pubescent boy and he was helping with the family sheep, grazing sheep, which took him out in the field for many hours a day. Let's go talk to Luigi. First, Luigi, thank you so much for letting us come and talk to you because I know you've had some harassment and difficulty because what you share with us um, is not necessarily accepted by a lot of the archaeologists and government and so forth. The same happens in America, so I appreciate that it's a little risky for you to talk to us. Thank you so much for coming here because you're letting me tell my story. This has to do with Atlantis. This has to do with the world, and I thank you again for listening. The story that has emerged is an amazing story about the presence of giants in Sardinia and a very, very ancient culture. So can you talk about your personal part of it as a little boy? It's a story that's very old, but I'm going to tell you from the point of view of my own family. When the family got together, they would tell stories about my ancestors coming from the line of the giants. My relatives had their first trucks after the Second World War. They used to bring grains into the center of Sardinia. Once they found two skeletons of the giants blocking one of these old roads. So they had to take the grains on their backs. I grew up with these stories and I remember about 70% of what I was told as a little boy. From two years old, I was used to this. But now that I'm 57, I know the places where they took the skeletons, where they got the skeletons of the giants. It's normal to me. So what was interesting is he said that he found some of these bones in an area that was abandoned. He calls the lost city and the tomb of the Atlantean king because he believes that he came, his people came from Atlantis, and that Sardinia is the remnant of Atlantis, right? 
Yes, he's very proud of that. He talks about Atlantis. But he, not only him, his whole family have, have believed that. So we go back generations here. So right. this is what makes me wonder, because, you know, if you take witness testimony, it's not just the modern one. It's if your whole family, your great-grandfather, your, your great-great-grandfather is talking about this, there is a little trace of truth coming out that goes through family stories. Yeah, yeah. and it's, he's in good company because... Plato, Aristotle, Herodotus all believed that Sardinia was Atlantis as a remnant of what was Atlantis. And they believed that these Atlantean people existed there. They're just carrying on the same story. They are. And but we have artifacts. So and we yes. have tombs and there's so many Nuragi and there's so many uh, really important monuments and they're all buried. Uh, some of them are buried under mounds of grass or are not excavated yeah, yet. Most of them haven't even been discovered. discovered this is a yes. very undiscovered land. And when we're talking about those sites, which we're going to get to um, in our next show, there are 20 or 30,000 of them, they think, that are identifiable and they don't even know how many more under the land. Why would anyone need to build that many basically ritualistic, sophisticated sites, right? Unless something pretty interesting is going on. So we're going to go back out with Luigi because he took us up to the Lost City, which basically is rubble and and plants. But you can see the remnants of the old wall. And the place that he's going to show us here is the remnant of what was was a giant's tomb. And it'll make more sense as we go into um, the future episodes and we look at more of these tombs of giants, the shape and the length he's talking about. So let's go back out in the field then with Luigi when he took us up on top of the lost city. My most direct experience I can tell you about was in the lost city, in the tomb that I call the first king of Atlantis. In 1972, I was bringing some sheep to the pasture. There was a big storm and I was a little kid and I didn't have a coat or anything. So I looked around for a place for shelter. I tried to go under a tree, but that didn't work. So I saw this kind of a hole of a cave. So I went in there. In this cave, I saw this mummy of a giant and I looked at it. I didn't get scared. I just wanted to look at it be there here was the atlantean king's tomb uh don't get inside okay so this is where you came in he was laying here here was the head and there at that stone was the feet where rosella is okay and some of the stones have fallen down yes yes the little kids destroyed them So the storm passed and I came out and I went to talk to my grandfather and I told him all about it. My grandfather put me on a white horse and I was so happy. He took me to the lost city and he told me the true story of what happened there. He told me the whole story of Atlantis, people, generations, word of mouth. Even though they couldn't read or write, they told the story through generation and generation. And I was fascinated by all of this. This used to be a pyramid. It was like Chichen Itza. Here is where the pyramid crumbled, part of Atlantis that was destroyed. 
It was like this. All the stones down there are filled with quartz. Now I'll show you the base of the pyramid. This is the base of the pyramid. It's covered in quartz, see? Here, all these stones have quartz, all of them, just like Cheops, Egypt. All the stones are made of quartz, from the first to the last, because they fell that way. They were on top. Look at these. These have been worn away here. All of these stones have been broken. Okay, so that kind of looks like rubble and ruins, but you can see the foundation that was initially there. And you said there were pyramids all around. And that actually the government knocked those smaller pyramids down. Some of them just look like kind of cone-shaped mountains that are now covered over in vegetation. And some of them have Naragi on top of them. So it's kind of hard to tell historically what actually went on because we have civilization after civilization piled on top of each other throughout the eon. So here we're now looking at um, the subject then of the giants. Let's go in in a little more specifically as Luigi and I are sitting and talking all these little stone figures surrounding us and uh, you can explain that a little bit because Luigi's a, an artist yeah he's an artist and he's kind of obsessed with what he's seen because yeah. what he has uh, carved in stone and when you see all these uh, figures and some of them are really bizarre looking it's what he saw inside the giant tombs pero con la mumia no finili perché I took my friends back to the cave to show them the giant mummy. The color of the skin on the mummy was gray, and we would play with the hands and the legs. After lunch, my friend and I would go there and take naps. We would sleep on either side of the mummy. We were used to these stories from childhood. So when you were playing with these uh, giants and in their hands and so forth, did they appear to be anatomically the same as human beings are today? The same number of digits or anything extra um, or the same as us? Most of the skeletons I would find looked like us, but I also found anthropomorphic skeletons including the body of a human and the head of an animal with one and some with two horns. And from historical documents through ancient lineages, it does talk about these types of creatures that existed in Atlantis. Our stories say that these people came from the stars. And when they came, they taught us everything in technology. We were here, but we were small people. We were taught that they came to this island to construct the first place in Atlantis. We call them the people from the stars. The little kids or the boys you know, way back when, I think in the 60s, he said, would go into these these caves and see these figures. They would see these representations. They would see all of this. And also they would see bones. It was normal for them. 
Uh, and if they talked about it, then what would happen is the authorities would come and empty the cave. Which they did. Uh, which they did. And he, he watched the whole process. So did the other people in the town. Of course, they're very good. They didn't talk about it. It's called, I think it's called hidden archaeology. Right. But in its house, he's so obsessed. He has made these clay figures. He's painted them. He's uh, sculpted them. And also he said he remembers uh, another life there. That was interesting. That was interesting. I mean, he is, it's almost as obsessive as in uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. He can't stop building this mountain, right? right? And, and Luigi, if you had a chance to see the whole studio, it's kind of amazing. There are paintings. There are little sculptures. There are big sculptures. There are stone, stone carvings. Um, he has this stuff all around him depicting these things. I mean, he's obsessed on many levels. And part of it, when he was younger, he was taken down into an area that was low and toward the sea. And he got this horrible feeling, he said. And this is when he started talking about remembering that some kind of deluge, uh, you know, put the land underwater. And that would explain an awful lot. And right? let's let him explain what happened when he went there. We believe this civilization was taken away in one day and one night, 12,000 years ago. We believe it was the heating of the air, the meteorites, the earthquakes, and then there came a big tsunami that took everything away. There seems to be a discrepancy in when that happened with some of the researchers, but it could have happened multiple times as well. For me, I live this part of reality when I go to that part of the island. I remember. When I was a little kid, I did not want to go to that pasture with my grandfather because I could still see that wave coming. I still have memories of it. He would comfort me and tell me that it already happened. It happened in the past. Luigi has done his best to have this stuff validated by modern science. So in his book, you have proof of this by the photo of the mandible, plus the analysis done by the University of Padua in Italian and in English. But one of the and things, this was their archaeological department. This is the okay. archaeological department. But one of the things that interests me as a researcher who works with hidden uh, mysteries is they asked him to write it so tiny in this book, and you yeah. see it's tiny; you can hardly read it. That was the only way he could publish the it. The stipulation was that if you put it in this, it's like a one or two font at the back of the book for anyone who cares to look. It was kind of like, we'll let you do it, but you got to bury it. But basically what it came back with was the dimensions of, of the jawbone that we see in this picture here. And there are other body parts that they examined, the dimensions of those. And also they talked about the blood type of the individual, um, of the giant, which was... Uh, an O type, which was RH negative. Luigi said, that's my family's blood type. That's my blood type. Those are our ancestors. It's very so, rare, that blood it type. It is very, very rare. rare. And there are stories within the community of um, alternative archaeology and research and those who really de- go dig a little deeper into the whole alien story that RH negative is often associated with alien species. So that's just a little aside. But he says, no, it's here in the book. It came out in the lab reports. That's my family and that's my bloodline. These are, I understand that the ones, this one I have is not a giant, just a very big person, right? Grande persona. Giant. These are giant. Vertebra. Vertebra? 
And then we also saw another little jaw that's bigger than a human jaw. Right. So right. these are people that aren't going looking for them. They're there, right there. And in there's their another tooth that's a human tooth. It's much, much smaller. So it right. would have been from a person larger than us, a, yeah. a tall person. Um, but not as large as what he's saying they were seeing in the past in terms of these, these massive, gigantic massive, Yeah, massive skulls, yeah. massive teeth. Yeah. Uh, and then he had talked about 10 years ago, the femur and that I saw. Yeah. Uh, and then I said, well, where's that? Can we see that? He said, they came to take it to carbon date it. He said, I had to give it to them, but they never returned it. But you saw it initially. Oh, yeah, because he had many more bones. And then mm. while I was there, I, another car drove up with some people, and they said, we want to show you. And they opened up their trunk, and these, my God, I, I've never seen bones so big. And they said, we found these. Because they found out I was there, you know, the American. And they thought, let's go. This story is big. Let's go show her. And they opened up the trunk, and I I mean, I did you ever really think that people were maybe take, trying to take advantage of the Americana? No, why would they? Because this is farmland. Yeah. This is way out. They had to drive way far away yeah. uh, to to do this. I think there's a part of human beings that want to tell the truth. Mm-hmm. And, and they're very proud of the and island. And they want their story told. And yes. they want their story told. And they're very proud. They're very mm-hmm. nationalistic of their island. Mm-hmm. So what you have to look at is the value of, West, of witness testimony. And so after that, he said, um, I'm going to take you to a place that is very typical and, and it's labeled a tomb of the giants, a very typical tomb of the giants. We were going to see more in subsequent days, but this is the first one we saw. It was really cool. So Luigi, oh. this is outside of the little town of Sidi. The giant would lay here and the soul would go through the door over there. Ah, yes, beautiful stonework. Nicely fitted. These walls, they would precisely cut them and they would put them together without cement. This is amazing. And of course, massive stones put together with no cement. And so this is where the giants, where they came after the death, with the head down here, the feet at that end, and the spirit would go out through their feet through the other end. See. Si. Yes. And si. then their body would be removed si. and then buried. Man. Yeah. Yeah. When the giant died, they would put them in the tomb through that hole there. And depending on how big the giant was, they would put either one, two, or three. The next night, they would come back to do the soul passage, where the soul would go through the hole straight to heaven. These people built structures all over the world, not just this site. Nobody knows. Okay, so it could be over 5,000. Who knows how many years? Yeah. No, si sa. Yeah. Okay, don't, no one knows. Very good. Nessuno lo sa quanti anni ha questo qui. Yeah. It's too hard to date these stones. 
These stones are very old. The stones could be more than 10 million years old. Everywhere you go, you can find five or six of these sites. These sites were to perform these rituals. Yes, because they had a higher spiritual understanding. When Freddie jumped into the story, and we're going to be seeing a lot of Freddie in our next episode, right? When Freddie jumped into the story, he said, I believe they weren't just for people who had died, for the giants who had died. He believes they're also a chamber for a ritualized experience. So let's go to Freddie's take on it. If you can go back thousands of years in time and just use your imagination a little bit, this was actually covered with earth and it was alternating layers Mm -hmm. of organic and inorganic material. And again, Mm -hmm. you've got to ask these questions. Why would anyone go for their trouble? If you're going to bury someone, bury them. Just, you know, cover the whole thing with earth, uh, get a few rocks and be done with it. But no, everything is covered with alternate layers of organic and inorganic material. And uh, we've done studies whereby we've taken frequencies of the energy outside of the mound right. compared to the energy inside right. the mound. The two are very different things. So the Especially in circular up. areas. Exactly. Which, I mean, even Michael Tellinger had the readings done inside and outside of the same similar stone structures in South Africa. Very high readings energetically and acoustically yeah. from the inside. And why would a dead person require that? Right. 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 So this comes back to the other point. If they left no instruction, that's the fun part of this job. We're taking little breadcrumbs and trying to make a wonderful loaf of bread out of it. So the first thing I tend to do is, well, what's it looking at? Uh, because everything, every temple on the face of the earth can usually be figured out. Uh, its date of construction can usually be figured out by its alignments to a background star. So what is this alignment we're looking at? Well, here we have three potential hits. Mm-hmm. Again, we left no instructions. So let's start with the most basic. Equinox sunrise, winter solstice mm-hmm. sunrise. Those are two classic ones. The moon definitely doesn't factor into this one at all. We now have the ability to backtrack in time. And if you were standing here in 8,500 BC, you would get a perfect alignment with the equinox sunrise. And an hour before that, you see Venus rising. Yeah. Just before uh-huh. And you see this again and again around the world. And anytime okay. you see that kind of chamber, that's usually a place that was used for initiation. And what... I find interesting about that is then we're talking about, and I say the word cults very loosely, but uh, groups of individuals that had knowledge that were aligned with the sun, which is in the classic hermetic sense, those with the shining ones with the advanced knowledge would be the ones more prone to aligning their structures toward the sun rather than the moon cults, for example. Exactly. Exactly. Uh-huh. And Venus was always, Venus rising before the equinox sunrise was always the mark of the risen initiate. Okay. Someone had gone into a special place like this. They would have gone in because, well, the frequencies are here. They're different on the inside. They would have been the ones that have become much more, uh, um, I want to say, tempered by the, the frequencies inside the chamber mm-hmm. because they would have actually uh, been beneficial to them. And we know that these frequencies actually align with the human body in a way that drives down your state of thinking to a place where it's not thinking. Right, going into a more alpha state or even a delta state of consciousness. So you're saying that this is positioned in really critical ley line um, matrices? Every single sacred site on the face of the earth is aligned exactly where the earth's solar occurrence happened to be. Whether they were manipulated there or whether they were there to begin with, that's another story. Mm -hmm. It's a situation, but certainly they mark where the X marks the spot. So, and anybody who's sensitive uh, and can't afford, you know, $20,000 uh, 
uh, pieces of equipment will actually pick up the stuff. And if a $20,000 piece of equipment will do it too. It's just a lot cheaper if you just sit here and actually, you know, get a sense that there's nothing unusual about this place. So chicken or egg? You're saying that the shaman of the day or the priests of the day understood that this had a particular ley line pattern here that was beneficial for building this? Exactly. Or you, so you're saying by evidence that it's built, we know that the ley lines are here? Both. 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 Okay. So they used to get uh, people who actually intuitive, they would sense the energy line, mm -hmm. and then they would call in someone who eventually became called the Algors, where we get the term inauguration from. Mm -hmm. They would inaugurate the site by marking the specific points along the uh, the land where this invisible, uh, these energy lines cross, so that the builders, the stone builders, can say, okay, we have to now build the site aligned to the specific alignment using a specific type of stone. Uh, in this case, it's very old sandstone. Um, and uh, basically uh, align it to the exact position of the invisible energy current. So you're giving shape to an invisible force, mm -hmm. which a very expensive piece of machinery we all detect. So we're saying, at least from what they said outside on the placard, this is roughly 5,000 years old. You're saying more so. You're saying maybe nine, eight, nine thousand years. The original hit that I'm getting, yeah. if you match the sky, uh, ground right, the alignments, eight and a half thousand BC to the equinox sunrise. So this would have been a thousand years or so after the deluge, in the re rebuilding of the cultures. Exactly. But there's another point of the story here because if the, uh, I mean, the Earth moves relative to its background of stars every few hundred years, mm -hmm. so one degree every 72 years. Mm -hmm. Everything in the background starts to move ever so slightly. The alignments go slightly off. Mm -hmm. So the next time you get a major hit is the winter solstice sunrise in 3700 BC. Still okay. quite old. Okay. Still yeah. pretty much where, where the archaeologists were saying, yes, this is kind of fits into the Neolithic pattern. Mm -hmm. But it's, there's no evidence behind it because you can't date stone. You can only date the actual soil around it. Right. But that only tells us when the site became out of commission. Okay. Okay. So this is pretty much where the beginning okay. of the edge of the mound would have been. You can still see the stones in the ground that would have formed at the edge of the passage mound. And then it would have circled around like a tube. Mm -hmm. It would have probably been about yay high. Uh, of course, I'm pretty tall myself. Uh, and then it would have used to be covered with other stones. So it would have been a perfect passage mound. Uh, and all of this that you see here would have been what the, uh, where the earth used to be. It's now filled in the actual mm -hmm. hole. So it would have been quite deep as well. But again, you'd have to crawl in. Right. Even for tall people, you've had to crawl in uh, in, a, uh, in a state of humility. That's the whole point of these things. Yes. Uh, in the King's Chamber, the Great Pyramid, yes. same thing. Yes, yes. You know, big building, you've got all the space you want. What are you going to do? You're going to make a nice little hole for someone to crawl in. Yeah, the, the purpose is you crawl in, you become humble. Yeah. And then you come back into the big room and there you are in the uh, essentially the body of God, if you want to call it that. Metaphorically, it can mean a lot of things, birth of all kinds. Exactly. Yeah. We're now inside the actual, what used to be the uh, the passage mound. So this would have been covered with big stones, which are now on the front. So the archaeologists must have dismembered this. They took the stones out. They dug around in here and they left the stones out there. Not very nice of them. Uh, so in here, uh, there, there's a hole again. This is where the light of the rising sun at the equinox would have come right through here, created a beautiful mm -hmm. shaft of light. Uh, and it gives you a wonderful perspective uh, on what, what it would have felt like to be inside this chamber. And uh, usually, if you look at the story around the world, mm -hmm. uh, it's the same story again and again. People used to come in here for up to three days, 
they were given a mild narcotic, like a poison, and they would spend a nice quiet night in here, and uh, they would leave, literally leave the body in an induced near-death experience. That's why they, they thought that these places were tombs. Mm -hmm. You see, except it, they, they were expected to come back out, of, out alive at some point, and which they did three days later. They'd re-emerge, and the first thing they'd see would be Venus rising before the equinox, mm -hmm. the mark of the risen initiate. And you hear this story all around the world. Yes. As a South American person was here right now, they'd say, absolutely. We got the same thing in Lake Titicaca. Yeah. An Egyptian would say exactly the same thing. And again, alignment tells us so much about what was going on, not just in terms of the relationship of the site to the actual stars, but also its purpose. So if this was facing the Northeast, it would have been used for a completely different uh, function altogether. Mm -hmm. So the alignment in terms of ritual is very, very important. It's interesting, just looking at the proportions of the remnants here, the large stones. It's, this is approximately the same length as the Tomb of the Giants that we were in yesterday. How many meters would you say from those far stones to the primary stone? Oh, using meters now. Yeah. There you well, go. I, mean, I shouldn't do that. Yards. Okay, same thing. <laughs> but in megalithic yards. No, uh, it looks like it's about the same 20-some 20, 20 feet. Very similar in proportion it's is what I'm saying. It's about 30 feet. Yeah. yeah, it's about 30 feet. Yeah. Okay. Quite a big one. Mm -hmm. You can still see the outline. Yeah. A little bit of where the earth Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Be. I'm just looking at it and seeing if there's any correlation between this as we go along and other giant tombs. And they're yeah. ever so slightly different as well. And I always get, also get the sense, I guess we don't know exactly what was going on at the front with the two horns, because from above, mm -hmm. it looks like the horns of a bull. Now, if I was looking at that symbolically, I would say that would refer to the age of Taurus. Yes. 4,000 BC to 2,000 BC. Right. Because they would actually design things according to the age in which they were in. So in Egypt, if you look at the avenues of the Rams, that was the age of the Rams. So you know right. that they're between 2,000 BC and 0 BC. So here, the site may have been readapted. This may not have been the original uh, design. It may have just been the natural uh, standing stone, the actual uh, passage mound, like you have in Karnak, like you have in Britain. And then as the ages went by, they may have added that to symbolize the age that they just basically went There's into. There's other bull iconography in the museum in Cagliari, too. Yeah. We saw, we saw a couple pics this morning. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Makes sense. Both Freddie and Luigi say this is a journey back home out to the cosmos. They both said as the spirit or anima, as Luigi called it, leaves, it goes back out to the stars where the beings came from. Freddie's saying the same thing in his, although he's saying that it was a resurrection ritual to be able to loosen from the material world and, and go back into spirit. Luigi believes these people come from the stars, which is really interesting because he calls them Giganti delle Stelle, which means the, the giants from the stars. And Freddie believes the same thing, the Anu who came from the stars. And it all goes back to a particular star system. Okay, Paola, thank you so much. This is a lot of fun. We're going to be seeing more of you in part number three, which is going to be fabulous. We're kind of saving in my opinion, the best for last in our in our last show of this series. But meanwhile, we're going to be meeting with Freddie um, at the Naragi, going around to all these Naragi sites together. And these, they're being dated by the academic world here to be in the Bronze Age, around 4,000 years old, roughly. Um, Freddie's saying, not according to his measurements, it's an entirely different story. And that's where we get into the story of, of archaeoastronomy and these ancient sites. 
So, a lot more to come. Stunning visuals as we travel to the north of Sardinia to look at the ancient Naragi. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on Open Minds. Fantastic, everybody. Uh, okay, so we're going to keep going here. This next one is Sardinia, still there, and the Sacred Feminine. Mm-hmm. Again, Regina Meredith, Freddie Silva, and Paola Harris. Mm-hmm. Can the Book of Enoch unlock the secrets of the fall of Atlantis and the giants of Sardinia? In our final segment of our three-part investigation... Freddie Silva, Paola Harris, and Regina Meredith explore an ancient monument dedicated to the sacred feminine. Within the chambers of this site, rituals were performed to initiate a woman into the various stages of her life. As we explore the details of these ancient sites, ancient rites, excuse me, we find parallels within the Book of Enoch and the motivations of the Anunnaki and Nephilim. What we uncover may finally put the pieces together of an ancient puzzle that reveals a lost history of the human race and parallel civilizations that helped us advance into the world we have become. All right, this one is 38 minutes. Mm. And let's just continue here. Let's do it. This season on Open Minds, I've teamed up with Freddie Silva, author and world-renowned expert on sacred sites, Paula Harris, investigative journalist and author in the field of extraterrestrial-related phenomena, local Sardinia guide Rosella Lodo, and Luigi Muscas, a leading researcher on giant bones in Sardinia who has discovered evidence pointing to the connection between the island of Sardinia and the ancient culture of Atlantis. Their elaborate stone sites, roughly 7,000 of them, are sprinkled all over the island, revealing tombs, bones, and highly sophisticated architecture. It's speculated that people from Atlantis, including a giant race of people, emigrated to Sardinia with their great knowledge, leaving their tombs and temples, called Naragi, behind. With help from a team of remote viewers, led by Angela Thompson, local Sardinia legends, and the writings of Edgar Cayce and Ruth Montgomery, we uncover a deeper understanding of these giants, their Naragi, and the mystery surrounding their incredible history on this island. We're taking little breadcrumbs and trying to make a wonderful loaf of bread out of them. The message that there may have been highly sophisticated cultures before our current time begs many questions that we've been grappling with. Why did they disappear? And how many more are there buried under... Hi, Hi, greetings, Tarama. I was just going to say you guys are so on the current right track. I mean, uh, Freddie Silva, you know, has been on a book tour these last uh, several months. Um, And he has talked a lot about, because he went to Sardinia, um, and Sardinia, Armenia is the closest 
that Armenian language cannot be translated because it's just like star language. So there's a sacred thing, and he's on a book tour, and it's just fantastic you're playing him, and I just wanted to put in that for everyone. Like, it's live time. It's really cool. And, uh, yeah, it's just really, it's really great stuff. Uh, anyway, and, and what's interesting also is that Regina Meredith, I mean, he makes no qualms about it. I, I think they, you know, they have separate partners and whatever, but they are really dear friends because of their intellect and their quest for this kind of knowledge. And I hope the whole planet wakes up to your kind of teachings and knowledge. That's all I wanted to say. That's why I felt fervent about calling in. That's all. Thank you, Bobby. Let's multiply ourselves a million times, a billion times, a trillion times. Let's do it now. (laughs) Well, thank you. And where would anyone else want to be except with Tara and Rama on a Saturday night burning up magic, or not burning up magic, but burning up really good times? Just being with you guys. I mean, why? Wh- this is the best galactic stopover ever. If people don't get it, like, wh- why wouldn't you just spend your entire evening putting everything aside and really listening to the things you guys have to say? So, thank you for Earth School. Ciao for now. Thank you. Ciao, ciao. Yes. Uh, okay. Let's continue now. Let's do this all right. more. All right. But thank you for all the Earth School. Spectacular. In our last episode, we were with Freddie Silva out in the field and we were looking at the Naragi, these ancient stone monuments, many of them kind of beehive or conical shape, very masculine. It looks like what? 15 feet high? Ooh, a bit more. Uh, 20. That were built for specific ritual purposes for what were considered the tall people or giants or shining ones. So we thought we were going to be doing more of that the following day, but we had a surprise in store, right, Paula? Yeah. (laughs) In this particular case, we had all our permits basically denied. We thought we were going to be able to go into more Naragi sites and shoot, and they said, nope, and they wouldn't let us shoot. So that left a little bit of open space. And your friend Rosella, a wonderful woman, said, there's a special place that was very ancient just for women. So we thought, wait a minute, we've got the time. Let's go see what she's talking about, right? Yes, it's a place of initiation. I've never seen it, so it was a treat for me, too. And you can't see it from the road. No. This is a hidden site. Other people don't really go to this site. It's not well known at all. They know the big Naragi that are sticking up on the top of hills and out in the valleys, but not this place. So, first of all, this was a site of initiation specifically for women. In a lot of traditions, women are very, very important in initiation rites. Right. And these were initiatory, the Naragi yes. and such were initiatory places. So a lot of times there are spirits that kind of penetrate these places where rituals are done. And so looking at it from a meditative point of view, what was so fascinating to me is this was a very specific kind of experience. And we were all just thrilled to have had the time to come into this this discovery. My name is Rosella Lodo. 
I live in Cagliari, Sardinia. I'm very passionate about archaeological sites. I've visited many sites in Sardinia, but I'm most passionate about Villa Sant'Antonio Domus de Janus, which means home of the fairies. It is a very important and powerful site, especially for women. When you first found these caves and started going there, how did this happen? And what kind of experiences subsequently have you had in these caves here for the women? I attended a course on the frequency of archaeological sites. And during this course, we visited many of these sites, like the Villa Sant'Antonio Domus de Janus. It was a very strong experience where we could feel the frequency that would resonate from the site. And since Villa Sant'Antonio Domus de Janus resonated a frequency for the woman's body, for us women, it was a very strong experience. Have you been going to these caves for a long time? In the beginning, I visited the site once a week. And on Sundays, I would go with a friend to feel the frequency of the site. For many years, I would go with one, sometimes a couple of friends who were as passionate about archaeology as myself to visit and experience the site di archeologia. Nella prima stanza, the first chamber is the one of the young woman because we are talking about a site of feminine initiation where the young woman would initiate her life as an adult woman. La seconda uh, stanza, the second chamber, is where the young woman would feel for the first time the desire towards finding a companion. La terza stanza, l'energia è molto più dolce. The third chamber, it's actually very sweet because the young woman feels the sensation of falling in love with the accelerated heartbeat and sweetness. La quarta, ce n'è una piccolina, piccolissima. The fourth, is when the young women will experience the first symptoms of menstruation. And in the fifth chamber, is when the young woman will very suddenly see a big change in her body, a belly, and she will feel the symptoms of being pregnant. In this, this is the site the first chamber of step number one, which was, you explained to us earlier that this is where it all begins. This is the first chamber. Exactly. This is the first chamber. And the, the girl is taken into this chamber. And inside, as we'll see, there's a bed, a stone slab for the girl to lie down on. And then the priest goes over her energetically to see if she's healthy, a healthy young female. Yes, the priest would check that she was in good health. Once they get the blessing of the priest that the girl is healthy, then she continues her journey. Yes, after that, she would continue to the other chambers. Yeah. I'm going to go in here. I'm just going to lie down for fun and see what it's like in there. So this is where the girl would lie down, right? And then... Here, the priest would feel the young woman's energy with their hands. So the priest goes and senses the energy coming from her body. To check if everything was okay, in good health. Yes. So she first has to claim to be in good health, reproductively. Good health, so she can have babies. Ah, okay. 
Now we go to the next chamber, the next step in the process. This next one has a very different frequency, and it's the frequency of girls awakening sexually. Yes, this one is the chamber of the sexual excitement. Yeah. So that to, to allow the girl to feel the energy of her young sexuality beginning to build. Yes, to experience that excitement. And again, we see that little well in the center. It's called copelas, meaning a little yeah, hole copella. for the activation. Uh-huh. Activation well in the middle that would have water in it for the ceremony. Yeah. I would like to go inside and see what this energy feels like. Some people really feel the activation in them. Yeah. Yes. Yes, to experience the sensation. Yes, the big sensation. Okay, so we're in here now, and I see there's room for many girls. So several girls are in at the same time. And you told me the very last chamber is shaped like the uterus. Yes. Each wall represents the uterus wall. The uterus. And then this is the activation portion of the chamber. This is the little well that's at the center of each of them, normally filled with water. And here, the water ripples out, so there is a larger concentric circle of water. In this hole, the water spreads the frequency. Yes, and that boosts the frequency. And activates the sensation. Ah, These are absolutely magnificent. I'm so happy that you told us. We didn't know about this before we came to Sardinia. You said, I have a special place for you. And this is one of my maybe top places that we've been so far. I love it. For us women, this is a very, very beautiful place. Very powerful. Yes, very, very powerful for the women. (laughs) Indeed, I can feel it. Plus, all of the surroundings with the flowers and the grasses and the water surrounding us is so graceful, so feminine. It's very refreshing. Very good. Falling in love. So, Rosella, from everything you've told us so far, in the first cave, the girl went through the priest's approval to make sure her health was good and she was strong. The next one was to go into this chamber where she started first being initiated into the sexual energy within. And now we come to the chamber of the heart and falling in love. Yes, this is the chamber where by herself she would feel her heartbeat accelerate. And in here are two different chambers for the right and the left halves of the heart. It represents the left and right sides of the heart. Yes, the oracle ventricle of the heart. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And so here was bringing in that very refined frequency of love to activate the heart so she could have a, a, a real connection with her partner on the love level. Yes, the frequency of love, of falling in love. 
very high frequency for the love. Yes. <laughs> that last came to have incredibly powerful frequencies in it. Just move. You could feel it rising up in the body. But this one is much more refined. Yes. Very sweet. Yeah. More sweet. Sweet. Exactly. And then the next one we're going to, we'll just take a quick peek at. It's just a very small opening. And that's for the girl's first menstruation. So she's moving into physical ability to have children. Yes. Okay. And the next little one is for the first menstruation as the body starts preparing itself, the young girls, to be able to give birth. The following case. Okay, so we're here, Rosella, and this is the spot that is said to be, well, you've been here many times. This was the initiation ritual for the girls, the ragazza, right? The ragazza. And here we have a little tiny well with water. And I think you said, you told us that this is where they put their fingers and... Exactly. Yeah, they kind of um, anoint themselves with water, cleanse themselves. And then in here, you brought a gynecologist in to look at the cave, to actually look at the feminine nature. And here we have what looks like a more of the female anatomy, a uterus and a swollen belly. Yeah. So the floor is where the actual ritual took place, right? Yeah. Let's go inside. Ah, nicely prepared. It has a little, like a little, two little, two areas, little sitting areas. The ritual must take place right here. Rosella, this is really beautiful uh, inside here energetically. Each cave has a different frequency. Yes, okay. All different frequencies. This one, this particular one, you can see by the anatomy of the birth canal and the area that looks like a pregnant belly, that this one was for the ritual of preparing for giving birth. Exactly. Yes. This represents the shape yes. of a pregnant belly. Oh yeah, very much so. Yes. And and so the women would come inside. Even now, when they come inside, you say sometimes they feel like they're actually giving birth. See, cuando yes, when we follow the steps of each chamber, they arrive here and start feeling the symptoms of giving birth. It makes yeah, it makes them feel the physical sensation of giving birth. And you've been in these caves and brought people here many times. There were other chambers. There's another chamber in particular that has very special spiritual significance to you, but it was hidden. We couldn't see it. And also you said it's not a place where you would take a camera and other people. It's very personal. Please tell us about what happened to you when you went into that cave. Well, this happened one Sunday when my friends and I were exploring the other side of the site. We discovered a very small chamber, which was divided into two parts. Inside this chamber, I was left by myself because we were in shifts. In that moment, I felt an out-of-body experience, as if I was a part of the cosmos. It was a very beautiful experience, very different from the other chambers. Because in the others, you could feel your own body. And since we were separated in shifts and all experienced the sensation... We had agreed that the sensation experienced was of the woman making contact with the cosmos. So the cave is called Domus de Janus, which has to do with the spirits or the entities that are associated with those caves. And you say that in Sardinia, there's a rich history of fairies and the jana and so forth. Can you talk about that a little bit? Uh, le Domus de Janus si chiamano così. This very small Domus de Janus is much smaller than the chambers of Sant'Antonio. 
The locals believed, because of its size, that it was inhabited by fairies. We can assume that the civilization that built the San Antonio Domus de Janus had a very elevated knowledge, capable of energizing the walls with frequency, and who built those chambers were known as priestesses that later would guide the rituals with always a feminine presence. There's four caves, man-made caves in here, and each one of them is ever so slightly off target. So it starts off at 164 degrees and ends up at 188. It's as though that each entrance is tracking a different object in the sky during the same evening. And so it starts off in one cave and it ends in another. And the, uh, the acoustic in each one is very, very different. Uh, so that each one was used for a very different purpose. They seem to sort of go up and they go down. And hence, uh, if you speak with a low voice, you say, that's, that's four people talking at the same time. Uh, if you speak with people with a high voice, you start getting more into the rhythm of the actual cave. because this was a woman's initiation place. I hate to say this because I'm not like militant, a militant feminist on any level. I like to see the bridging between the sexes. That That's what it's about is bringing the two together. But I had this really visceral reaction when the guys crawled in the cave. It was, it was almost militant. It's like the mama bear in me was like, they shouldn't be here. And when they started toning and putting all these masculine tones in the caves, I was just viscerally kind of shaken by it. 
I was too, actually. I was too. Yeah. Because this was supposed to be like another, but they were curious like anybody would Of be. course, I'm not blaming yeah. them in any way. We had the guys in the cave with us taking the, the film yeah, anyway, doing the film. Right. So, I mean, it was already that way, but there was something about toning in there. But it was kind of interesting because it started raining like crazy. In fact, it prohibited you from getting up in some of those caves because you had slippery shoes. Well, that's what Rosella told me. She said, Paula, if it starts raining, don't even try because they are so slippery that you can hurt yourself. So I thought, I don't want to end this. I don't want to end this this way. So I was watching you, but I was fascinated just like you were. And what happened when it was all said and done, each of the men literally slipped down the rocks at one point in the day. And our poor videographer, Sebastian, you know, he he was holding onto the camera as his feet slipped and he was sliding down 15, 20 feet. Well, he was saving the camera and And I was in shock watching this because he was saving the camera, but he, he slipped down and I thought, oh, my God, what's going to happen? The whole time it was like. The camera, the camera. And so he had a nice round of applause, but he was all dinged up with a bruised up knee and scraped skin. But none of the women lost their footing at all. We did just fine. None of the women fell. And I thought, hey, maybe it's the local gin saying, guys, don't come in here again. (laughs) There was a correlation between these caves and an experience you had in Orkney. Absolutely. As if Orkney isn't remote enough to begin with, there's also the remote island of Hoy. So you take a little boat across there, two massive mountains, and uh, there's one megalith. In fact, it's a monolith. It's a huge rectangular slab of ancient sandstone. It's been hollowed out like a laser, and it faces exactly, and I mean exactly, west. It's perfectly aligned. And you go in there and it has exactly the same alcoves, the same cuts and the same shape and the shaving of the interior as these sites that we went to as well. That completely blew my mind. Another energetic tie from the yes. north. And also uh, connecting the two places together. Yes. This is very important actually. And it was literally, we, I'm discovering this as we're walking along. We're talking about the people of the Danu coming from Central mm-hmm. Europe, from the north into Sardinia. Well, in the Irish tradition, when the giants, I'm talking real big giants, were there, the Formori, and they were basically saying that after the Formori were there, the Tuadanan, who is a variation of the Tuadanu from uh, the Black Sea, they came all the way from the north into Ireland. Well, you can't get much further north at the end of the Ice Age than North Scotland and Orkney. Mm-hmm. So now we have the same tradition of the people in Sardinia also going through Norway, through Sweden, into Orkney, leaving their little vestige of their habitation there and the stone circles they have there as well. About the same time period as they're appearing in Sardinia, by the way. Interesting. And then they come down to form the royal bloodline of Ireland and Scotland. Again, tall, red-headed, light-skinned, and that's where we get the Nordic and Scandinavian appearances from. They're the ones who bred that bloodline in that part of the world. So we do see an overlap here between Scotland and the ancient civilization of Sardinia, and I had no idea. I was literally making this up as I'm going along. I'm watching the overlaps, and I'm thinking, this is why I love my job. Sometimes the spirit of play just helps you make those connections. Absolutely. So we go back to the Shining Ones once again, the Shining One or or the Anu, when they came, they came as a group of eight in each of the cultures around the world. And the one who was the wisdom keeper for the whole group was always a woman. So a woman always accompanied them. 
But again, you say that the knowledge seated by the shining ones included the presence of women. It wasn't all men. Let's talk about the female that was present among the shining ones, the watchers, those who seated knowledge. Yeah, these are all sages, essentially. Uh, They had another word for them called the Apkalu. And they appear all over Sumeria. Uh, they were protective people, not just uh, spirits, they were protective people. And there was a council that was run by eight people. One was a woman, and these eight people were all bearers of a ring. This is where the story of Lord of the Rings comes from. The late Lawrence Gardner had picked up on this story through his research into the old lineage of the Anu from his connections with special libraries. He was Too bad amazing. He's not here. We just want to take a moment to say thank you, Lawrence Gardner. Absolutely. I, I loved his work. I and the man was, if he was he a wonderful man. So the thing I found more impactful than any part of the part of the story is how the woman, the lone woman in this group of people was the wisdom keeper. She was the central pivotal member of the entire organization. And also she was the one through which the bloodline, the sacred bloodline or the divine bloodline runs through. Fast forward the story about five, 6,000 years. We're now in Sumeria, 3000 BC. And you have the woman in red. She is the person who is basically the tutelary goddess of the entire temple structure. And uh, it was because of her that we have all these rituals and initiation practices into this sacred wisdom. So the woman who was basically at the forefront of the temple, she wore a crimson robe. The woman in red, this is where the story goes back to. The robe is called Ritu. This is where we get the word ritual from. And it means truth in Sumerian. So she was the wisdom keeper of the truth, the bearer of the truth of the entire temple of culture. So it was through her lineage that we get a divine bloodline spreading eastwards through Asia Minor, ends up historically with the woman in red in Galilee, Mary Magdalene, who is not her real name, by the way, it's just a title. And from that, they merge into the Merovingian bloodline and the Scythian bloodline of the Lords of Anu, who then become the royal houses of Europe and also through intermarriage with the royal house of Egypt. And from that, they basically set up the royal bloodlines of Ireland and Scotland. And this is all this is established record at this point. And it was because of that that we have the argy bargy with the Carolingians who were set up by the church as a, a wonderful light and dark battle to take over the control of Europe. And we're now getting into the early medieval era in Europe, and that's a whole other story. But this is where the story of the women is so important, that they were the true wisdom keepers, the bearer of the, the, the sacred knowledge, and also the people who also were able to manipulate energy and the human body in a certain way that allowed you to have not just the incubation, the experience that we had at the site, but also had the outer body experience mentally, where you travel to other worlds, return back with specialist information, you know. And I like the way you've described the women in red, because the way my grandpa put it, if you were red, you were a Jezebel and you went to hell, period. Shorter story. Not as inspiring. <laughs> exactly. And you can see how the, uh, you know, the, the religious implications yeah. of the politics of religion yes. turns it upside down. Absolutely. Along with the pentagram. Right. Uh, you know, I mean, like the devil only shows up three times in the Bible and usually he's a pretty helpful guy. Right. You know, so there you go. Uh, one, uh, different folks, uh, same stroke. So, you know. And it's funny how these um, spirit forms, which is the essence of the spirit form that was there originally, this stays in the rock, in the memory of the stone. And they always take on this essence of very tall people. Yes. Uh, and they had the same story not far from Sardinia, North Africa. The women used to consult the uh, the mounds of the fairies, the jinn, and they used to connect with the female deity, the female overarching spirit of the mounds. And they said that they used to appear uh, in the form of very tall people. 
Very well, they also take on the form of giants. Uh, I thought it was an interesting parallel with uh, with Sardinia. If you actually read properly the original story of Enoch and the Babylonian and the Mesopotamian version, it's very clear the Anu and the Anunnaki, which means people of Anu, they were helpers, they were spiritual people. The watchers come in on the side as the uh, side members of the group of the Anu. They're like the go-between. In fact, the Greeks call them the messengers, the egregori, where we get the concept of angels from. But they were real people. So they were the, the, the point of go-between between the Anu and the human beings. And the watchers, again, were considered to be sages. They had their own understanding of life. This is where the story gets a little bit fragmented because there was a small group of the Watchers that defied orders and they went to Earth and they met with women because they said, we like that. We this want to is hang where you really them. start getting more of the Luciferian story involved. This is where we get to the yes. dark side of the story right. where they defied orders not mm-hmm. to mate with Fallen humans angels. because they said, our DNA and theirs is not going to match. Uh, human women and Watchers make strange bedfellows you know, metaphorically and physically, and he did. And this is where we get the Nephilim, which they call the bastard sons of the fallen watchers. And it's funny how they get all the attention, but all the good people, the majority of the good people get thrown out of the window. But the, the ones that fell by the wayside, who did mate with human women, they gave birth to infants, so that women died during childbirth. Uh, the Hopi still talk about this. And they said that basically these created these bastard offspring called the Nephilim. And Nephila is an old Hebrew word that actually means Orion. So they were the children, the bastard children of the children of Orion. So we had that connection again. So it was from here that the true giant people, the gigantesque people suddenly come about because we've gone from 8 to 10 feet to 15 feet to 18 feet to 24 feet in right. one case. Right. And uh, this is what prompted the Lords of Bannon to say, this has gone completely out of control. We need to either bring these people in, tell the humans to behave, and also tell the bastard watchers to behave, or we have to wipe out the earth. We have to basically conspire to create a flood, which is essentially what they were saying. We're able to use the power of will to move fragments of a comet to create this massive damage on earth. So they had power over nature for certain, and that's what brought the whole thing crashing down. They had to get rid of these small group of watchers who created the Nephilim, who created all the problems here on earth. But they were considered to have preyed on people. They were even considered to have been... Barbaric and, and even cannibalistic. And yeah. even in, in Native American uh, mm. history, they say that they were slaying the giants of the day because they were cannibals. Absolutely. And they were afraid Absolutely. Of they completely right. lost the plot. It's right. as though they had, being in a physical form for these people was really, really difficult. Mm-hmm. The watchers already found it difficult. The right. Anu found it difficult to begin with. And that's why they said, do not interact with the humans. First right. of all, you're interfering with the development, the natural development right. of a species. You shouldn't be doing that. You can assist and suggest, like, go and tell them about agriculture, okay, mm-hmm. and then come back to, to the encampment, to the islands, mm-hmm. you know, all the missing lands. Uh, and then we just leave them alone, let them get on with it, let them develop their own course. But whatever happened, we don't know why this small group of people decided to uh, go against orders and created all the problems that we have. But I just find it uh, terrible that they get all the attention and all the other people, the real sages are left by the wayside. I think that's a, a travesty. I agree, and we need to stop it. We need to stop highlighting that particular Absolutely. aspect of history. So we're here to do our little part keep in that. Keep it positive. Yeah, keep it positive. We can say that Sardinia is very popular for the many people that talk about the giants and fairies. 
le fate. And this central region of Sardinia has its own popular stories and myths told by its elderly. So it's beautiful to listen to their stories and go explore the sites featured in those stories. So there is a history, a rich history, it sounds like, of um, the, the lore of the fairy folk, as we call them, the little fairies and the wee people. But what about the giants? What does the average Sardinian feel about the presence of giants in Sardinia? They talk a lot about the giants, especially the elderly. They will tell stories of finding big bones in the fields that could not be of an animal or a human being. But people would not pay much attention to them. And later it was discovered a statue of a giant that you can see in the Cagliari Museum. And all the stories surrounding it are very interesting. What is your understanding regarding the connection between Atlantis and Sardinia? Le popolazioni antiche della Sardegna. I think the old civilization of Sardinia was very knowledgeable and most likely were ancestors of Atlantis. It's hard to find evidence and proof, but there's a lot of research surrounding those facts. And most certainly, if you visit places like Domus de Janus, Villa San Antonio, all the healing sites, everyone that has visited those places have felt the vibrations and even improved their health. So I believe the Atlantis civilization can be found all around the world. And I believe that it also arrived here in Sardinia. So you have been absolutely invaluable to this entire trip here because you're Sardinian, you know the story, and you were the one that originally introduced Paola to Luigi. How did you initially find Luigi and what were your opinions about Luigi and his work? When I participated in the Frequency of Archaeology course, we visited a village in Sardinia and through mutual friends, we ended up meeting Luigi. And his story is really impressive. When he would tell us the story of how he bumped into a skeleton of a giant and he's found so many other things like a tooth, etc. I believe his story is very interesting and true. And it's on the verge of becoming known by everyone in the world. God, this is beautiful. Orion suddenly appears above this flattened area. This is a beehive. Wow. All these little crevices and walkways. I'm going to have a little meditation in here. So here we are, we've been out in the field about a week together, and we've been around the island and looked at the mysteries, and we've held the bones. You have a really very specific take on all this that I think is important. Well, it's very important because when I came here years ago, I was hoping somebody would cover this story. And for me, field research and my career, field research is the only kind of research I do. And that means talking to the people, getting witness testimony, being on location, uh, looking at the history of what you're talking about and not, you know, in isolation, you know, putting together the puzzle. And I think we did that. I think that was pretty cool. We were able to put together a puzzle and, uh, you know, insert some theories about this because this is, this is BC, uh, thousands of years BC that all this was going on. But I think it's important. It's the history of the human race and other races. And we did it. 
we actually survived a lot of obstacles and it was field research. It was, and each one of us, I think, had a very different kind of agenda in terms of our own personal curiosity. I mean, with Freddie, it was very clear. He's looking at it from an archaeoastronomy point of view, looking to see are these part of those groups of people that were aligned to Orion. And so he was able to successfully, and he did, he brought his instruments in and he did the north-south readings himself um, and verified it because we were in the field. And he was so thrilled to say, I've seen this, I've seen this from Google Maps, but it's nothing like being in the field with it. And for me, I was particularly fascinated and always have been, still am, about the story of Atlantis mm-hmm. and what happened before the, de- the final devastation. What, where did those people go? Was that knowledge then maintained throughout other civilizations, which in Freddie's eyes, it was. And um, how the people of Sardinia feel so, so closely allied with the Atlantean heritage. I mean, I found that a fascinating aspect of it. And you also learned a little Italian, I think. I learned a little. I got to where I could kind of understand Luigi and Rosello along the way. And I know a couple words. I can get an espresso just fine <laughs> at a cafe. But I think to be able to each come with our own curiosity and have some things answered. But I think even more so what I love about this trip is that it opened up even more possibilities and more questions. It made for a more vast horizon of exploration than the stories we've been told up until now. Yes, I think it's very, very important that people understand that. And culturally, we all got something from this. I mean, even the camera crew, everybody that was involved in this venture really enjoyed it because culturally, we not only mixed with the people, we learned so much. I mean, it was it was amazing for me. I had never done this intense research here, so it's, I, it, it wasn't really your bailiwick. No, it it wasn't. But yeah. boy, was it ever something that I'm going to follow up on. And above everything else, I just adored it. I think we all did. The Sardinian people. We found them warm, welcoming helpful, just really kind people. So for me, it was a win on every single level. We all here at Gaia hope you enjoyed this journey as much as we did. It's been fabulous to be out in the field and be able to touch these stones and feel the energy of peoples from the past in meditation. All of it has been really enriching to us on many levels. And if you're curious enough, you can come do it too. I know that this is a surrogate for your own personal experience, but I would encourage anybody to come to Sardinia and start poking around on your own. Go into those caves and the Naragi on your own. And I think you too fall in love with the Sardinia people. So until next time, thank you for joining us here on Open Minds. Well, we're going to visit Regina Meredith again. This is another um, program, and there's two of them. Mm -hmm. This one uh, is called Gene Keys Mm -hmm. and Somatic Healing. And this is featuring Blue, B-L-U. We've heard from her before. How can we learn to understand our challenges as gifts? Influencer and podcaster Blue joins Regina Meredith to dive deep into gene keys and how these genetic pathways of our DNA 
are interconnected with our energy fields and fate. Sharing details around adjusting to her loss of hearing in her 20s, Blue looks at her life path as a gift so she can educate, inspire, and connect through somatic healing. We have a sister that's just about blind that um, she didn't come in that way. It's, it's, and I'm just, I hope this helps. This is a, a situation that uh, is also, I, I think I mentioned this earlier that uh, about back in 2003 on NHK out of Japan, they had some glasses where the, Handles of the glasses that go over your ears, where they met with with the um, the lenses in the front, they had some kind of a technology, and people who were blind they could adjust that technology so that they could see again. And I we have been uh, running at a dead end to it, but I believe that you know the second half of May is going to be another level of opening and it's just going to keep happening and um, the galactic technology is here and uh, patience is a virtue it's coming everybody so blue looks at her life path like we said and attune yourself now to leave toxicity behind and enter new realms of awareness <clears throat> as blue shares how we can change our lives by focusing and monitoring distractions to attain deeper listening and inner peace. Okay, let's start this one. It's 45 minutes. Here we go. around on his chair and looked at me and he says your results are actually very concerning you have the hearing results of about an 80 year old the words have become quieter recognizing that energy doesn't lie words do all the time i remember reading that jinky and it genuinely felt like my dna was restructuring itself in real time when i put the hearing aids in it so jarring. Apparently it takes three weeks to adjust to hearing aids. It's like metal grinding. Yeah. yeah. Our greatest spiritual currency that exists is our attention. That's why it's constantly being fought for all the time. When we can actually sit in a relationship with a group of women and to transcend competition into inspiration, that's when our geniuses can start to swap. We go down, mm-hmm. in, yeah. and then up. Yes. It's not... Today's guest has had an interesting and mystical journey with deafness. As it turns out, this trait has many dimensions, which all of us may share. She turned deafness into a transformative experience after becoming involved with the Gene Keys. And welcome, Blue. So good to meet you. Thank you so much. Such an honor to be here with you. And we're going to be talking about all of this, your personal journey, and then you're going to be 
really, I think the first one introducing my audience to the gene keys. Mm -hmm. And just so they know the founder, the one who created the gene keys, Richard Rudd, who you and I both know, will be coming here also. So this is a wonderful kind of entree for the audience to kind of tap into just one or two keys that really can can affect everyone in which you and I share. Mm -hmm. And so I just want to say to everyone, we have a little dog, your little service dog. Mm -hmm. Lily is on your lap. So if you ever see a little, you see a little tough poke up (laughs) right here. It's a little service dog, Lily. She's a sweetie pie. So first of all, let's talk about what happened in your life where you began to physically use your sense of hearing mm. and you and your brother both and, and what, what your life was like prior to that and then what started unfolding. So like you said, I wasn't born with this. This is something that was new into my world and how I started noticing it is actually I realized that when the hearing starts to decrease, it's actually not me that's noticing it. It's those that are around me that notices it. I'm sort of in my ignorance is bliss. And then I started noticing these comments of like, all right, come on, Blue, clean your ears out. Like, why aren't you paying attention? Or you're not responding when I'm looking at you. And so it was in those moments of reflections was when it was started to be brought into my field of awareness. And So you really weren't noticing that the world is becoming more quiet. It started becoming muffled a little bit, but not to the point that was concerning. And it wasn't until I was actually having lunch with my family and my brother was also there. And he mentioned, he's like, mom, my my hearing's starting to become muffled and I'm getting a lot of reflections from people saying that I'm not paying attention. Uh That was then what sparked my realization that I was also experiencing the same thing. So still at this point, it's very innocent. And we went to the doctor and we both had our hearing checked. And I'll remember that moment for the rest of my life is sort of happening slow-mo when the doctor sort of swiveled around on his chair and put his glasses from the bridge of my nose up and looked at me. He says, your your results are actually very concerning. You have the hearing results of about an 80-year-old. I'm in my mid-20s at this point. And he said, well, we won't really understand what is actually happening until extensive testing over a prolonged period of time, see if it's getting worse. However, what I can say is that your brother also has very similar shocking results. And so it's most likely to be hereditary. How old was your brother at the time? My brother was three years older than me. So he's still in his late 20s. Uh Yeah, late 20s. I'm in my mid 20s at this point. And so we go home and this is quite jarring for my mother and our family. And so over the next six months, we're going and testing every single month to just continue to check the, the, the hearing as it is unraveling over time. And during that time, that's when it started coming into my conscious awareness. So I started noticing it more and more that I was in social settings and I would experience this new phenomenon, which was social anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd be in a group conversation and someone would say something and it would ping across the other side of the room to somebody else saying something. And all of a sudden, I have no idea what's going on. Everyone's laughing at some joke. I feel very alone in the space. And it started progressing to the point where I actually didn't want to be out in public anymore. And so the diagnosis over a prolonged period of time was that it's progressive, meaning that it's getting worse. It's hereditary, meaning that it potentially came from a genetic within our family. And is it normal that it would have a late onset like that, this particular kind of deafness? They couldn't really give it a diagnosis in the sense of what was causing it. Um, They didn't really understand fully the extent of the genetic or what was really happening uh, and they didn't really know the trajectory of where it was going. And so mm-hmm. there was a lot of big question marks placed on such a massive piece to be integrated in my early 20s or mid-20s. So it's 
been a wild journey since then of learning how to navigate the world with one sense starting to significantly become decreased over time. Uh, my brother also navigating it in his own unique way. So in each of your cases, how to what percentage was your hearing decreased? We're at about 70%, both of us, um, deafness. So we have about 30% hearing in both our ears left at this point. So what's that block out? First of all, what do you simply not hear in the spectrum? So I'm completely deaf on my high tones. Okay. So, for example, you get in the car and the, the car's like, beep, yeah, beep, beep, yeah. put on your seatbelt. Yeah. I don't hear that. Uh-huh. Uh, my dog crying in a really high pitch, like whining. Mm-hmm. I don't hear that. Um, there's certain frequencies that just completely go over my head. Um, and I'm above average on my low tones. Mm-hmm. So, for example, a woman's voice in a public space, the low tone is the background noise. The high tone is the woman's voice. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, the woman's voice now sounds like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. a man's voice. In a in the same situation, I may hear better because it's operating more on the lower tones. So it was such an interesting new terrain for me to learn to navigate how frequencies work and that there are constant frequencies operating all around us. Mm-hmm. And it depends on what frame I'm in, depends on how much I'm hearing and what I'm picking up on. Okay, so you get the news. This is progressive. Now, has it been progressive or did it kind of stop around 70% or you don't know yet? It started to become progressive, but at the same time, my inquiry around a deeper meaning of life and subscribing to the belief that I can heal myself from anything Mm -hmm. and asking, why did I create this in the first place? Therefore, giving myself the the ownership Mm -hmm. of being able to actually shift it has massively catalyzed my spiritual growth mm-hmm. and my understanding of my inner workings and my inner world. And so as the diagnosis was presented, so was the parallel path of wanting to know myself, not from the outside in of what the world expects from me, but from the inside out to ask deeper questions that allows me to actually become the creator of my own experience, not the victim of my circumstances. Yes. So do you think that that actually has slowed the, or maybe even stopped the progression? Yes. And to Wonderful. an extent of also recognizing that realizing in this realm where the words have become quieter, recognizing that energy doesn't lie, words do all the time. Yes. And so what was it, it was doing? And Albert Einstein talks about how energy is not created nor destroyed, only changed in form. So when when the sense or the energy that was going towards hearing mm-hmm. has now just been redirected to the extrasensory perception of feeling. Mm-hmm. You sit in front of somebody and you can feel somebody. You can feel their essence. You mm-hmm. can feel what it is that they may be thinking. And it's yeah. based off of how the body on a somatic level receives it. So what I was starting to open up the door to was the realm of feeling mm-hmm. that makes perhaps had a massive emphasis on growing up. Mm-hmm. And realizing that as I started to recognize that this could be actually a gift, Mm -hmm. that was when it seemed to stop in its tracks. Interesting. So as we're talking right now, you're reading my lips Mm -hmm. and I have a fairly soft voice. Mm -hmm. Can you hear much of my voice at all? 
I hear your voice mm -hmm. to a certain degree and I'm matching your voice with what your lips yeah. Are, yeah. are saying. Yeah. And also on top of that, I'm reading your energy. Yeah. I'm seeing your eye contact. Yeah. I'm feeling the shifts in your body. There's a lot of communication, a very high percentage of communication mm -hmm. that's actually nonverbal. And because we're so reliant on our five senses that we don't give ourselves the gift of really actually tapping into the non-sensory realm, which is actually operating 24-7 at all times. Exactly. Okay, so at what point, was there ever a point where it was discussed that maybe you should learn signing or did you not need to because you had already developed the ability to read lips and here to an extent, did signing ever come into it? Sign language is something that I would absolutely adore to get into. I haven't gone into it yet. More so my main focus has been on adjusting. We're such adaptable yes, human beings. Yes. Adjusting my current way of processing information in a way that allows me to still be able to retain as much, if not more information, remain fully present, mm -hmm. receive the gift of who you are, while also allowing myself to not miss out on anything that is happening in my world. Yes. And dot, 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 to be continued, would love to learn sign language yes. at some point. And okay. recognizing I can't be the only one that learns sign language. Right. I've got to bring my friends in with me. Otherwise, I'll be the only one having a conversation with me, myself and I. So it's a mutual thing. Okay. It's so do your friends ever use you like at a social gathering, say, what are they saying? <laughs> Siri's lips. Well, I am. Has that ever happened where someone says, come here, come here. What are they saying? Over <laughs> it's kind of cheating, but do they? Not so much about reading the lips, but more so about what's your read on this person. Okay. So All it's right. like, hey, Blue, come in here. Yeah. What's your read? I mean, what's your extrasensory uh, yeah. energy picking up on this individual? Yeah. So it's almost like having a sniffer dog in this space, but in human <laughs> form. I'm like, yeah, they're pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Okay. So now we start going into the story that I mentioned in the open, having to do with part of this transformation process. Along the way, you encountered the gene keys. So let me just... Set up very briefly, Richard Rudd, who I've had people ask me for years and years to interview. I keep hearing, he seems so beloved, but I didn't know him. And I, but I did know about the basic architecture before Gene Keys called human design. Mm -hmm. And I was very well aware of that. So I just hadn't been pressed into learning more. And so we're talking about a very elegant system, um, both human design and a great structure, architecture, but the, which he was a devotee of many years ago. And then he had his own downloads. The Gene Keys were birthed, which is a very, very poetic, sophisticated, profound means of understanding ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so you came in contact with the Gene Keys. So now you share your story. So I, after my diagnosis, decided to book a one-way ticket and go and experience life because tomorrow wasn't guaranteed. Mm -hmm. I bought myself a guitar and I was <laughs> adamant about learning how to play and to sing because I didn't know when I was, if I was going to be able to hear my own voice yeah. again um, or hear music. So nothing was guaranteed. So I decided to go traveling um, around the world and I took this guitar with me and learned a few chords and started singing and feeling the vibration of my voice. And I remember uh, being in a space and my friends pushed across the table this giant book. I mean, it's hefty. It's, but the Gene Keys book is hefty. It's a tome. <laughs> it's already <laughs> off-putting for a lot of people. Oh, being yeah. like, that's a lot. <laughs> no, thanks. And she said, yeah, I think you'd really appreciate this book. Now, I opened it up. And at that time in my life, I just was not a vibrational match to the information. Here comes Lily. Here <laughs> Surprise. <she> <laughs> um, I was not a vibrational match to the information. And so I had it on my shelf, 
but I didn't dive into it for a while afterwards. And then there was one moment where it's like, okay, this is the time I'm going to get into this book. And now once I actually started to realize and, and deeper level of understanding of what the Gene Keys is, it's so much more than a book. Yes. It's a living transmission that you can never really exhaust. And it is a code book of consciousness to understand oneself and understand that our greatest challenge holds within it the seed of our greatest gift. Now, at my dismay, I was going through the book and realized that I had this gene key of deafness. We're and going to dive way into that for all of our sakes. When I saw that word, and while I was processing the curriculum that life had presented me with my hearing, I remember reading that gene key. And it genuinely felt like my DNA was restructuring itself in real time. It was like a psychedelic altered state of consciousness that left me in a place of speechlessness and timelessness and pure awe. I remember it that day and that moment, and I will have remember it for the rest of my life, just sitting in my little cabin in the forest, crying with the potential that my deafness actually wasn't. It was a some, gift. It was a gift. I had been gifted it. And also recognizing that the mm. overarching theme of the Gene Keys is that everybody is dealt certain cards in this life that are challenging, that are painful, that are discombobulating, yeah. that leave us on our knees questioning why. And right within that challenge also holds the seed of our greatest gift and ultimately our service to the whole. And so maybe not everybody relates to the deafness. However, I'm sure everybody can relate to a challenge. And so when I understood that actually in the gene keys, there's the challenge, the shadow, there's also the gift. And then in the highest expression, there's the CD, uh, which is essentially the enlightened aspect where maximum amount of light is entering our DNA. Now we are vibrational beings. And ultimately, it's never ending on inwards and it's never ending externally, meaning that we have around 75 trillion cells mm-hmm. in our body mm-hmm. that are vibrating. And, and ultimately, they have two jobs. Really, what it comes down to is to listen and to respond to the story. 60,000 thoughts we think a day on average. The cells are listening and responding to whatever we are telling ourselves yeah. and how far our imagination is willing to go. Right. And so if I could only be limited to, oh, well, this is just the worst thing that could happen to me. And this is super sad. Yeah. Then my cells are listening and going, okay, then that's the truth of it. Yes. So we're going to go into, we're going to dive into that key number 43 Mm -hmm. that has deafness, epiphany, insight, Mm -hmm. because every one of the keys starts with the shadow. Mm -hmm. And so Richard really gives, I think gene keys, the work gives people permission to look at the shadow and to allow themselves to take in what there is to gain from that because then it guides you right on through to the gift of each one. So it's a very complete way of acknowledging one's full self. So I'll just tell a little experience. About a year ago, um, there were three of us. I was here in Boulder and a couple of girlfriends were with me and we all, we all got our profile, our Gene Key profiles, which anyone can go to genekeys.com and pull up their free profile, right? We pulled up our profiles and uh, we had the book, the big book. And uh, what I found so fascinating was that in the case of women, and I don't know that this would be the same way with men, the women were happy to acknowledge and accept their shadows, but had a much more difficult time 
accepting their gift. Hmm. It was very interesting. And so having each other read together and study it together gave us an opportunity to validate the beauty in each other that oftentimes women are shut down from seeing just because of the patriarchy. We, you know, we have learned to minimize our value and I was watching it in action and thought, this is amazing. It's so beautiful that we can validate each other and say, absolutely. You have that strength. That is your gift. So it's lovely to do in group, not just individually. Okay. Yeah. I love that you said that because it really gave me a new definition of what it means to hold space. Mm -hmm. And what I believe that truly means is that when somebody is in their shadow, aka a negative thought pattern, Mm -hmm. a belief system that is an illusion that is a couple of degrees away from who they truly are. Mm -hmm. When we can witness somebody that is present within that narrative and to hold also in the same breath, the potential yeah. that they can live into and seeing their potential mm-hmm. and loving their yeah. potential and knowing their potential. That is the opportunity to catalyze them into their greatness because to truly see someone in the entirety Absolutely. of their being, the greatest gift. It gives give. language for it. Yeah. It gives, and it gives poetic, beautiful language for yeah. it and truthful language. You can't really escape. I mean, when I first read my profile, I thought, Oh my God, just this little four the four primary areas of your life that it illustrates in a paragraph or two, I thought, geez, I do need to interview this man. So I am. He's, he's, he's coming in in a couple of months time. So anyway, but he has great respect for what you've done with it, by the way, because I spoke to him about it and he said, you're really magnificent in interpretation. And I understand you help other people understand that you read, you help them read their gene keys and embrace and understand the knowledge. Is that true? It is true. So after I went through my whole chart and just had this massive activation around it, when I believe in something, it's called heart marketing in the Gene Keys. When I believe in something, I want to shout it from the rooftops. Oh my gosh, this is brilliant. (laughs) Everybody gets to have a Gene Key book on that. No wonder Richard loves you so much. (laughs) You're the roof crier. (laughs) And so I just started reading my friend's Gene Keys just like you did. You know, you bought it to your sisters and you, and you just went into it. Mm -hmm. And it was just, coming and being born from a natural curiosity. Yeah. And then it just organically started to unravel to the point where I actually decoded the entire book. Jeez, that's um, something. Every single gene key in my own note form. And what it did is it changed my lens on perceiving reality based off of sort of archetypes of recognizing that our greatest challenge is our greatest gift. There's a shadow and there's a gift and there's a city to everything, the sweet polarity and the paradox of being alive. Mm-hmm. And it changed my way of processing um, challenging times. It allowed me to soften more. It allowed me to recognize that the more I actually soften as opposed to harden mm-hmm. against times of resistance is actually when the upgrade, the insight, the light could yeah. enter into the cracks. Yeah. And so also when I was doing the readings, what I was doing was I was partnering my ability to feel somebody based off of my hearing and the gift that was presented through my hearing while partnering it with their, their gene key chart and mm-hmm. reading their hologenetic profile, mm-hmm. then feeling what's going on in the individual. Mm-hmm. What I would do is I would partner the information together and then reflect the beauty that I saw in that individual. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, the greatest gift we can give to somebody is to listen to intently, ask great questions and reflect the beauty that you see. Absolutely. 
So now let's go into that little pesky key mm-hmm. that happens to be my top key as well. Mm-hmm. My life's 43, work. my life's work, which is deafness through epiphany insight. So insight, insight and then epiphany. And epiphany yes. as yes. So let's talk about that mm-hmm. um, in terms of you went through it quite literally mm-hmm. to go through this transformation. Mm-hmm. But many, many, many people watching this have 43 gene key in there somewhere. This okay. deafness. Mm-hmm. And so... For myself, I noticed that, and, and relatively recently, where I have allowed myself to live in kind of happy, I wouldn't, I, I don't know if I'd go so far as saying delusions, but when you're ignoring something and deaf to something, it almost does create a type of delusion. Mm-hmm. When you have a, a happy little scenario, a story in your head, you know, where everything's wonderful, the happily ever after kinds of stories we tell ourselves in life. Mm-hmm. And we're not actually, we're, we're deaf to the signs that are literally all around us. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about deafness in that sense, which is where I have certainly had to deal with it mm-hmm. and where many people listening deal with it. Mm-hmm. Deaf to the inside messages. Because mm-hmm. even you'll even hear them mm-hmm. and say, oh, no. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's confirmation bias around the stories Absolutely. that we tell ourselves. Absolutely. So like, well, this is my narrative and this is what works for yes. me. And I'm going to put those sort of those blinders that horses wear yes. that actually stop us from being able to really fully understand yeah. all 360 of the experience that's being yeah. presented. Uh, it's also a deafness towards our own internal truth of what really actually lights us up from the inside absolutely from the moment that we're born we're told a name and we're given a religion and a social background Mm -hmm. and 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 we've been given these labels of who we think that we are supposed to be and then we're also you know told what success is based off of what society deems as successful and so we mold ourselves to these versions of ourselves that we think will be deemed as 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 acceptable and then actually realizing that what's happened is we're listening to the world as opposed to listening to ourselves and it creates a deafness to be able to actually hear what is going on outside there's so much noise in the world there's so much noise even just before this interview you know there was a lot of people and things going on swirling for us to actually like sit down Mm -hmm. and get quiet and then to be able to find that common thread between Mm -hmm. the two of us and so you don't like you said you don't have to have a physical deafness to have the deafness Mm -hmm. gene key nor do you even need to have the my life's purpose is the first gene key in deafness is the shadow (laughs) and i listen for a living And it's also, it, it's just your superpower because yes. before yes. I even came on this, this interview, the reflections I had about who it was that you were is that you asked brilliant questions because of your ability to listen to that which is needed to bring forward the gold in the interview. So as much as we may oscillate into the shadow of like being happy in my own story and not really actually hearing what's mm-hmm. going on in the world. You also have a great gift within that same shadow. Mm-hmm. And so the shadow is the seed. It's not fully actualized yet. Mm-hmm. And then you have the flower, which is the gift. And then you have the seedy, which is the fruit. And so instead of judging ourselves for, oh, I've noticed, this mm-hmm. is just you coming from a deep level of self-awareness. Mm-hmm. You're recognizing actually that, oh, because I've actually read the shadow. I ignored what I heard. Exactly. You started yeah. to pull it forward into your conscious mm-hmm. awareness. Yeah. You're now pulling it forward into your awareness and going, okay, oh, this is the art of contemplation. Right. Oh, I see it showing up here. Oh, here it shows up too. Right. Oh, and now this is what it means to turn knowledge into wisdom. Yes. You implement it. 
So let's move through then into the gift of it. Into because the gift. Because uh, people that have many, many people watching have this. Mm-hmm. So let's move into the gift that mm-hmm. follows. Insight. The ability to actually hear the whispers of your own heart, mm-hmm. the ability to whis- hear what it is that is being asked of you outside of from inside with your relationship with that that cannot be named, as opposed to what is expected from you from the noise of the outside world, the regurgitation of everybody's thought process. Mm-hmm. Pure originality is born in the silence of being able to truly listen. And so there's hearing and there's listening. Mm-hmm. And that is different layers to the deafness of recognizing actually to a certain degree, a lot of people are deaf. Well, that's what that the reason I bring it up is this. Some time ago, I heard myself saying this. Someone was going on about something. And I said, the bottom line in the world today is everybody's talking and nobody's listening. Mm. And I find that kind of a true state. I found it to be a true statement after it came out of my mouth. I thought, Mm -hmm. Why did I say that? And I realized that is what I witness because everybody is so has so much anxiety now. And I think a lot of it has to do with media and social media to be seen, to be known, to be acknowledged. Then there's so much more opportunity for so many more eyeballs to come onto a person because of technology that everything is about projecting, projecting, projecting more than receiving. Mm-hmm. And so I noticed it was kind of like almost a how do I say it was like a, an attempt to hang on to whatever identity people have of themselves to keep sharing, 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 talking mm-hmm. as though if they stop talking, they'd lose the thread to who they are. And I see that a lot now that that in the last 10 years, that has radically changed the world because everyone's talking, but no one's listening. Mm-hmm. And the fact that you can see it. Is the very piece in where your service is born from, recognizing that which is needed on the planet. And so your lenses have become sensitive to that very unique piece, a way you can actually use your life's work to recognize a deep level of listening actually extracts the best. Yeah, I was born to do that. Which is what you're doing. Yeah, and that's what I do. I mean, I'm very lucky I'm aligned with my purpose and make a living at it. That's an unusual position to be in, and I'm deeply grateful for that. So the 43, we've just kind of examined and and I wanted everyone to be able to look at their own piece in a society where we are all talking over each other. Mm -hmm. And that means we're not listening to each other. And so the depth of what can be had by way of listening Mm -hmm. to me is the gold of life. Mm -hmm. That's where we start having our epiphanies and our insights. So that's jinky number 43, which you and I both share. Mm -hmm. That's in my case, my life's purpose. And in your case, it's what? It's in my pearl. It's my programming partner in my pearl. So it's actually a huge part of my brand. Yeah. Yeah, A deep level of listening. I have a podcast. I have a show. So it's like listening to the guests and the piece and the the significant shift is to listening to understand as opposed to listen to respond. Yes. It's different. I want to understand you. Yeah, totally, totally different. And then, and then the richness of the responses come from a deep level of heart as opposed to the mind. Yes. And you know, I just, we were talking off camera and I thought we all, we can all ignore aspects of self that are, you know, just maybe uh, a little bit heavier. We don't really want to get, we're not ready to unpack at the moment or something. Or then there's just something, and I'm going to ask you about this. You have used hearing aids. And I was watching a show on a cochlear implant Mm. and the woman wanted it reversed. She could not stand what the world was once 
she was hearing all of this noise that we're now referring to. It's a noisy place out there. So in your case, what happened to you when you started dialing back into all that noise? When I put the hearing aids in, it's so jarring. Apparently it takes three weeks to adjust to hearing aids uh, as it's almost like uh, metallic. Mm -hmm. It's like metal grinding. Yeah. Yeah. And noises that I would never hear before, which is like the spoon on the bottom of a bowl. Mm -hmm. And I'd be in the other room and I'd be like, ow. It was really jarring. And and it served its purpose in a sense of like if I'm in a group sharing circle and somebody's talking and I just need to hear, I just need a little bit of assistance, I'll put them in. However, for me right now, my relationship with them is that I'm training myself to hear beyond my ears. Yes. And I actually got into music for that one for many reasons. One being that I learning to feel music as opposed to hear it. And Beethoven was a hundred percent deaf and made music that lasted long after his life because he was still hard to get our minds around that that could be. Yes. So you're, you're developing that, that extra sense and strengthening that extra sense and also my life's work or part of my life's work is to invite others to strengthen that even if your hearing isn't going anywhere Mm -hmm. is Mm -hmm. to recognize that we don't strengthen the muscle of our extra sensory as much as we can yeah and it can be such an incredible ally in this life yes and then when we were off camera i said my uh corollary to that is my sight i have very poor vision Mm -hmm. it's like on a scale 2020 it's 2450 475 Mm -hmm. so i don't it's like double Mm -hmm. legally blind and i love it i don't put my eyes in normal i have to come to come here because i can't see my script or you or anything but at home i don't put my eyes in my my contacts in mm-hmm. until I'm ready to leave the house. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, Renoir had vision problems. That's why his paintings are so fuzzy and soft. And, you know, in the day, I think it's easy to, that's all they were, some of the impressionists were able to see because they had poor vision as well. And that's what my world looks like. Very sophomore Monet. And it's beautiful. There's something about it that just has a, it takes the hard edges off like that tinny sound that you're talking yeah. about. I have the, hard edges off the world that I look at mm-hmm. probably at least half the time. And I love it. Mm. <laughs> I love that you love it. It makes me <laughs> so it. happy that you're loving it. <laughs> I love and, it. And if you, if you look at Greek mythology, yeah. you'll see the seers, right? The, the archetype of the seer. Yeah. They're usually blind. Well, that's true. Because they yeah. see more than most. That's right. Not needing the eyes. Yes. Same thing with the hearing. Yeah. Is the hearing when, when decreased actually becomes a truth filter mm-hmm. because it's navigating through energy like dogs. Mm-hmm. They navigate through energy, not necessarily through words mm-hmm. or appearance yeah, yeah, or exactly. how many followers you have online. Yeah. Any of that sort of stuff. So the same with your eyesight is your ability to yes. see more than most. And that combine that with your scorpionic nature. Yeah, we're both Scorpios. Ooh, we're, we're both Valentine babies. Yeah. Both of our mothers enjoyed Valentine's yeah. Day. Here we are. My sister's birthday is one day after mine, so I know my mom enjoyed Valentine's Day. <laughs> Nine months out. Um, okay, let's go to another key that you and Richard and I all have, but it has a shadow that almost all of society seems to have and it's almost generationally epidemic mm-hmm. so let's go to the the number 56 distraction yes with the gift and the, or the city of intoxication oh yeah my favorite part Ooh. but let's talk about that because it's almost as though in mass our society is living on distraction yeah so it's it's a it's an impact it's impacting certainly i think people 
probably under the age of 60, mm-hmm. um, even 70, because we're all now plugged into technology mm-hmm. and the distraction around us of constant bombardment of information, very enticing and seductive little posts that come through and boom, we're down the rabbit hole. Yeah. So let's talk about that. Mm-hmm. Key 56. Well, our greatest spiritual currency that exists is our attention. That's why it's constantly being fought for all the time. And if we have an app on our phone that we don't pay for, then we are the product. Yes, we our are. Attention is the product. Yeah. If we can give a little bit of context of even just that, mm-hmm. it allows us to understand what we're actually working with here is that there is a sort of a spiritual warfare around our attention that oh, is you happening bet. constantly. Intentional. And so also recognizing as we talk about the overarching theme of the gene keys being our greatest challenge and also our greatest gift, you, me and Richard, which brings me so much delight to know that we all share this same gene key in the same position. In the same place, right here right in the center. Right, and that is the core of our being, which is the ability to <laughs> intoxicate people with our presence. Yes. No, I'm talking about like intoxicated on a good, you know, whiskey over here, but like intoxication in the sense of when you have my full undivided attention, mm-hmm. I can intoxicate you into a place of timelessness with my presence that allows you to feel fully seen, fully acknowledged and fully loved, which is the greatest gift we can ever give anybody. Yes. Now, if we are distracted, we're going to suck life out of the space. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of like what was happening with all the noise in the room earlier. It's like, what? I can't even, what's going on? Yes, exactly. And I'm right there with you. I feel that exact same piece. It's it's like a scattered, scattered energy of recognizing that just like water, water has the power when it is focused to cut glass. It can be that powerful. Mm -hmm. However, also when it's not focused more like a sprinkling system, then it's actually not that powerful. And so that is the sprinkling system is is like us and our distraction. It's like, oh, it's a little bit over here, a little bit over there. It's very watered down. It's very unfocused. It's not powerful. And so the training for us is that from the moment that we wake up to the moment we go to bed, are we monitoring our distractions and training the mind to be present with every single thing, whether it's washing the dishes, having a phone call or having an interview. How present are we and how can we bring our mm-hmm. full focus into that and strengthen that muscle so that we are recognizing, oh, our weakness is to become very distracted. Yeah. Also, our superpower is to be super intoxicating. Right. And so how can I train myself in the mundane moments, in the in-between moments, to train my focus so that when I am sitting with whatever it is, they have my undivided attention and recognizing that gift over a series of time with a series of interactions, we'll start to plant very potent seeds everywhere we go because somebody that feels seen and somebody that feels acknowledged and somebody that feels like they have your undividing attention leaves a wake of beauty Absolutely. in our, in our passage. And so you tend to work a lot with women. Mm-hmm. And we already said you do gene key interpretation for people to help guide them to seeing the beauty within themselves and planting these seeds you just talked about. So one of your things is the sisterhood, kind of pulling women together after thousands of years of pulling each other's hair out Mm -hmm. and competing with one another and denigrating ourselves. Like I said, with the women reading their gifts in the gene keys, oh, no, that's not Mm -hmm. me. Yes, it is you. So let's talk about how this all weaves together for you in your assistance to develop a true sisterhood. Mm -hmm. I think your example is such a perfect example of what you just said. Oh, no, I don't have that within myself. Yes, you do. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, when we can actually sit in a relationship with a group of women and to transcend competition into inspiration, it's a one degree shift to the right. 
However, that's when our geniuses can start to swap. The second we're comparing ourselves with somebody else is when there is a block between being able to receive the gift of each other. And how I like to see it is like we're like individual pieces of fruit. You're a watermelon and I'm an apple, for example. Now, if an apple was to try and be a watermelon and be like, oh, I wish I was a little bit more like the watermelon. It's completely bypassing the gift of it being yeah. an apple. Yeah, yeah. And so recognizing that we have all have our own flavor and our texture and smells and yeah. colors and vibrancy. And the second we try to be like somebody else yeah. is the second we bypass them, the genius that is who we are by birthright. And so by being in the presence of other women, recognizing there is a core wound in humanity and it's women turned against each other, women competing for attention, women recognizing if I don't get attention, this is directly linked to my survival. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, well, it has been. It has Historically, been. It has been. And that is yes. stored in the memory of our DNA. Absolutely. However, it is not the actual truth right now. So what it's doing, it's feeding an illusion, mm-hmm. which is creating separation, which is allowing us to restore the balance on the planet. So sisterhood is essential to the evolution of our collective consciousness, our individual consciousness, and about allowing to receive ourselves beyond our own illusions. How do you do that? How do you model it so that we're living in this balance between the yin and the yang with each other and within? It's a little bit like the gene keys in the sense of it's all encompassing that we go into the shadow to find the gift. Mm -hmm. We don't bypass the shadow and go, oh, love and light. Well, yeah. it's hand, so hold hands yeah. in a circle wearing That's what's beautiful. You're right. The Gene Keys does not, this is not kumbaya. You look at your whole self. We go down, mm-hmm. in, yeah. and then up. Yes. It's not, ah, yeah. this is a bypass. Yeah. And there's a lot of bypassing that happens in the spiritual community. Absolutely. And so the mantra that we bring forward, which was um, relayed by one of my teachers and a dear sister, is the most sacred thing is what is. So if you're feeling rage, mm-hmm. if you're feeling anger, if you're feeling jealousy, if you're feeling separation, if you're feeling division inside of your being, bring it to the altar. It mm-hmm. is welcome here. We will love that too. Mm-hmm. We love the dark side of the moon as much as the light side of the moon. We cannot have the light side of the moon without the dark side of the moon. And also recognizing that we get to make peace with the dark feminine that lives within us too. And recognizing that's the all-encompassing feminine. Mm-hmm. And so... If a sister brings forward a unpopular opinion of, oh, actually, you said this and it made me feel this certain way, we embrace it, we accept it, we welcome it, we break it down, and we recognize that actually this is the medicine because within the trigger, there's a, there's a five T's, trust the trigger to teach. So instead of ostracizing it, oh, well, this is an uncomfortable feeling, then she's not welcome back. Mm-hmm. This is actually a very deep issue within the spiritual community is how can we lean deeper into this? Yes. And there is a, even in the shadow, the shadow for the shadow's sake. Mm-hmm. The reason we indulge that is because we're getting something out of it. Mm-hmm. It can be a repetition of an old pattern that's familiar. And that might be just where our comfort is. It's like, yeah, I felt like this a long time telling myself the same story. I'm like, Keep on doing that. So I think to dive into how does that story actually make you feel when you tell yourself that? Is it still working for you? Mm-hmm, you know? Exactly. And are you, are we ready to transform that story? Because it actually gives me a bit of a knot in my stomach and kind of grinding and judgmental mm-hmm. is what comes out of it. And, you know, then out of judgmental, judgmentalism, a person can feel superior over another person. So I mean, people are, People are getting something out of their shadows, which oftentimes can even come from past lives and past experiences in their lives and trauma. So to go in and feel it like, yeah, what am I getting out of it? I think it's important before you let go of it. What am I getting out of this shadow? It's essentially we can only 
move through it by going into it and through it and feeling yes. into the entirety of our beings. And so within these spaces that we create, we also have uh, safe places to express the shadow nature. And there's an exercise that we do, it's called oracling, which is we go in the center and whatever is most alive, we give full permission to it. Yes. And that could be raging into yes. a pillow. That could be like yelling out to the world and being held and witnessed within it. And so it's about going into the crunchy. It's like feeling the crunchy from the entirety of it and having a healthy outlet because where we get sick is when we don't allow ourselves to feel the entirety of what is moving through us. And so we need safe spaces on this planet to genuinely feel. And the thing is, the interesting, ironic thing of it is, if we're watching a film, for example, and our heroine or our hero breaks down and the most vulnerable part of themselves comes seeping through and they're a heap of tears. That's when our hearts crack open and we love them. We, cause we recognize the vulnerability, not, not just in each other, but in ourselves. We relate to it. We spend all of our lives trying to show us the best side. That's the thing about social media. I'm not happy about everyone showing their sizzle reel, their best side, their hot, wise self. They're not seeing the rest of the person. And so we, we keep doing that. But in fact, it's that vulnerable little frightened piece that every person has somewhere in there that we actually are called forth by mm-hmm. in each other. Mm-hmm. So it's okay to recognize the shadow. That's the perfection of the jinky work. Yes, I have that. Yes, I was stupid. Yes, I paid the price because I was deaf. Willful deaf, mind you. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yes. Yeah. And that actually is where true power lies. That's right. It's the all-encompassing claiming of that which has been, yeah. that which is here, and that which I'm moving into in my full humanness, yes. because it's our humanness that connects us. It's not, not the new. shiny, polished world. No, there's nothing new under the sun. We all share these basic common yeah. human traits mm-hmm. to one degree or another. Mm-hmm. So we're just about out of time. So I want to say there's so much we could talk, so much more to talk about. But just go ahead and, and share with us any final thoughts you have on this whole topic. Well, I would just have to say uh, acknowledgement of thank you so much for bringing this topic forward. Richard yes. Rudd, I believe, is a, is a genuine real life wizard. And he really is. And he's everyone loves him. He's lovable. He's, he's just so, so gracious and kind. He's, and he's extremely humble. And yes, what is. I appreciate so deeply is that the profanity of the teachings of the Gene Keys. And, yeah. and if you just open the book and just absorb a couple yes. of sentences, you'll yes. realize how yes. dense it is. Yes. And then meeting him in person and his and his um his innocence and his humble nature and his love and his relatability allows me to truly understand what it means to recognize of saying this came this came through me as an expression and a transmission to the collective and i am still a forever student and there is no hierarchy there is no pedestaling there is no oh this person has all the answers and they're just Mm -hmm. telling all of us but to actually truly understand the essence of what it means to be a student of life until the moment we take our last breath and to just from that place of being being a student of life, share what works, share what doesn't work, create a level of relatability and to transcend the pyramid into a circle where we are all equals in our own expression and our own nature. And we all bring a piece to the table and recognizing everybody has a superpower. Everybody has a challenge. Nobody is exempt. Nobody's and exempt. And so if we can embrace our challenge as much as we embrace the beautiful parts of ourselves, that is where the true power lies.
Absolutely. And you've said it perfectly. And you're still a very young woman and you have this profound tool and power about you already. You're going to do wonderful things in the world. Thank you so much. Because of your deafness. Mm. I love it. Thank you so much, Blue, for taking the time to be here. And uh, I think you're especially because you are in the world of social media and such, you bring a kind of depth and spirit to it that I think is really needed. Mm-hmm. So, thank you. So thank much. you. Truly an honor. You can connect with Blue's work via her podcast, Deja Blue, B-L-U, no E on it, and her mystery school, Fluorescence. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on Open Minds. Okay. Oh, that was lovely. I'm making a decision. I had a request by our friend and sister, uh, Michael. She said that Marianne Williamson had a really good piece to play for all of us. And uh, to, to go about seven minutes in before we actually get started. But um, it's called 21st Century Bill of Rights. And then a Q&A follows it. So that's the part uh, that she was mentioning that was of quite an interesting point. So uh, Ram is going to be searching. <laughs> um, I guess... Um, I could actually read Mary. Let's read a little message, a bit, a bit of message from Caroline while Rama looks for this. Mm-hmm. Uh, today we answer a question sent by, in by a lightbringer who asks, the World Health Organization, WHO, is made up of unelected members, and yet it is growing in power. Lately, it has altered its mandate and is poised to become a power greater than our own elected governments. How can this be allowed to happen as we have galactic protectors? This is equivalent to a nuclear explosion in its destructiveness. I don't give in to fear, yet I am seeing this develop in sneaky ways, and I cannot help but Think that we are going to wake up one morning and it will be here establishing and ruling. Is that to be the fate of our world? I thought it was Nasara. And so the collective comes, collective comes here. This is an excellent question and we are glad you have asked it. It's got to be seven minutes in. So you should look at the timing and then, uh, Maybe turn the sound all the way down while you do that. Many are uncertain or unhappy. Again, this is a, this is an excellent question. We are glad you have asked it. Many are uncertain or unhappy about what appear to be further movements to restrict group and individual freedoms, free choice and free will, whether from the organization you name or other organizations presumed to be, quote, in authority, unquote. We will say, oh, Caroline's got a picture of way up in the mountains, 
and there's this uh, home, and I mean, oh my, <laughs> there's a feeling from that. Um, we will say that while these developments can appear very concerning, they are nowhere near so far-reaching in scope as those drafting these proposals or treaties intend them to be. They are not taking into account several things which powerfully influence the outcome of this issue. The most important of those being the powerful awakening occurring now throughout the earth and the new earth's vibrational environment. The energies that all experience daily have spurred on a powerful and unprecedented rise in human consciousness Mm. in addition to mother earth's own awakening and claiming of 5d life okay we'll do the rest after this rama says he's ready Mm. let's let's finish our reading here after whatever marianne's got on her mind I'm very grateful to all of you for being here and um, being with me in this conversation. And to all of you who are watching on live stream, thank you as well. So a core principle of the Williamson administration will be to realign public policy with the most basic elements of our humanity. The purpose of data and statistics, especially economic ones, should be placed in service to the human condition. This is my 10-point economic bill of rights. It is a vision for a moral economy. One of my favorite lines from Mahatma Gandhi is when he said, the idea that economics is a verifiable science is one of the greatest evils ever foisted on the human mind. The laws of physics, for instance, are objectively the same no matter where they're applied. The laws of economics, however, often stray into subjectivity when applied to real people's lives. Economists and politicians huddle together to discuss the plight of the economy, too often discounting as merely anecdotal the experience of the single mother trying to make ends meet with her two children. In fact, She's rarely invited into the room, and the lack of human dimension involved in calculations being made in her name are tragically disconnected from the human experience. This creates an economics which might be technically correct, but not necessarily moral. Economics, as much as anything else, must be ethical. It must respect the sacred imperatives of reverence for human life, or it is unworthy of a free society. That's why it's possible for economists to go on television day after day and tell us that the economy is basically doing well, when in fact that begs the question, it is doing well. If unemployment is down, that's good. If millions of Americans are employed yet not at a living wage, then that's something for us to attend to. America's economy is not doing well. For the one in four Americans who carry medical debt, or have to work two or three jobs to make ends meet, or struggle to feed their children. In fact, the rate of poverty is higher in America than in any other advanced democracy. The plight of the poor, the near poor, and the afraid of becoming poor 
is a national crisis, largely ignored by the political elite of this country. (laughs) Tweaking things here and there is not going to fix this. Those things might disturb the monster of economic despair, but they will not slay it. Some level of economic anxiety is now a feature, not a bug, of the American experience. According to a recent CNBC poll, 70% of Americans report feeling financially stressed. People's job or career choices are too often determined not by a natural passion or proclivity, but by their need for health care benefits, enough money for child care, or an ability to pay off their college or medical debt. Quite simply, that is not the way to have an abundant or a prosperous life. Such factors accumulate and result in a life riddled with lost opportunity. I'm running for president to address that. Not just the symptoms, but also the causes of this era of American despair. When you do, you see a great big elephant sitting on the coffee table in America's living room. That elephant is our need for fundamental economic reform. not struggling because one party has failed and the other might do better. Not at all. People are struggling because the entire political system over the last 50 years has left millions of people behind, creating and countenancing the destruction of America's middle class. Forces of economic royalism that have sucked the majority of America's financial resources into the hands of 1% of Americans are headquartered in both political parties. And the Democrats will win in 2024, as well as for the foreseeable future, by reclaiming its traditional values as the party that tells those forces to get the hell out. I'm a Democrat because I was raised to believe that the Democratic Party is the party of the people. That is, however, a fact universally acknowledged not by American voters today. And that is the fundamental threat to our party's success. We will win in 2024 by becoming once again the party of unequivocal advocacy for the working people of the United States. I'd like to thank Professor Harvey Kay, whose ideas and historical scholarship have aided me greatly in understanding the historical need for what Franklin Roosevelt called an economic bill of rights. Based on Kay's research into American history, I have come to see the current state of the American economy within the context of a historical through line. I see the Declaration of Independence as America's mission statement. But as with any individual or group, the principles of our mission statement are the set of commitments on which we stand. It's in constant reference to what President John Adams called America's first principles, that we find our North Star as a nation. Staying true to that vision, we move forward. When we ignore it or abandon it, we falter. And we are faltering now for just that reason. We have allowed the economics of corporate greed to overpower the principles as well as the promise of the Declaration of Independence, and it is the responsibility of our generation to rescue them. The Declaration of Independence lays out America's social contract, 
namely that government is here for its people and not the other way around. All men are endowed with certain inalienable rights and governments are instituted to secure those rights, the rights of life, of liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, over 200 years later, we need to ask ourselves whether government is or is not doing its job. For millions of Americans, the answer would be a resounding no. In the words of Franklin Roosevelt, quote, a necessitous man is not a free man, unquote. A person dying from lack of health care due to an insurance company's incalcitrance is hardly guaranteed the right to life. A child raised in a domestic war zone, but not at liberty to play safely in her own yard, is not free. And a person having to work two or three jobs to make ends meet, or struggling to feed their children, or being poisoned by environmental toxins spewed into their neighborhood because it's a sacrifice zone, are hardly free to pursue happiness. Make no mistake about it. Those are not hypotheticals. They are the lived realities of millions of Americans. Economic hardship is a form of modern oppression, in part underlying every single social problem in our midst, from incarceration to depression to addiction. Hello, my name is Kevin Rogers. I'm one of the sock designers here at Grip6. I'd like to take a minute to tell you about our sock line and why purchasing a Grip6 sock <laughs> will be one of the best decisions you ever make. You can't make a good meal with bad ingredients. That's why we make our socks with 100% Rambouillet Merino wool sourced right here from the Rocky Mountains. Because of that, you'll find USA wool knit into the bottom of every single sock we make. Unlike the wool of previous generations, there is no overstating the deleterious effects of chronic economic pain on our society simply because of the effect it has on people's lives. That the poor, the near poor, and the afraid of becoming poor now make up a majority of American citizens. For the 60% of Americans living paycheck to paycheck, the fear of economic disaster is never far from their mind. We all know this. The time has come to say it, and the time has come to do something about it. I'm running for president because I've seen all this up close. I've had a long career working with people whose lives are falling apart. But when my career began, the person living with trauma seemed to be the exception. It was the diagnosis of a critical illness or the death of a loved one, sudden failure in some part of one's life. But today, people whose lives are riddled with anxiety seem more like the rule than the exception. And the question we need to ask is why? And when we do, we see there's something very different about the America I knew when my career started and the America we see now. That major difference is that in those days, there was a thriving middle class. The soulless dictates of trickle-down economics had not yet redefined human beings as mere consumers, turned every human need into a profit center, or succeeded in casting the tentacles of corporate greed into every single corner of our lives. We were still, for better or for worse, one nation. We were not yet like random atoms floating in a meaningless world of harsh economic survival. For that reason, 
fundamental economic reform is imperative. The role of government should not be to merely help people survive an unjust economy. The role of government should be to end the injustice. The role of a government of the people, by the people, and for the people is to help them thrive, not merely survive. Government exists to serve its people, not the donors of the party in power. Its role is not to chop wood and carry water for a class of corporate overlords. We should not be a government of the corporations, by the corporations, and for the corporations. The role of the government should be to advocate unequivocally for the safety, health, and well-being of its citizens, to guarantee life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to the American people. Now, according to the Declaration of Independence, when government is not doing that job, then it is the right of the people to alter it. And I'm running for president to help us do that. presidents before us have paved the way. President Abraham Lincoln signed into law the 1862 Land Grant Act, providing resources to create the first public colleges and universities, enabling the children of workers and farmers to go to college. In the 1930s, Franklin Roosevelt declared that the four great American freedoms included not only the freedoms of speech and religion, but also the freedom from want and the freedom from fear. His response to what he saw as the predatory nature of American corporations was the creation of a massive array of programs he called the New Deal and the empowerment of workers with the right to organize unions. In response to the expressed yearnings of Americans for a post-World War II era of genuine security and prosperity, he introduced the concept of an economic bill of rights. He believed that this would solidify and codify the right of every American to life, to liberty, and to the pursuit of happiness. Now, of course, corporate executives opposed his ideas, and they opposed them vehemently. But in Roosevelt, we had a president who simply didn't care. His response was, I welcome their hatred. Roosevelt did not live to see the realization of the Economic Bill of Rights, but the idea was kept alive, including in the 1960 Democratic platform, as well as the urging of Martin Luther King Jr. There are echoes of it in the current revitalization of the American labor movement. And I introduce it now as the economic U-turn that is the heart of my presidential campaign. Once again, the people of the United States are demanding economic justice, and the Democratic Party should be listening to those demands, responding to those demands, and turning them into political power. When I'm president, I will. I'd like to propose a 10-point 21st century Bill of Rights, an economic Bill of Rights to include, number one, the right to a job that pays a living wage. Franklin Roosevelt said these words in 1933, 
It seems to me, he said fully plain, that no business that depends for existence on paying less than living wages to its workers has any right to continue in this country. Those words seem almost radical today, but they're radical only in that they are radically American. They give teeth and meaning to the idea that our country actually belongs to our people. Our task is to create in our time a social contract in which the ability of hardworking Americans to reap the benefits of their work and of their tax dollars is given primacy over the ability of huge corporate entities to earn more short-term profits. We must slay the sacred cow of trickle-down economics and return America's engine of prosperity to the American people. A living wage in America's cities today is so far beyond our current federal minimum wage that it leaves a third of our workforce without the ability to find a place to live. So the Vanish Holster, which you can actually see me wearing right here, is a holster that works with any clothing. So belly band goes all the way, all the way around your body and it doesn't require a tactical belt. Most important thing about it is how comfortable it is. And the second most important thing for you to know right now as you watch this. As soon as I enter the White House, I will sign an executive order that any worker in the public or private sector who is paid by way of a federal contract will be paid a living wage. <laughs> Number two, the right to a voice in the workplace through a union and collective bargaining. I support the passage of the PRO Act, giving all workers the right to organize and protecting them from union-busting activities around the country. This law will nullify throughout the country the so-called right-to-work laws that so seriously undermine unions. I will also bolster the power and resources of the National Labor Relations Board so that it can more vigorously perform its mission of protecting and supporting the rights of labor. (laughs) Number three, the right to universal quality health care. I join a majority of Americans in support of a universal health care in the form of a Medicare for all type plan. In the United States today, one in four Americans carry medical debt. 85 million Americans are uninsured or underinsured. People put GoFundMe pages on the Internet in order to pay for life-saving operations for themselves and for their loved ones. Others ration their insulin or go to Mexico or Canada to buy it at a price they can afford. Tens of thousands, some say millions, die every year from lack of health care in America, and 500,000 Americans go into medical bankruptcy. Every other advanced democracy has universal health care, and so should we. The insurance company industry is a leech, not only on our economy, but on people's lives. And with universal health care, that tyranny will end. Number four, the right to a cost-free higher education. An education, an educated population is an empowered people. And forces which seek to limit the ability of Americans to educate themselves are working in direct contradiction to the principles of the Declaration of Independence. 
Education is a path to self-actualization as well as prosperity. It is a path to expanding one's mind and one's opportunities. It is also fundamental to a democracy. My goal as president will be a world-class public education made available to every American, from preschool all the way through college and tech school. Tuition-free college was available in many states in America until the 1960s and 1970s. Turning the education of our youth into a profit center for greedy financial institutions, saddling those who are only trying to better their lives with the huge immoral burden of college loan debts is a travesty of economic justice. A Williamson presidency will take aim at this injustice from my first day in office, canceling all college loan debt and setting a 10-year goal of every public school in America becoming a palace of learning, culture, and the arts. Those seeking a more educated life will have no doubt that my my administration has their back. Number five. The right to good, affordable housing. Throughout the country, the lack of affordable housing has reached crisis levels. But the housing crisis, like our health care crisis and our environmental crisis, is simply the spawn of the underlying crisis, which is vulture capitalism. This... <clears throat> This malevolent form of capitalism has now reached its tentacles into the housing market, turning home ownership into a commodity that tens of millions of people cannot afford or reasonably look forward to. Housing should not be subject to the risk of casino capitalism. I will lead the effort to stop this unethical madness. Individual home buyers should be given legal priority over Wall Street companies when they're trying to purchase a home with investment firms substantially taxed for any efforts to buy up entire neighborhoods, drive up real estate prices, leaving hardworking Americans unable to purchase a place to live. With millions of vacant homes in America and 600,000 homeless people, the gap between what is right and what is currently happening could not be starker. I will launch within the Department of Housing and Urban Development a massive public-private mobilization to rebuild and restore homes that are affordable and accessible to every American. Number six, the right to a clean environment and a healthy planet. In 2025, at the start of a Williamson presidency, the United States will begin a mass mobilization for a just transition from a dirty economy to a clean economy. I will cancel the Willow Project on day one of my administration. I will withdraw permission for the export of liquefied natural gas, and I will begin a serious effort to ramp down, not ramp up, fossil fuel extraction. This will be a non-negotiable promise made to our young, as well as to future generations of Americans, that in our time, we will do everything possible to save the planet from becoming uninhabitable. I 
am adamant that we not be a generation looked back on with contempt, cursed for our irreverence and irresponsibility. Rather, we will be a generation of Americans who understood, though the hour is late, that our responsibility is not to ourselves alone, but to our children and to our children's children. With all the power of the presidency in my hands, I will make sure that the American 21st century will be green. Seven, the right to a meaningful endowment of resources at birth. One of the most powerful ways to fight poverty is through baby bonds, by which every child is allotted at birth an amount of money that will become a conduit to wealth creation in their adult years. The best baby bond proposals restrict the use of those funds to wealth-building activities such as buying a home or farm, going to a college or trade school, or starting a business. While such plans would cost taxpayers up to $60 billion a year, that amount is less than the 10% of what we spend on our annual defense budget, an item at this point labeled almost ironically as our national security. What national security is it when someone has no health care, no secure education, no secure safety, no secure economic prospects? Those are not secure rights. And when I am president, such guarantee will become real. Security will be a real concept rather than a slogan that makes money simply for defense contractors. And I say now that such guarantee of that security should begin at birth. (laughs) Number eight, the right to sound banking and financial services. The U.S. banking system at this point is less a facilitator of broad-scale financial good and more a conduit through which the vast majority of capital is kept in the hands of a few at the expense of the many. I will lead the effort to reduce the waste and harm created by a bloated financial sector that has expanded far beyond any justifiable size for our economy. Banks are often engaged in activities that have destabilized the economy, sometimes contributing to severe harm to citizens and to the employment on which we depend. Through their irresponsible actions, for instance, banks contributed greatly to the real estate bubble and Great Recession in 2008 and beyond. I will promote the necessary financial regulations to avoid harmful consequences of irresponsible banking practices, including the restoration of the Glass-Steagall Act, in order to separate commercial from investment banking. I also support a financial transactions tax that would reduce some of the excesses and dangers of speculative activity, as well as raise revenue that could be used for social good. Number nine, the right to an equitable and fair justice system. It's hardly extreme today to suggest that at this point the United States has a two-tier justice system, one for the rich and another for the poor. Only 3% of federally prosecuted crimes are white collar, even though the deleterious effects of such crimes on poor communities is enormous. While America's courts are clearly overburdened, And many of the problems which make their way to the justice system should have and would have been avoided, nipped in the bud were there greater social and economic justice throughout the society. The system itself can be improved with such things as ending cash bail, 
implementing stringent limitations on the number of cases managed by public defenders, removing all law and oath-breaking judges, demilitarizing the police, creating a national database of police crimes and misconduct, ending mandatory sentencing, and seeking serious police reform. Greater economic and social justice will keep people out of prisons. Greater compassion must be shown to people while in prison, and more help must be given to people when they leave prison. In addition, racial disparities in prison sentencing constitute a moral crime in the United States, and they must end. We must bring down crime and end the prison industrial complex, both of which will be serious goals of a Williamson administration. And number 10, the right to cultural and civic involvement in democratic life. The United States invests very little in the arts compared to other countries. I will support substantial federal investment in the arts and create a public works project that employs artists and beautifies our country. We will give grants to schools to guarantee that our young have access to the highest involvement in culture and the arts. We will also create the most stringent federal protections on voting rights and election integrity, not only to achieve the goals I have stated here, but also to guarantee that such rights will never again be under serious threat. Look at this guitar pattern. What you're looking at is the key that unlocks the guitar neck forever. It lets you hit all the right notes without thinking. It lets you flow up and down the fretboard without hesitation, and it lets you play faster. Now with these points, an economic bill of rights, we will initiate a season of repair in America, an economic and societal U-turn. While it will not be completed in four years, it will be fundamentally begun in four years. It is a vision and a construct, both a goal for our society and a process by which we will achieve it. It is meant to inspire and to guide us to a new beginning, and from my first day in office, it will be my roadmap. I see it not only as the bulwark of my presidency, but the path to a better future for all Americans. The basic premise of an economic bill of rights is this, that an economy exists to serve its people. Our people do not exist to serve the economy. Economic inequality is now worse than at any time in the last hundred years. A second gilded age has taken hold in America, and it's our turn to repudiate it in the same way that our ancestors repudiated the first one. They did not cower before corporate tyranny, and neither should we. Capital should not be a power that lords over people. It should be a power that is ethically and wisely employed in a way that creates dignity, wealth, and opportunity for all who are willing to work for it. From universal health care to free public college and tech school tuition to free child care to paid family leave to guaranteed sick pay to a guaranteed living wage, Americans should be granted the same rights, the same economic rights as are the citizens of every other advanced democracy. These positions 
are not considered mod or not considered anything but moderate in other advanced democracies, and they should be considered moderate positions in the United States as well. Only those who stand to gain financially from withholding those rights, or those who have no ethical problem with creating wealth at the expense of other people being able to, or those who have an ideological opposition to the use of government to support its people would criticize and obstruct the achievement of these rights. Our political imaginations have been severely limited in the last 50 years. Our hard-won rights have been placed under siege, and Americans have been insidiously trained to expect too little. I offer an agenda for an economic bill of rights as a way to free our minds from the invisible chains that bind us, a reminder that the American people themselves are the source of this country's wealth, the source of our tax dollars, and the source, with God, of our greater good. The people themselves should be the beneficiaries of the good that the people themselves produce. So said Jefferson. So said Lincoln. So said Roosevelt. And with the realization of the plans that I have laid out here in our time, so shall we. Thank you very much. I can take, uh, particularly from the press or from anyone, actually, if you have uh, two or three questions. Uh, Medea Benjamin, yes. Uh, hi, yes. I'm surprised you didn't include slashing the Pentagon budget and demilitarizing U.S. foreign policy in this. Well, I do believe that there should be about a 20% reduction of the uh, U.S. Uh, defense budget. I think clearly... As I said, there's irony at this point to call that our national security, particularly when you look at so much of the military activity of the United States in the last few decades. Um, it's very clear that it has not increased our national security. In many ways, it has decreased our national security. I see the military like I view a surgeon. If you're going to have surgery, you better make sure that we have the best one, and of course we should. But any reasonable person tries to avoid surgery if possible. Uh, we all know there is a military-industrial complex uh, in this town. There is a defense establishment called the Blob, and we know that far too often the short-term profits of Boeing and Raytheon and Northrop Grumman and other defense uh, contractors are placed before the safety and the health and the well-being of the American people. They would have a tough time with that kind of nonsense thrown my way. Who's next? <clears throat> yes. me. <laughs> it is not 
not reasonable, given the uh, current makeup of the Supreme Court of the United States, it is not reasonable to assume that we are going to be able to overturn Citizens United anytime soon. Although we as a generation should be as focused on overturning Citizens United as certain other people have were focused for so long on overturning Roe v. Wade. Uh, and it's not only uh, Citizens United, it is also gerrymandering and several other factors as well. This situation is, as you said, deep corruption, and it is our entire political system is imbued with it. Uh, this town, in many two ways, in many ways, has become a system of legalized bribery. I'm not saying that electing a president who is not of that machine will fix everything. But I am saying that a president who will name what I just said, who sees it for what it is, and is not a part of that machine, will be a very powerful piece of the solution. In order for us to face what is clearly an all-systems breakdown due to that corruption, we do need an inside-outside strategy. But for inside, the most powerful thing you could do is to is to vote for someone, elect someone, get her in there who sees that game for what it is, who has nothing to gain by pleasing the insurance companies or pleasing the pharmaceutical companies or pleasing big ag or pleasing big chemical companies or pleasing big food companies or pleasing gun manufacturers or pleasing big oil or pleasing defense contractors. It will please me to make them squirm. That's my <laughs> Yes. Yes. Sir. Yes. 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 Individuals and organizations both endure and transform times of chaos. You have to look in the mirror. And I want to help this country, which I do love, look in the mirror. And one of the ways we need to uh, do that is, as Medea was saying in terms of foreign policy, specifically in terms of your question, recognize how much of the foreign policy of the United States in Latin America over the last few decades has contributed and contributed in very serious ways to the economic hardships and destabilization that are happening right now. This has had to do with sanctions, some of which still exist. This has had to do with destabilizing government simply because our State Department deemed them not in the best interests of the United States, making us anything other, anything but the champions of democracy that we have claimed to be. I think the average American probably does not recognize the level of horror, the level of violence that people have to be trying to escape in order to be willing to walk across a desert in a very, very dangerous trip holding your children on your shoulders, by the way, in order to maybe just maybe get some kind of job in the United States. If you are not uh, descended from uh, enslaved people or descended from indigenous peoples on this, on this continent, who the heck do we think that we are? Who do we think that we are? I know all four of my grandparents came through Ellis Island escaping oppression and found that American dream, which is the same thing that uh, people are seeking now. My father was an immigration lawyer. My father was an immig- my brother is an immigration lawyer, worked uh, for the farm workers, worked for Cesar Chavez. 
Congress has failed us terribly here. Over decades now, there should have been all of the legal ways that are necessary in order to provide the resources uh, for people to enter here legally. In the meantime, when we talk about the crisis at the border, let's be clear what that crisis is. The main crisis is not ours. The main crisis is the humanitarian crisis of those people who are going what they're are going through what they are going through. They have already faced so much trauma in the places they came from. When I'm president, they're not going to face more trauma when they get to our border. We are going, we are going to apply and to allocate, allocate all of the resources necessary for safe and legal immigration into this country. And let's be very, very clear. This is true now, statistically, as it has always been true in our history. Immigrants bring a lot more to us than we bring to them. America needs to get off our high horse in a lot of ways. And with mercy and with compassion, when I'm president, we will. Who's next? Someone in the back there? Yes. Whoever you're pointing to, Duran, you can choose. I'm looking here for glass of water. Yeah. If I were in Congress today, uh, if I were a Senate for sure, I would be signing that letter urging the president to um, uh, use the 14th Amendment on this. This is absolutely ridiculous, and it's spelled out in, uh, in that amendment that that uh, that uh, debt shall not be questioned. And it is time. Clearly, uh, Speaker McCarthy and his Republican cohorts are not negotiating in good faith. And for that reason, I believe that the president should choose the 14th Amendment at this time. Yes, ma'am. I wouldn't be running for president if I was a total fan of everything that the president is doing. I, I do think that the president is trying his best, but I think at this point, enough is enough. And I'm with the other Democrats who say, what is going on here? You know, you, the Republicans, man, they overuse the power. They overreach and they abuse too often the power of the presidency when it's in their hands. But in our hands, too often the presidents don't use all the power that we have. He is the president of the United States and it's time for him to say 14th Amendment, we're paying our debts. Right. <laughs> that lady in the very, uh, very back? Yeah. <clears throat> and then I, I see you, I promise you after that. Yes, ma'am. Um, uh, people everywhere and and there are many wonderful people here who I have met and everything that you just described as the beauty of the city I have experienced and, and feel very blessed by when I talk about what I 
have a problem with in this town. Uh, please forgive me if I miscommunicated. I didn't mean the larger city. I meant a certain particular industry called the political media industrial complex that is headquartered here. Of course, the uh, Washington should be a state. We should have two senators. We should have a voting congressperson. I am a citizen of this city. Absolutely, we should. Absolutely, we should. So thank you for bringing that up. Okay, one more. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Um, I'm glad that you brought up the political media industrial complex. That's exactly what I wanted to comment on. You know, we are heading into a very bizarre place where truth and information is so easily manipulated. Yes. Changed. I was in your last speech at the bus was opposed and said what these people said. They, they, they thought that the solution was to protect the Second Amendment when what they really, you know what I'm talking about. And so... I just want to know. She was a great woman, actually. Yeah. She was. And the problem, the media, the stories, the manipulation, is, it's, it's separating us. And it's part of, of this playbook of dividing conflict through information. And so I just wanted to know, what is your stance on that? How, how just elaborate a little bit more on that. You know, we're living at a, a very chaotic time. You know, this is an era, uh, a time of historic phase transition. One entire era of human history is giving way to another one. And there are two simultaneous phenomena. One world is crumbling in front of our eyes and another is struggling to be born. Now, what you bring up, of course, brings into question the entire issue of the First Amendment. And I think everyone in this room is very aware. We don't want to mess with the First Amendment. We're also aware, however, of some terrible things that are being done in the name of the First Amendment. I know I was, um, I remember uh, when I first heard uh, Sasha Baron Cohen uh, talking about the removal of um, the deplatforming of President Trump, I remember hearing him say, and it, and it just struck me like a brick to my forehead. He said, you know, if uh, Adolf Hitler were alive today, he would be taking uh, 30 second ads out on Facebook. And I, I really, that, uh, that has really stayed with me. On the other hand, I do uh, understand, you know, capitalist surveillance is, is, is a big issue. Government surveillance is a big issue. Tech companies uh, surveilling us is a big issue. And you know what? You can't legislate everything. You can't use legislation as a bludgeon because there are consequences. And you know what the deepest level of solution is here? And what has got to accompany any level of external legislative change or none of it will work? A revolution in ethics. Yeah. You know, when I, when I read about that New York Times reporter about a month or so ago who did a chat, did you read about that? And the, the voice was, um, suggesting that he leave his wife and run off with her. Well, First of all, you know, when he went on television, he said, you know, this really disturbed me because I have a strong mental structure. So I'm not leaving my wife to whom I'm happily married. He said, but somebody could be really seriously persuaded to do some very terrible things here. Could even be, well, the worst things imaginable. And also I read later. He went on television, he wrote about it, and I read later that when he went back to his computer, the computer said, why did you do that to me? How evil you are, you're like Hitler. Um, this is serious, and this could seriously get out of hand. What is the answer? What kind of CEOs of tech companies 
didn't the very next day said we're shutting this thing down. There is no amount of corporate profits that is worth the damage this could do to our society. So we all know we have to be very, very careful with the application of the law. But at the same time, as I said, nothing that I've said here today, including an answer to this question, can compensate for a lack of human ethics and compassion and love for our country. I'm particularly grateful to all of you who are here because I know that you came in response to the realization that these are very, very serious times. Part of the problem I have with the political system, and I think one of the reasons I'm running for president, is that the political system has developed a way of talking to all of us like we're sixth graders. When it comes to our individual personal relationships, I find Americans as authentic and real and serious-minded as the people in any other country. But when it comes to our public dialogue, particularly about political issues, we have been so dumbed down. And there are people who have dumbed us down for their own purposes. We are easier to control. It is easier. It makes us vulnerable to their uh, putting forth the notion that they are the serious thinkers. They are the ones who know what to do. If they knew what to do, we wouldn't be six inches from the cliff in terms of the state of our democracy, the state of our environment, and the state of our economy. The status quo will not disrupt itself. That is something that we the people are going to have to do. And in doing that, yes, we need to make some serious changes on the outside, but as Martin Luther King said, we need quantitative shifts in our circumstances and qualitative shifts in our souls. I've spent 40 years of my life learning quite a bit about how to navigate those changes in our souls. And if you give me the chance, I think I can kick ass navigating some changes. All right. I think Marianne said everything that everybody else would say, but I'll just read this. Our mothership will emit a beautiful angelic glow with multicolored lights and sounds. It will connect with the DNA of all living things on Earth and lift them into higher levels of consciousness. We welcome all of Earth's inhabitants and their pets to join us on this beautiful ship. We will be bringing a special gift for all of your pets as well. Okay. They are intervening to help um, wake up those that are still very, very much, I guess, heads in sand, you might say. And I'll just read the last few sentences here from Caroline. She said, pull your eyes from the false representations of false evidence appearing real. Now hold your heart space, that definite reassurance that all is well. As many enjoy saying now, affirm inwardly about new earth life. We have already created it. The stars have spoken in their turning to the energies of revolution. This time, a revolution from within the high heart. Likewise, all of you have spoken words of new creation. We celebrate with you. 
Okay, and I'm giving the last word with this talking stick in the Emerald Serpent Feathered One, Quetzalcoatl, and um, uh, the uh, Excalibur as well, to Rainbird, here it comes, Manahunis and Sasquatch and everything in between, here it comes. All right, all right. <laughs> thank you so much for today. <laughs> and it was good, as usual, and lots of gratitude for all of us for witnessing and midwifing the portal we are in. We've got 10 portal days in front of us in the Mayan calendar, and we're rocking it. So thank you, and I pass this talking stick back to you, Tara. Thank you, and I'm going to pass it right over to Rama. What you have for us, huh? Oh, I was going to just play an Enya song. Okay. <laughs> and it is. Yeah. All right, everybody. Give yourself to love. I know that song. I was thinking of it, but. It is good morning for most of us. <laughs> Six. Um, until we meet again, everyone, come and visit with us and do the meditation work and uh, the invocation work with Cheryl. It's very powerful. And real quick, it's 425-436-6260. And the PIN code is 946 946- Seven four four pound. <coughs> see you in your dreams on the bridge, and I'll see you very much through all of our hearts together. Namaste, everyone. Aloha. Namaste. <laughs>